This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Misa. Why so glum, Paul? Oh, just so it goes. Just so it goes. That's a different. I'm, 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 I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I'm stuck on a. In a colony on an alien planet, and the natives don't like me. <laughs> well, you would stop raping them, Paul, and cutting down all the trees. Wow, wow, wow. Harsh. That's harsh, Jesse. Why don't you just tell him to go to sleep and have a good dream? <laughs> <laughs> um, we're reading uh, The Word for World is Forest by Ursula Le Guin. This is a, a novella, they say. It feels like a novel yep. to me. Uh, it was dense. Yeah, it, it's dense, but it's also it's like six hours long. That's a novel. I don't know where they it, come it, up with these. It, it, well, it was first published in again Dangerous Visions by Harlan Ellison. Yeah, the collection of new stories that are awesome is the idea, right? And how many well, were the were there of that? It was supposed to be four, wasn't it? There was spo- there there's supposed to be three. They only got to two. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, the, the last Dangerous Visions has been unpublished for many, many, many years. And is dead, it there so. somewhere? Um, uh, there, there's all sorts of disputes about whether who has the rights to those stories. Can they be reverted? Can they be published now? Uh-huh. Yeah, the Harlan, the late Harlan Ellison, dicked around trying to get this last anthology done, and yeah, he ultimately didn't do it. I mean, the first one came out like a rocket. This one came out again. Dangerous came out a couple years later, and the third one has been vaporware ever since. Mm. Huh. And, and now vaporware, yeah, as of his death. Yeah. So, is there is there something that was was going to be in there that is still sitting unpublished? Yeah. Oh, tons. oh tons. Yeah. So <laughs> obviously somebody needs to go break into his house and you know, <laughs> I guess you know, publish it all. I I mean they're um, let's see so and they're all commissioned in the seventies right they, they're all commissioned in the seventies yeah That's I mean crazy. there's a there's there's a there's a list as of nineteen seventy nine what was going to be in it and there's all I think some of these actually did wind up getting published elsewhere but a lot of them just like oh my god like. Dozens of a couple dozen stories just never went anywhere. Wow. It's just like yeah, they 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 they've sat unpublished all the time. I mean, this look, we got two good volumes, but he just could not stick the landing and get the third one. Well, I um I I was saving the introduction by Harlan Ellison to this this novella uh, for after I read it after. I guess mm-hmm. this morning, and uh, then I read the afterward, which is apparently written by Le Guin herself. Um, the introduction doesn't really have much to do with the uh, with the uh, story proper, but it sure tells you a lot about Harlan Ellison, and it sure tells you a lot about Ursula Le Guin, right? Did you guys both read it? I, I, I read I, the introduction. I didn't. I didn't get. I didn't read the uh, the the end part though by her. Oh yeah, I, I, it's at the end of the PDF. Um, I'll just read it. It's pretty short. 
Okay. Um, writing is usually hard work for me and enjoyable. This story was easy to write and disagreeable. It left me no choice. Writing it was a little like taking dictation from a boss with ulcers. What I wanted to write about was the forest and the dream that that is. I wanted oh and the dream. That is, I wanted to describe a certain ecology from within and play with some of Hadfield's and Dennett Den, Dem, Dement's ideas about the function of dreaming sleep and the uses of dream. But the boss wanted to talk about the destruction of ecological balance and the rejection of emotional balance. He didn't want to play. He wanted to moralize. I'm not very fond of moralistic tales, for they often lack charity. I hope this one does not. I can only say, having been forced to endure the experience, that it is even more painful to be Don Davidson than it is to be Raj Luyubov. So those are two of the main characters in the book. Yep. Don Davidson is the asshole captain who's taming... Planet Tamer is what he calls himself, right? Um, yeah. The Creechy Homeworld. And uh, Luyubov is the... Uh, Speshy, yeah. Yeah, but he's like an anthropologist, right? Yeah, he's an anthropologist. Yeah. And they're both captains. And it struck me when I went back to start rereading it, because it's so short, um, that I forgot that this was, a, this was an army planet, right? These are... This is the military aspect of it. You sort of forget that deep into the story. How did you forget that? I I didn't forget that at all because because of Davidson's like such a strong warlike character. It's because of what they're doing, I think. So so I I was thinking, yeah, this is uh, I'd remembered it as a sort of metaphor for Vietnam, which Mm -hmm. I guess it kind of is. Oh, but definitely is. It, yeah. yeah, but I don't think I don't think it is Vietnam, right? Like, there's, you know, the Americans no. aren't there to chop down the trees. That's the effect of what they're doing. But they're not mm-hmm. there to chop the trees down. They're there to, uh, you know, stop communism or something. Creatures but, don't uh, have yeah. uh, a, an ideology that they that the humans want stopped. They have wood, and so the, mm-hmm. I I saw them all as like sawmill workers. Which is what they are, right? And the way they act, they're on recreation. Um, and and yet it's in there, right? So I can see the tension that she's talking about here, um, mm-hmm. between between the wanting to tell a story about about the power of dream and the connection to the forest, and also to moralize about you know why Vietnam is bad. And I think. The story works really well, even though you know Vietnam is long, long past. Um, it works yeah. beyond that, and it does. I didn't. I mean, I didn't realize it had anything to do with Vietnam until reading about it afterwards. And and I was sort like I I totally understand the 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 parallels and the relationships, but it, I didn't think that that was all that it was either. Like it didn't. I you could take Vietnam out, and it would still be. You know, it still holds the strength that it has, mm-hmm. and and all the things it brings out. Yeah, the, there's a couple strands here. We have we have the we have the colonial narrative where, where we're we're conquering a planet and we're going to oppress the natives and we're to take what we want. Mm-hmm. We have an ecological narrative, but like devastation and destruction. I mean, they, they talk about that island that they completely depopulated trees and now is a barren Dump wasteland. The mm-hmm. yep, island, thank you. Yeah. And, and there's also there's there's also um, 
stuff with galactic civilization because we get the uh, the invention of the Ansible in her stories shows up here for the for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. mentioned in earlier books, but here we actually get the Ansible and the existence of the Ansible has real world effects on this colony. And there's also criticisms of of uh, gender and and the role of women in society as 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 compared to the the two societies the human the humans and the uh, and the and the local population. So she's doing a yeah, lot. And there's of also here. the whole biblical thing too, the whole Eden and loss of Eden and and bringing mm-hmm. either whole that whole aspect. Yep, as well. yep. But the, yeah, the bring the bringing of e- evil to innocence because yeah, yeah. they that. The humans taught them how to murder, mm. basically. That's yeah, interesting. Which, yeah. I, I thought of it sort of as a Prometheus story in a way, mm. because you know he 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 didn't he was an un, un he didn't want to be, but he did it. He he brought this whole thing to his people, and now they've got it. Wow, that's interesting. I I um, didn't think of the biblical stuff, but it totally fits, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have either of you ever read The Streets of Ashkelon by Harry Harrison? It sounds familiar. It's a 1962 short story. It was published in New Worlds. It's it's a it's about a a merchant on he's the only human on an alien tr- planet, and he's and he's surprised that the local population doesn't have any concepts of God, sin, religion, mm. and he's been teaching them science, but as Events go along, things go bad, and there's a murder. And so he realizes, Garth realizes, that's the name of the character, realizes he's basically brought sin to the Garden of Eden. Hmm. And and to give again, this was written 10 years before the story. I've got to think that Le Guin was thinking about that and tapping that and tapping in, into that story for this, too. Right. It's very, yeah. So uh, do you guys watch the movie adaptation? No. No. Did you tell no. us it was a movie adaptation? Yeah, it, it's pretty loose. It's called Avatar. Oh, okay. Duh. <laughs> I, I was about. I was going to wonder. Yeah. Wonder what to bring up Avatar. I was, I was thinking, what was there some stop motion adaptation of this thing? Yes, Avatar definitely. Yeah, totally. Into this. Yeah. Um, so, Avatar is mixing a bunch of things together, but one of them certainly is. Dances is, with wolves in a world. In the world where the world is forest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, you know, they're there yeah. for unobtainium, right? They're Instead t- of wood. Yeah. But, but consider in this world, in, in, the, in the novella as well as Avatar, Earth is a wasteland because they, because wood is, I mean, there are no, I mean, they talk about the, that being a lack of trees and destruction of biomes all the way even places like alaska so the fact that you're shipping wood across light years means yeah there's no trees left on the earth the earth is pretty wrecked just like it is an avatar right yeah and uh, it's funny because um i, I meant I, to watch avatar again and I, and I didn't get to it I, it I i was thinking about it a little bit and then i saw it on the wikipedia entry as you know yeah but then in the shower this morning i was thinking uh, I do a lot of good thinking in the shower. Um, That's all wet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was thinking, actually, it's a, it's quite similar to a fourth Doctor Who, ep- fourth Doctor Doctor Who episode called, or series, serial called The Power of Kroll, which is set on a, a moon 
um, that has been colonized by humans. Um, the humans were formerly, uh, uh, oh, the natives were formerly on the planet, and now they've been exiled to the, the moon, and they're green-skinned. And the <laughs> moon is, a, it's not a forest world, it's a swamp world. But Oh, yeah, with, with that giant creature that comes out of the swamp, right, I remember they that. They basically one. got a giant Cthulhu monster um, <laughs> that, a god that comes in and changes things up. And then the doctor shows up and we've got some really nasty um, colonizers and some, uh, you know, the creatures in that one have a different name, but um, it's the same idea. They're treated in the same way. So the, the colonization uh, aspect is obviously in people's minds in the 70s. Mm-hmm. I think that's like 1979 or so that episode. So I'm not sure it can all be traced to this story, but um, it's certainly in people's minds. And um, I, I think one of the creatures, you know, they all given other names. And one of them is named Ben, and one of them is named Sam. Yeah. Know? And then I thought uh, it made me think of Gunga Din as well. You know, the uh, water carrier from um, Richard Kipling. Oh yeah. Um, oh, he's uh, you know, we've beaten you, we've whipped you, and you're a better man than I. Um, the sort of strange right. conclusion that um, Kipling comes to, he, people think of him as kind of racist, but actually his dad was a lot more racist than he was. He was he was like kind of a lover of of the exotic, and uh, and uh, it's it's very interesting because we do have. There's three main characters in this book. One of them is a super bastard who starts off the story, right? Um, but his he's kind of the most fully human of them, in a certain sense. He's How do you mean? Just, yeah. He's just unconscious of his own sort of hypocrisy, I guess. Whereas, um, well, it's, cause, it's just because we see so much from his point of view. Yeah, he, he gets yeah. the most chapters. Yeah, um, and it's really interesting the way she's she's a really good writer. I, I was thinking, she is. I was thinking about why uh, was was uh, Harlan Ellison was very praising of her her <laughs> writing at the in this opening uh, four page story of uh, you know the int- introducing this thing and it's mostly not about this uh, I don't think there's anything about the story other than he's saying it's good yeah um, but he is right in that she is very effortless in her prose and it's beautiful to read and and then if you look at the opening sentence um, it fits the theme that we haven't really talked about which I think is really the most interesting thing to me um, and that is I'll just read it. It says, Two pieces of yesterday were in Captain Davison's mind when he woke, and he lay looking at them in the darkness for a while. Um, So the two pieces of yesterday, we're going to get the two facts about what happened yesterday. One, the shipload of women had arrived. Mm -hmm. And then two, um, the the crop failure, right? Uh, On Dump Island, yeah. Uh, how, uh. how their uh, the massive erosion, complete wipeout, complete crop failure, right? And then mm. he he's oh well, Dump Island sucks, but don't worry, we'll get we'll tame this island, this planet. 
Um, and then it goes back to thinking about the uh, smiling, jiggling line of little figures, right? Box of, box of bad old <laughs> little figures, which, which yeah. is a nice bit of nice bit of prose there from. Le yeah, Brown. she's That's she's fun. very good yes. at writing, and it, yeah. it feels effort effortless. Um, but I was thinking, like, Mice, you were on, weren't you, for our show on? Maybe you weren't. For our show on the last Ursula Le Guin, what was it? No, I have never done a, a show with a, about featuring oh. her work. Oh, it was it was Marissa and Paul. Uh, we did um, the oh, what's it called? It was, or. But, we, or. We, we, oh, we, yeah, we, we we did Lathe of Heaven. The Lathe of Heaven. That's right. Oh. Which is set in Portland, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, if you notice the geography on New Tahiti, um, mm-hmm. the, most of the planet is is um, forest. Is no. Oh, Well, it's ocean, but the land yeah. is all forest. But there's almost yeah. no nothing but ocean, right? And yeah. the entire um, land, all five major land masses are all together in the northwest corner of the planet, which is pretty funny. <laughs> How can you have a northwest corner if there's only one <laughs> region, right? You can have a north. Well, I noticed that too. Yeah, just like I, that's that's completely arbitrary as to what you where I mean, the west could, is, yeah. Where the west is or even where the north is. I mean, you could No, you could you label it by the pole, you know, the yeah, but magnetic you could, pole. You could just you can decide which pole is north and which is south arbitrarily. I suppose. I suppose. Hmm. The the important part though is that it's in the northwest corner, um, and all the trees—they're not the kinds of trees uh, Misa was just experiencing, right? No, no, they were not. They're the kind of trees that you see in Portland, right? So you get oh yeah, that's all true. All kinds of jungle, but it's it's basically not—it's rainforest. Like it's it, it's temperate rainforest like the Pacific Northwest. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. It's kind of kind of the jungle we have here, which is, uh, yeah, it's it can be very humid, but uh, things don't start growing on your purse. <laughs> <laughs> your computer still works as long as yeah, you're not out in the jungle here. using it. Yeah. <laughs> so, why so why don't you tell the readers where you've been? Oh, I was in Costa Rica for three weeks where where yeah, mold was growing on my purse after one week and my bed sheets were wet after at always, at all times. And and I have a question for you. How long does it take to, to dry your clothes on uh, the clothesline in the rainforest? Never. That's yeah. right. It's a great question. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's a so what? What's the point of the clothesline? Just to show off your clothes. Because there was I guess. the only way to clo- no, there were no dryers. That was the point of the clothes. Yeah, and there is no point. You might as well just go naked and get and just be a, a walking like target for everything that's going <laughs> to attack you and eat you because yeah, everything is always wet. I've never been to the tropics. I'm not sure I I could handle the tropics. But it's beautiful beyond. Beyond well, I, I love the picture you sent. Yeah, I know. I yeah, know. like, and it's just like, just so much. It's just like life expressing itself in in every way, in every corner. Like sound wise, the decibel wise, you there was a, there was like rivers with rapids that were 
you know, that's what you heard. That was like the baseline. And then there was bugs and, and birds and frogs. And like, it's just like everywhere you go, the smells, the sights, the sounds, you're, you can't, you're confronted and embraced and, and accosted by this life at all times. It's amazing. It sounds exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and exhausting and wet. Yeah. I, I It's, I, I've thought about many times, I've been to Hawaii and I find it to be a wonderful place, but it is, it is, uh, you know, you, you go outside and the, you don't need a shower because when it rains, it's warm, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's beautiful. Um, but it's also, it's a lot more, um, it's mo- a lot more alive. The farther, farther That's north it. you go, the more tame becomes the life. And you really know this because of the insects, right? Mm-hmm. So we do have, you know, in, in interior northern British Columbia, we have lots of mosquitoes, but it's only in the in the summer, right? The rest of the year, yeah. there's almost no insect life. That insects are sort of the, the the measure of how much life is going on because, you know, you, you if you're walking the tundra, there's not a lot of trees. There's some moss. There's some animals come by some mosquitoes in the summer but then the rest of the year it's it's cold it's frozen there's not much going on it's kind of safe from those horrible insects um <laughs> we don't have a lot of insects in this story which makes me no. think it's much it, it is much more of a north northwestern north america than it is yeah um, and yeah the only the animal we heard about was was the deer too we didn't hear we didn't hear that's right about much. Yeah, they, there's the beautiful giant red deer and and the creatures. There's fish that are mentioned, um, but we don't even get like squirrels and stuff. No. And it's interesting because it it feels very dense, so it wouldn't be hard to throw that in, but it doesn't fit. There's you can sort of feel how she she's got uh oh she calls it her boss, right? Um, saying this is what this is the kind of story you're telling. It doesn't really fit with the the Vietnam War analogy. It, it, it no. does. I want to I want to read something real quick. Yeah, go for about, it. To, to, to go to go explain what kind of ter- what kind of uh, ecological terrain we have here. It had been done before. That was a queer thing, and the proof actually that New Tahiti was intended for humans to take over. All the stuff here had come from Earth about a million years ago, and the evolution had followed so close a path that they recognized things at once. Pine, oak, walnut, chestnut, fir, holly, apple, ash, deer, bird, mouse, cat, squirrel, monkey. Oh, right. So, yeah, so, so, yeah, it, yeah in, in, her, in, her, in her Hainish verse or Hainish cinematic universe, Earth and lots of other plants got... But, colonized millions of years ago but, but that, so that line that you just read didn't that come from davidson though that, that came from that, davidson but he said a million years ago but in another part of the book it said that this planet was seated at the same time as earth that's right right oh yes exactly. so, so what he just said is is incorrect that's his no 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 what he no he, he's he's absolutely he's absolutely I mean, right it's right but not from not from earth uh, yeah, well, and not a million years. I, I, I mean, there was, there was, there was basically seeding of this yeah, part yeah, of the galaxy by the Hainich yeah. a couple million years ago. That's why 
there are Earth species, Earth-like species on this planet, and why the the local inhabitants are hominids, even if they're not humans. Yeah, but but you notice all those names of trees I gave you mm-hmm. are all temperate, not tropical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I I'm I'm uh, he is an unreliable narrator, but <laughs> I think you can rely on a lot of the things he says. Um, like what kind of trees there are because they're cutting them down. Oh right? no, no, I wasn't disputing any of that. I was, I was just about because because the other things he says are so wrong. Like because he, he doesn't believe this whole. He he thinks it's a conspiracy, the the yeah. whole Hamish thing. So like he he's got it right, but he's got it wrong too. I think. Yep. Um, I I just want to read past where Paul stopped. I think here this is on page thirty six of the text. Uh, the humanoids. Uh, on Hain Devant, of course, claimed they'd done it at the same time they colonized Earth. But if you'd listen to those ETs, <laughs> you'd find they claimed to have settled every planet in the galaxy and invented everything from sex to thumbtacks. The theories <laughs> about Atlantis were a lot more realistic, and this might well be lost, uh, um, be a lost Atlantean colony. But the humans had died out, and the nearest thing had developed from the monkey line to replace them was a creechy. Um, we, I don't think we ever learn why they're called creechies, but it's like, that, it's their yeah, version that, of that, gook, right? It's the yeah, insult basically. word that's not used by the Haynes or anyone else except other than yeah. the <laughs> army guys, right? A I meter read tall, somewhere, oh, sorry. Uh, I read somewhere cr- creatures, creechies. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, that's that good. makes sense. Um, a meter tall and covered with green fur. As ETs, they they were about standard, but as men, they were a bust. They couldn't, just couldn't, they just hadn't made it. Give them another million years, maybe, but the conquistadors had arrived first. Evolution moved now not at the pace of a random mutation once a millennium, but with the speed of the starships of the Terran fleet. And then I want to read this next section, even though it feels like it's not going. Um... It, I, I just really like how much we see from Davidson's point of view. He's he's a super asshole, um, yep. but there's something going on here. So he's talking about <clears throat> he's talking he's talking about not being able to get the creatures to work and how come you can do it and all that stuff. But I'm just gonna read past that section and and then listen to this little aside that I think is terrific. Sure, what's eating you, okay? The little bastards. They leaned their backsides on a split rail fence. So again, that's something you see in uh, the Oregon Territory, not something you see in... Yeah, Western U.S. Yeah, right. This uh, leaned their backsides on a split rail fence. Davidson lit his first reefer of the day, something else you get in Portland. Sunlight smoked, <laughs> sunlight smoked slanted warm across the air. The forest behind camp, a quarter-mile-wide uncut strip, was full of the faint, ceaseless crackling, chuckling, stirring, whirring, silvery noises that woods in the morning are full of. It might have been Idaho in 1950, this clearing, or Kentucky in 1830, or Gaul in 50 B.C. Mm-hmm. To wet, said a little, uh, said a distant bird. And then they have this conversation about how to deal with the creatures. And I really like what is undeveloped and we haven't really talked about yet in this story that makes me think it's so connected to the lathe of heaven. She's still thinking about it. 
Um, the way he says, you know, you can't beat them, they, they don't feel pain. It doesn't work. You can't threaten mm-hmm. them um, because they just submit, right? Um, so how to, how to deal with them? He says, round up the ringleaders and threaten to give them hallies, hallucinogens. Yeah. And why would that upset him? I don't know. just does, right? And then when we switch over and we start seeing things from Selver's point of view, uh, we get some sort of idea as to why Hallie's would be a bad thing. But it's never explicitly explained, is it? I, I, no, I think it may be in that it just makes them, they lose control because they have such control of their dreams and and I think it was a, that that made them lose the control, like the like the humans. Like I think that's implied, yeah, effect. right? Yeah, it's implied. Yeah. Well, yeah, because they because the because they talk about oh yeah, the, the humans can only dream if they poison themselves, so they mm-hmm. they consider the hallucinogens a poison. There, therefore. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really interesting because they have they have this built up culture that's we have access to through Selvers conversations. Um, and we also get sort of oblique glimpses at it through uh, Lyubov and uh, Davidson. But uh, if, I, I guess, um, I see you weren't here for the Lathe of Heaven show, but that's a book about a guy named Orr, who also, there's a guy named Orr in this book. Yeah, there's another Orr. Um, who has this problem, whenever he goes to, sleep he dreams and the world changes oh cool it's really cool and that's what happens here too right he's a powerful dreamer who's training silver is who's training to dream right and they don't according to davidson which i I don't think we can trust completely they never sleep right they just stare into the fire or stare off into the distance Crouching. They have a broken. They have a broken sleep cycle. They don't have a single sleep night like we do. They have a couple of couple of broken yeah times when they uh, rest. Yeah, so and they, they basically catnap their way through life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they dream uh, very actively. It's sort of their culture rather than technological, yeah. you know, building um, uh, forges and stuff. They're, uh, and we, you know, using wheels and making helicopters and laser guns and all that stuff. Their, their whole f- culture seems focused on, on dreaming, at least mm-hmm. the male culture. And I, I think, again, this is really the good news about, um, reading Ursula Le Guin is she's very, um, focused on not focusing on one thing. So she doesn't have every creature is you know, going to develop his, his dreaming skill. It's a, it's a kind of, I guess it's never said in the text, but these are the, um, what are they? Witch doctors, right? Of their world. The, the dreamers. Yeah. When he goes to the, when Selver goes and he says his story. He goes to, to the men's lodge. Yeah. That's right. And, yeah. he, and he says, Oh, you, you, when you came in here, you, you said I was the great dreamer and our Lord dreamer. And you're right. <laughs> how are how? Tell me about your dream, Silver. <laughs> and he and he says, you know, can you do this? Can you do that? And he says, well, you know, I'm not perfect on this. And he says, I see, I see. And then he he does this thing 
that's uh, really interesting. Um, and we don't see it before he does it, right? We don't know that he's going to do it. But he kills all the guys at Smith Camp. And mm-hmm. this is a thing that's never happened before, right? That the creatures have mm-hmm. killed other creatures uh, who aren't, you know, literally insane. Yeah, but, insane. but he, he he doesn't do that before he beats up on uh, Davidson. Like it's it's there's a stepping stone first. Right, but that happens in the in the pre-story, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Right, like we find out about. So when when Smith goes off, uh, sorry, Davidson goes off from Smith Camp to Central City. Um, he, he spends a hot afternoon or whatever with the with um, two of the hookers or prostitutes that are brought in on this ship with 221 other women or 220 other women. Um, th- then he's coming back on the helicopter and there's a fire and he doesn't think that that it could have been. He, it has to have been aliens, right? Aliens came. Um, from another planet and attacked us or maybe from some guy when from another camp some other soldier went spla (laughs) la um and attacked our men right and he can't even consider that the creatures had done it Mm -hmm. and yeah the the creatures are nice and peace loving how could they how could they be to blame yeah. And, and so this new, this new, they call him a god because he's come up with this kind of Promethean technology, which is the concept of killing your your fellow human. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, I, I, I mean, concepts and ideas <laughs> as weapons is something that Le Guin likes to use. Other authors That's have done as well. Jack, point, yeah. Jack, Jack Vance has used it, for example. So it's 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 a powerful it's a powerful idea that yeah. You're basically cha- changing a culture and by therefore weaponizing a culture by 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 means of ideas. Yeah, it uh, there was a there was an interesting section, w- which w- it said she said, but um, had he learned to kill his fellow men among his own dreams of outrage and bereavement, or from the undreamed of actions of the strangers, was he speaking his own language or was he speaking Captain Davidson's? That which seemed to rise from the root of his own suffering and express his own change being might in fact be an infection, a foreign plague, which would not make a new people of his race, but would destroy them. Mm. But that, that, that's an interesting question. You know, was it was it the his his anger at at Davidson that first got him so angry that he could do this and then and then um, bring make share this with his other people, with his people that you know, convince them to do this? Or was it? the seeping in of, of human like disease. Yeah. In fact, infect, affecting their mental space. Yeah. And infecting their, like infecting their dreams, aside from what they're doing physically. Right. 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 A, a psychological psionic sort of like mm-hmm. tampering of their, of their newosphere. Right. Exactly. And it's interesting because that, that um, the, the physical, changes that they're making to the land right where they're cutting cutting down all the trees and then and then it because it's a a rain coast rainforest all this rain comes down and washes all the topsoil away and the crops are destroyed right it's it's a physical change to the to the landscape but actually there are hints that the same thing is happening to um to Davidson, right? He talks about how 
yeah. how if if you spend too much time looking in the forest, you your thinking gets all screwed up, um, mm-hmm. like a creature's thinking, right? Yeah. Yeah, see, but that's the thing about Davidson. He was, the way he was talking, the humans that were with him were starting to go creature like they were starting to dream more and become lethargic. But I couldn't tell if they really were. Yeah, because of the way it was, it's told his, from his point of view, it's very yeah. hard to know, right? But yeah. that's that's kind of my, uh, why I was seeing them not as military guys. Even though they're flying around in helicopters, I was thinking, these are more like just guys working for a company. And obviously the word company can be used by military, but like just helicopter logging, which is something that you do in, in, in these parts, right? And, and when they're in the helicopter on the second time they burn the camp, uh, on the second burn, um, they're talking like, well, we could go here, we could go there, right? And, and that's not the way military people talk. They take orders, they follow them. But by that point in the story... They've been living there so long um, that they're they're kind of loose. They're not military-ish. They they sleep in barracks, but you know that's how lumberjacks live too. They right. they're flapjacks. <laughs> they chop down trees and they work all day. <laughs> sometimes wear high heels. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. <laughs> There's some. Um, there's a kind of um, looseness to the military that uh, even Davidson is is feeling, and you know the way he he he's a captain, but nobody calls him captain, right? Mm-hmm. Except when um, they're having that that there's a whole conversation. Um, he says, "You call me captain to the creature, right?" <laughs> Which is yeah. Uh, and then the creature says, "You call me cra- you, you, uh, That's fine. You can call Colonel. me captain. It's too. Colonel. Colonel. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's it's um, it's interesting because that that the whole interaction between the army and the uh, the creatures in their negotiations, all that stuff, is is very interesting. But there's a whole section in here, and Paul, you point out. Um, this is where we first see uh, the um, a- anagram for lesbian. What's it called? Ansible. The Ansible, Ansible. Um, b- get a full description of how the tech is supposed to work. And then what do they do? They smash it. Right? It, it's almost as Ursula Le Guin is pointing out um, in the story, there's two different directions she wants to pull the story. And there's this this interaction from the um they feel like they're almost the un you know Mm -hmm. these guys we're not really your bosses but you should do what 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 your bosses say and they're on the end of of this radio and so they they smash the radio and then just proceed to continue in the their plan to what colonize this planet Mm mm-hmm it's um it's it's interesting. Uh, I think she's talking about you know place in a lot large way how a, a place affects you. Right? Mm-hmm. You're a different person mm-hmm. Misa when you go to uh, uh, Central America. Yeah. Right? You you have to live uh, w- with your person in a different way and your purse too. You go native. 
you you kind of have to. Although, yeah. I mean, I was thinking there's a really good book by Jared Diamond called Collapse. Have you guys heard of this book? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you read about it. how civilizations collapse, and he talks about Easter Island and a couple other situations. Yeah, where he talks about, about the a lot of places. The yeah. Greenland is really interesting. The story of Greenland. So, Greenland during a certain period was was quite green. <laughs> That's what they were calling it. <laughs> Dur- yeah, yeah, Dur- during the medieval warm period, right. which is when the, when the Vikings first colonized it. Right, and they show up and they s- start farming it just like they do uh, Sweden and Norway and Denmark, right? Um, but the natives who live there are not adopting their ways. And after a couple hundred years, the Vikings are gone. Not because... Um, you know, the natives pushed them out, but rather because their ways were not actually suitable for that place. Not when the climate was on such a, a, a border of, you know, a warm period is not an, it's, it's like, you know, thinking you can live in a tent because every, every day it feels like summer. Well, guess what? Right. Winter's coming, right? You can't <laughs> live in a tent in the winter. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah, work. And, and, and they refused I'm reading, remembering from the book, the Vikings refused to adopt the ways of the Inuit. That's they right. didn't want to. They didn't want to to, to use the the tried and true methods that the, the locals had done, and so they died out. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like when we go to um, uh, Thailand or something, and you go to the hotel and you eat the hotel food, um, and you drink the hotel water, and you go out and, during the day, you tour the the sites. Um, that's not actually living in that place. It's right? nothing. No. The no. Hilton is not Thailand. Right. right. Um, yep. Because if you're living in Thailand, you would be living like the natives do, and you wouldn't be able to drink the water and eat the food without adapting, which is basically becoming sick <laughs> until yeah. you are adapted to it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that uh, it's very interesting because that's sort of one of the themes that's going on in this book. And then these guys show up and they give a lecture about what you should do and how to use this radio. And then they they sort of reject the whole that whole part of the plot is just smashed with the radio. I'm trying to remember who smashed it. It was it was Selvers people that smashed it in their attack, right? No, it wasn't Davidson. No, was no. it Davidson? It was Davidson. Oh, okay. So uh, the smash shows up a couple of times. One is uh, Selver gets smashed, smashed in the face, right? Um, yeah. Uh, oh, I guess it wasn't smashed, but they. they you got it, Paul. Um. With the phony Ansible, which was no loss. No, that's not quite. Let me uh, search again. That was a little late. They, the, they, the, they, they believe. Lots that of stuff. Yeah, lots of stuff gets mad. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. They believe that the radio was transmitting false information, right? Yeah, they, no, I know he did. Right. <laughs> yeah, he they did. did. Yeah. And then uh, there, there was a nice line in there. Um, uh, reports from home meant something. Now, this Ansible, this machina ex machina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? yeah. Um, yeah. A function to prevent all comfortable old colonial autonomy and make you answerable within your own lifetime for what you did. 
There was yeah. no no more 54-year margin for error. Policy was no longer static. A decision by the League of Worlds, like the League of Nations, right, mm-hmm. might now lead overnight to the colonies being limited to one land or forbidden to cut down trees or encouraged to kill natives. No telling. How the League worked or what sort of policies it was developing could not yet be guessed from the flat directives of the administration. Yeah. Um, and that not you know that's the thing about a colony if you're cut off uh from information every 27 years is is how you get your information that's that's not really feasible right america can yeah the united states can administer its empire because it can fly to any Mm -hmm. place in the world within 24 hours right it's very easy to administer an empire where you can but even across the the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean, for ships, was it was hard to administer colonies. It's why there was a revolution in the United States, why there was a re- rebellions in Canada, and and all that stuff. It's very hard to run things from very far away. In in a very small way, this reminded me a little bit of the when we did the uh, the Never Ending War. Oh, uh, the Forever War. The Forever War. The Forever mm. War, in the in that um, just in that the 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 creatures ended up re- rebelling and like fighting back, and the the time distances, mm-hmm. be, you know, in with communication, um, back and forth. Yeah. So those those women who are on the spaceship, they they're not twenty seven years older from when they left, right? Um, no, because, because the ships are going near the speed of light, right. so yeah, they don't age that much. Well, it's right. it's, it's described, I think, in the first page as NAFAL or something like that. Oh, yeah, NAFAL. Mm-hmm. So I, I took um, L would be the light um, near something. I, I assumed it, it. I don't think it's ever explained in the text, but uh, near light speed is what I would getting. So so. The, they took off. Maybe they're in space for what feels like a month or something, and then they arrive. <clears throat> but it takes 27 years to send stuff there. I I'm not sure how feasible it is to grow um, wood on another planet and ship it back through space. Um, <laughs> the the economics. Well, it's, of it's, it. a, well, it's it's considered it's basically considered a precious resource. So I guess. I I, I mean yeah I mean you're shipping tons of. I mean, I don't think they're building houses with it, but I'm thinking maybe like small works of art it's luxury. and stuff. It's luxury. As yeah, yeah, it's like I mean, having having a wooden statue is probably a big deal because there's no wood left on the earth. So, so if you can bring back materials, to carve it. We don't get a ton of um, picture of what the earth is like, but there's one sequence in here that's pretty good. Um, um, I assume it was um, Lubov or Davidson. <laughs> Um, who was talking about when he was a kid in Chicago and uh, yeah. the rats came out of the ground. Um, yeah, yeah, that was that was Davidson. That was Davidson. Davidson, He, yeah. he was talking so about a nightmare. It's basically, it's, I guess that's right when he sees all the creatures coming out of the, out of the ground, right? Yeah. Um, and that's pretty, uh, that's a powerful image. Um, and this also that that also makes me think of um, of some of the things that happened in the Vietnam War with you know uh, the Tet Offensive or something like that where you've got 
these fire bases all scattered all over Vietnam, suddenly being overrun by thousands of North Vietnamese army regulars who have been waiting, you know, surrounding and readying themselves for this massive offensive that's going to happen so that nobody can, you know, come to the rescue at one particular firebase because they're all under attack at the same time. And uh, it's, it's, it's very powerful. And if you think of it like, if you're thinking who the creatures are, um, it's the Vietnamese people, right? Obviously. But if what are they fighting for? Basically, get out of here. <laughs> Stop it. Um, yeah. And the deforestation that's happening, as an analogy, is actually you know what they were doing with the defoliant that they're spraying all over to try and stop the resupply of of Viet Cong and Viet uh, and VA. So they're flying airplanes over massive swaths of, of the Vietnamese uh, landscape and spraying Agent Orange and a bunch of other agents that kill the trees, right? Kill all the plant life so that they can be seen from regular airplanes and helicopters so they can drop bombs on them the 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 idea in this story is that they're they're chopping down the trees to make wood lumber for earth but also they're going to turn it into a colony and start growing potatoes and whatever else things that they would right but mm-hmm. um it, it's at the end of the story i don't get the sense that the humans could ever have made a real go of it here under that plan, right? The I think it just rains too much. It's yeah, it, yeah calling it New Tahiti, what? which makes you think it's hot, but I think it's just it's just a a rainforest that is mm-hmm. under constant rain, and it wouldn't it just wouldn't work. Yeah, well, once you destroy the trees, yeah, the forest it, the the topsoil washes away and it becomes unformable. Kind of reminds me of. In a, in, a, in, a, in a slightly different way of what happened, what ha- what's happened in Brazil, where they've cleared rainforests ostensibly for farming, and it turned out to be absolutely worthless crop cropland. Yeah. Oops. Surprise. Well, Not such a great idea. Yeah, I, I got the sense that they're just going to turn it into another dead earth. Yeah. Really. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, earth well, sounds like a pretty terrible place. Well, will will we catch the? The Earth Disease Two to that that reminds me of um, right. the '90s computers game Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri, mm. where where Earth is dying. They launch a colony ship. It lands on a planet around Alpha Centauri, and at one point you commu- start communicating with the kind of intelligence that's running the planet, and the planet basically asks you, "Are you going to destroy this planet too?" Mm-hmm. And this it was a really poignant sort of idea, and I think yeah. The creators of that game were definitely thinking of stories like this one. And one thing I wanted to mention, in, in, in the canon of Ursula K. Le Guin, this is actually a minor story. This is not The Left-Handed Darkness or The Dispossessed. This one sometimes gets a little short shrift compared to her big novels, which I think mm. is kind of a shame. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. It know, makes I, me I, I those like other it. ones, though, too. Yeah, I, I think this is actually one of her best, though, because I've read... Is I've it? Read, yeah. Um, I've read Left Hand of Darkness. I actually like this better. I think Lathe of Heaven is her best of what I... I haven't read Tombs of Atuan in the, any of the... Um, World Canyon's World. Yeah, I haven't read that one. I haven't read the fantasy stuff that she did. 
that's that, that well yeah that's quasi fantasy science fiction ish yeah yeah so um but and you yeah. haven't read any Earthsea I- uh, yeah no I haven't read any Earthsea stuff but um I well I think I have but only in like short fiction no no uh, novel length stuff but uh, um I'm trying to find it I I'm having trouble uh, finding it in here oh there it is Sornal was that was that what this is yeah there's this uh, so one of the things that happens when you're reading it from the beginning is you, you, you're davidson's saying you know we cut down this stuff right and then selver says and they cut down our city i'm like city yeah where's the city? city um and then they i think davidson says warrens right right which, which is for yeah, rabbits he says that all the time. yeah right um now they had names um and one of them i couldn't find i can't find it because i can't I, I was listening to the audiobook and i don't know how to spell it but it almost sounded like the word sarnath and sarnath is a famous story or it's famous well it's, it's, it's a real place too but um there's a story by lovecraft um that's very interesting um yeah so there's a place in india called sarnath um and it's uh you know it's it's not important today but at one point it was um it's where buddha first uh taught the dharma the dhamma right um so it's got some things you would visit if you're in that region of india but it's not well known outside of that but um i'm thinking um the story i'm thinking of is called the doom that came to sarnath um which is a story I I think is really fascinating. Um, it's in the dream cycle, which is you know Lovecraft's non-main horror things. It's 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 sort of his other thing. And um, I'll just read the uh, Wikipedia plot. Uh, according to the tale, which more than ten thousand years ago, a race of shepherd people colonized the banks of the river I A I, in a land called Menar forming the cities of Thra, Ilarnek, and Kadatharon. That's um, confused with Karnak, Kadath. Right, which <laughs> rose to great intellectual and mercantile prowess. Craving more land, a group of people, hardy, hardy people, migrated to the shores of the lonely vast lake near the heart of Menar, founding the city of Sarnath. But the settlers were not alone. At the other side of the lake, there was an ancient gray stone city of Ib, inhabited by a queer race that had descended from the moon. Lovecraft described them as, quote, in hue as green as the lake and the mist that rise above it. They had bulging eyes, pouty flabby lips, and curious ears, and were without voices. These beings worshipped a strange god known as Bokrug, the great water lizard, although it was more uh, their physical form that caused the people of Sarnath to despise them. The citizens of Sarnath were killed, killed all the creatures inhabiting Ib, destroying the city and took the idol as a tro- the the city of Ib's idol as a trophy, placing it in Sarnath's main temple. Uh, the next night, the idol vanished under mysterious circumstances, and the uh, high priest is found murdered. Before dying, he scrawled a single word onto an empty altar: "Doom." Okay. And <laughs> centuries later, um. There's a. I'll just read. Keep reading here. Nobles from distant cities were invited to feast in honor of Ib's destruction. That night, however, the revelry was disrupted by strange lights over the lake, heavy greenish mists, 
that the tidal marker, the granite pillar of Acurion, was mostly submerged. Soon many visitors fled men by fear. After this, some of the survivors reported seeing a long, the long-dead inhabitants of Ib peering from the windows of the city towers instead of the king and his retinue, while the others refused to exactly say what they had seen. Those who saw returned saw nothing of those unlucky enough to be left behind, only empty marsh, many water lizards, and most disturbingly, the missing idol. Ever since then, Bokrog remained a chief god of the land of Benar. So, uh, this kind of summary just basically says some human colonists come in, they, they kill the native population, destroy their city, and take their, their idol. And then, uh, many centuries later, um, the city is destroyed, and the visitors who are coming in to celebrate uh, with the people, their anniversary or whatever it is, uh, see the inhabitants of Sarnath looking like the people of Ib. Um, hmm. It's kind of a, you know, what comes around goes around kind of story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, what's really interesting about it is um, it, it's really subject to interpretation. And one one uh, version of the story um, is illustrated by Jason Thompson, a really great uh, Lovecraft uh, artist, comic book artist. He's done a bunch of stuff. But in that story, he, he has to visualize a lot of the things that are happening. And one of the things he's doing, is, I think, is his interpretation is that the people um, are literally becoming the thing that they destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what we have in here, right? Is that the the people um, of the plant, the natives of the of the creatures, are becoming like the humans. Yeah. And he, they, they, they try and keep their own systems going, right? When one of us goes crazy, we put them on an island. Yeah. Yep. And that's what they do. But they put the guy on Dump Island, which is has no crops, right? He's yeah, but but they there. said they're gonna feed them. So. Yeah, they're right. gonna keep them alive. Right, but but I, I, but, yeah. but it's but it's a isolation from the from the social, mental, and physical body politic. It's it's yeah. it's it's solitary confinement basically. Okay, the, I had an out for this whole horrible yeah creatures turning into humans mm-hmm. thing that they did. So you know how uh, so so Selver says I'm a god, you are a god to Davidson. Mm-hmm. And so now Davidson brings murder and and killing each other to them, but right. but Selver keeps him alive, and and so Selver says Selver calls himself and God's uh, Davidson God's interpreters, so they bring a new way of being, new experiences, new thoughts of their world. But the thing is, so so Selver brings it to all of them. Davidson is alone now; he can't bring it to anybody else. You he, Selver even says you must carry this alone. Mm-hmm. But he put him on this island alone. Where now at this point all Davidson's doing is dreaming, right? He's gone insane and, and he doesn't he can't distinguish between reality and, and life anymore. He's been right. like he had that rat dream, he can't tell how long he's been lying down, like he's totally gone. He's gone native and he's only dreaming. So I was thinking that maybe by leaving him alone on this island in dream state from now on, maybe he can bring life back. Like hmm. that's Selver's way of bringing, like you know, a, a, a back door. Maybe yeah, we can. That's back. nice. 
In fact, yeah, there's, like there's evidence for that. I think he says maybe in 20, 30 years, you wouldn't even know the forest had been destroyed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. After I'm gone, Davidson's gone, and other, uh, Lubov is gone. And doesn't um, doesn't uh, Silver say at some point, um, what will happen when I die? Will the mm-hmm. kit? Will this gift of killing? <laughs> uh, be uh, would die with me. He he asks. He, that's the, that's his big worry and his big question. And Lubov dies, um, but then at the end, I'll just read the last three paragraphs here or four paragraphs, whatever. Uh, Lumpenin laid his long hand on Selver's hand so quickly and gently that Selver accepted the touch as if the hand were not a stranger's. That's the other thing that goes on in the story. They're always touching each other. Right. Um, and the humans say that's just because they're having sex all the time, but uh, but apparently that's not the only thing about no, it, right? No, it's it's a cultural way of of uh, conveying information and feelings. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, then this whole there's a whole thing about singing too, which is really yeah. interesting because Davidson doesn't ever really see it as singing ever, right? Right. They, 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 right. They have. Well, I mean, you, they they talk about in the culture like how you have resolve conflicts is basically you sing and they sing and the best singer basically submits the other which rem- which ties in Jesse to me to the first book we ever did together on SF audio football oh. where, where where the don't understand the humans won't submit properly right. and in this book the humans don't submit properly to the Athabascans because they can't sing because they right. don't understand it. so here we're tying in the latest book I read up for this podcast and the first book I read for this podcast. <laughs> Go me. <laughs> Go Paul. <laughs> I'm going to keep reading here. Uh, Silver accepted the touch as if the hand were not a stranger's. The green gold shadows of the ash leaves flickered over them. But you must not pretend to have reasons to kill one another. Murder has no reason, Lepanon said, his face as anxious and sad as Luyubov's uh, face. We shall go. Within two days we shall be gone, all of us. Forever. The forest of Athshi will be as they were before. Lubov came out of the shadows of Selver's mind and said, I shall be here. Lubov will be here, Selver said, and Davidson will be here. Both of them. Maybe after I die, people will be as they were before I was born and before you came. But I do not think they will. That's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the story. Yeah. So what's going to happen? Um, the, 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 the planet's not ever mentioned again in any of the Hainish stories, so we don't know. Yeah. It, she, 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 as far as I know, maybe there's a maybe there's a Hainish story which references it that I've uh, missed in, Le Guin, yeah. in reading Le Guin, but I don't think so. I don't think... I don't think we ever find out whatever whatever happens to. I think it'd be a mistake the, to 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 mention it ever again, right? Probably. Um, but what's interesting is is um this is this is why I like this this story uh, as opposed to the dispossessed or um or uh, left hand darkness, which are also good stories. Um, but this one has that same thing that that um the lathe of heaven does, which is a kind of uh, it's sort of the interest in dreams and what they mean <laughs> and reality. Uh, there's um, 
there's a I saw some tweet that I sent to my friend Scott you know everybody knows Scott um, <laughs> um, it was somebody saying something really stupid about how simple truth was or something and you know there's a lot of this in the news uh, of late just because the president is famous for lying right um, and a lot of people uh, make note of that but years and years and years ago uh, I had a conversation with Scott about what truth was, and he seemed to think it was really simple too. <laughs> and now everybody's like, no, no, there's, you know, it's, it's, so it's true. What truth is is in the news, but it's not simple because if we knew what everything was, uh, there wouldn't be any debates or you know lies or, any, but also just errors. We make perception errors, and um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what our relationship with dreams is, but I know that most people don't think they have much of one. And I'm much more interested in thinking about what, what they are and what even what the word dream means in this in this context. Mm-hmm, it's more too. like a technology in this story than it is um, anything else. And, and the opening, which is so interesting to me, is with the guy dreaming the previous day's information and to me that means it's almost possible that none of that happened before he dreamed it up and we're reading a story i'll just read it again two pieces of yesterday were in captain davidson's mind when he woke well he he when i wake up i'm usually you have to be very sensitive to it right you have to sort of pay attention to it and not be distracted by other things but I remember my dreams whenever I wake up, but whether I choose to focus on them or not is usually based on whether there's something urgent going on. So this morning, um, I have to make sure I hit a certain time so I can do a podcast, so I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. But if, if I have a little bit more time, I can usually recall great detail. Like uh, earlier this week, there was a dream I had that was of great detail, and Every time we go to sleep, it's like we're rebooting, right? We're rebooting, and we don't know. I think about this all the time. I don't know that I didn't dream the world into existence in that dream because sometimes it's hard to see the difference between. Uh, so can I ask you this? Because yeah. this happens to me. Have you had dreams set in a relatively consistent alternate dream universe? Uh, yeah. Sure, sure. Because I, I have a bunch of – I have a – alternate new york city that i sometimes dream i'm in it's mm-hmm. not the quite the same layout i'm in different places but i know it's all the same not new york city that is new york city but it's not the layout that we know it is and it's like i so sometimes when i go to sleep it's like well am i am i going to go back to that new york city or am i going to go somewhere else this time and, yeah and i i think it's really important to think about this because m- most people i don't think they ever think about it but what is a book, a fiction book like this, if not a dream? Because it actually has no consequence, physical consequence in the world other than, you know, piling up in a bookstore. Well, um, you know, it can change. A, a book can change the world, don't you think? That's my point, is yeah. of course they can, right? So what, 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 what do they mean by dreams here is, well, um, I guess Karl uh, Marx... He really changed the world with a, a couple of books, right? Huh? Um, and uh, 
George Orwell has influenced the world profoundly. Yeah. And that is stuff taken from the world and then dreamed into existence in a set and written down. And then, you know, Ursula Le Guin's died, but her dreams are more real than she is now. Um, well, Philip K. Dick's dreams are even more real than he is now. Absolutely. That's my <laughs> point is, is that this is, this is a really interesting piece because I think that maybe the whole world of uh, the whatever this creature planet is called. What's it called? I was um, going to say uh, Navi, but that's not right. Athesian or Athesia. Yeah. Um, th- that whole planet was dreamed into existence by Captain Davidson. The beginning well, of the here, story. So this, so so it, okay. So Selver, he take or um, Lyubov takes uh, Selver as an EEG subject that he had first seen with. Um, with comprehension, the extraordinary impulse patterns of a brain entering a dream state, mm. neither sleeping nor awake, a condition which related to Terran sleeping, a Terran dreaming sleep as the Parthenon to a mud hut. The same thing, basically, but with the addition of uh, complexity, quality, and control. Mm-hmm. So, so like that's the thing, right? If you have the control to create this reality. Yeah, I, well, we haven't mentioned it either, but the um, the whole um, Aboriginal culture of New Zealand, uh, not New Zealand, uh, Australia, um, yeah. has a, a massive interest in the dream time. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard to uh, articulate in just a couple of words, but it, it it's some, something very real for people who are not uh, running around counting coins, right? <laughs> Yeah, um, well, it's sort of related to the because I was thinking of it as dream time and, and also like shared dreaming. The, mm-hmm. This planet, these people, they had a lot of like they all started dreaming the terrible dreams, and mm-hmm. they and they had to go to Selver to help them deal with it and make sense of it. And um, have you read stuff about how how trees communicate? Like they, they they've done studies on trees that communicate with each other mm-hmm. and and. And it, it was I was thinking about these trees communicating with each other and these creatures also um, through their dreams. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I don't re- remember anything in this story about the trees talking to each other. No, no, but but but, but certainly they the are, they consider themselves as the trees, yeah. right? Um, I I just was looking for something. I found this really. Uh, this is one of those words that I thought was really good. Uh, I'll just read this page 35. Davidson strode on through the settlement, morning sunlight in his eyes, the smell of sawn wood and wood smoke sweet on the warm air. Things looked pretty neat for a logging camp. The 200 men here had tamed a fair patch of wilderness in just three e-months. Smith Camp, a couple of big coroplast geodesics. 40 timber huts built by Creechy Labor, the sawmill, the burner, trailing a blue plume of logs and cut lumber uphill the airfield and the big prefab hangar hangar for helicopters and heavy machinery that was all but when they came here there had been nothing trees a dark huddle and jumble of tangle of trees endless meaningless a sluggish river overhung and choked by trees a few creechy warrens hidden among the trees some red deer hairy monkeys uh birds and trees Roots, bowls, branches, twigs, leaves, leaves overhead and underfoot and in your face and in your eyes. Endless leaves on endless trees. That's beautiful writing, but um, I want to go back to that word 
choroplast. Um, uh, it sounds like something like corrugated plastic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at the word itself, it also looks like corrupt, right? Um, and I just think of how how that is kind of like <laughs> the reason you don't bring a leather purse to <laughs> Costa Rica <laughs> is because it will be eaten by the yes. jungle, right? It, yes, it will. But coroplast won't be. It might be covered in moss, but it won't be eaten. Devoured, by the jungle. yeah. And it is like a kind of a permanent stain. There's a the beautiful thing about a forest is it eats everything, right? So that everything's new, always being recycled, and everything's being nude again. That's there's a line in the book that one of the one of the uh, women says the world is always new, however old its roots. Mm. Yeah, we don't we don't spend a lot of time with the creature women. It's no, but it's they seem to have a, a strong role in the society. Though. Yeah, yeah, they're basically running the politics. I mean, the reason yeah. why we're not get we don't get a point of view from them, but consider when 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 Silver goes back to goes to another community, he's just just he's just shunted off into the into the men's lodge, and the only reason why the women listen to him is because they think he's a god. Otherwise, he's just a He's just he's just a man, and men. Yeah. This is this is a female-led, mostly matriarchal society. Not completely. It's not completely gynarchal, but it's definitely the old women definitely run, rule the roost here, which is quite in contrast to the the almost all male colony, except for the women who are brought over basically as sex workers. Right? Yeah, well, no, only only twenty of them are sex workers. The rest are wives. Um, I want to I want to point out though at is the it, end, a few, but yes, yeah, they wanted to repopulate. Yeah. Um, at the end uh, of this whole story, there's the afterward, and it, it, it did strike me um, that she calls the boss a man. Um, he says, she says, what I wanted to write about was forests and dream. That is, I wanted to describe a certain ecology and play within it. But the boss wanted to talk about the destruction, and then he says he didn't want to play. He wanted to moralize, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it's she's got a boss, and he is a man, right? For this book, he was a man. Yeah, but in this, it's it's interesting because she she is really interested in gender, but she never. Um, uh, and in the intro. Um, Harlan, uh, this is the period of, you know, when uh, women are, uh, I don't know, taking more of assertiveness with their uh, role in society, I guess, is the idea. Uh, Feminism is the idea. And there's a line in there about Harlan Ellison saying, this is what, Ursula Le Guin is what feminists should be looking up to or something like that. And it's interesting because she she always is writing about men, but um, she's very interested in the role of gender, right? That that whole left hand of darkness is mm-hmm. is all yeah. about that. Um, and uh, it, it, there was a book a few years ago. I tried to do a, I did a show on. I think Paul, you're probably on that one. Um, what was it? Uh, it's got a lot of tea. <laughs> And uh, gender pronouns, oh, all oh, female. Yeah, oh, 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 yeah, are you uh, talking about the Anne Lecky book? Yeah, what's it called? Oh, oh, yeah, but 
I don't know. There's an Anne Leckie book we did, and uh, I, I was I was not super enthused by it because I didn't feel like right, ancillary was, justice. Duh. There you go, ancillary justice. I felt it was a bit too space opera, a bit too much kicking, and not enough um, ideas. Thinking, I know. Thinking about what's going on, and and when you read Left Hand of Darkness, that's all it's doing, right? Is it saying what what, what makes a gender role a gender role? Uh, yeah. What are we doing here? Here, um, the women are very much in the in the background. We we do have a, a one woman creature talking somewhere in the story, um, and I don't think the women humans ever get a word in the whole story. No, no, they don't. Um, but I think she really captures um, the. Two male characters, to two male human characters, incredibly well, um, and Silver to me feels like a like George Orr from um, he's he's from Lake of Heaven. Yeah, Lake of Heaven. He's because, a, because more he's assertive. Dream- yeah, but he's dreaming something new for 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 the natives. He's dreaming murder and revolution mm-hmm. into existence. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and. But it, 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 there is a feminist streak because what causes him ultimately to go down this path? Is it the ecological devastation? Is it the enslavement of the of the of the cocoa creatures? Is there is it their physical abuse? No, it's because his wife was raped yeah. and died. So yeah. in the in in the end, it's an act of violence against women that that changes their society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. There's there's something I think it's a woman it's I think it's one of the women that says this yeah, and, and yeah. I, I, near the end she says this is a new time for the world a bad time and you have suffered it all you have gone farthest and at the farthest at the end of the black path there grows the tree with tree capital tree mm-hmm. where the where the fruit ripens now you reach up silver and you gather it and the world changes wholly. When a man holds in his hand the fruit of that tree, whose roots are deeper than the forest, now, which which made me think of the seeding of the whole planet. When she says the roots are mm. deeper than the forest, mm-hmm. like this, it may be like the evolution has come around now to bring you here. Mm. See if you do any better. Wh- which is where it ends. Let's see if you do any better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh- I, I think that there's no evidence that the creatures aren't human. They're just, they've got a different culture. They're smaller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? They're green. Yeah. They're green-furred. They're smaller. They're human. They're human. Well, they have to be human because the, the humans don't consider them human, but they consider humans human. And once they learn, so if they can kill a human and they are humans, they can kill each other. Like if human, if they didn't think that humans were human, then killing one would make no difference or less difference to them. Mm-hmm. They are killing themselves essentially when they when they kill the cat. Yeah, the uh, w- the colonel. Remember the colonel Dong. Uh, it's Colonel Dong, which sounds to me like a Vietnamese name. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very. I, I think she's very interested. Uh, uh, Le Guin is very good at not being the. Um, I'm telling a, a, a story about Vietnam, in the same way that I guess uh, Forever War isn't really about Vietnam either. It right. just uses sort of experiences from that experience mm-hmm. to do its job, but um, it, it's every per, every kind of human is represented, right? 
on the planet other than women, really. But uh, there uh, was Uraf, right, is the word he uses. I was thinking like European African. That's what I thought too. Right, and then there was like um, uh, I think there was an Asian uh, mentioned. So they're they're all in this together. They're all in this destruction together. And then the colonel can't come out, right, because he's sick. Um, he says uh, he's ill. He cannot come out. Ill? What kind? Bowels. Water illness. Right? That's the thing I was talking about. It's like, you can't go out of the... If you want to experience Thailand, you can't just stay in the hotel. You have to <laughs> go out and get sick. Um, uh, eat the native foods. Otherwise, it is the tourist version of Thailand, right? That's right. When you go to the jungle, you get bit. That's right. It's just what happens. And... Uh, and then they have this conversation back and forth. What, what do you guys make of Selver's name? Because I was looking that up. I was trying to think about it's that. It's Self, monkey. right? Self. Yeah, se- Self. Self. Uh. Um. It's it. Is it selfish? Is that what's going on? Because he's doing something that was for him. It was for his wife, right? He was punishing. He was attacking not for his people, but for his wife. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's very subversive. That um, it's, I mean, there's a, a kind of attitude that the natives have, uh, the creatures have, is su- supposed to be kind of Buddhist, is what I was thinking at the beginning of the story. Where I, know, I, be- I believe Le Guin talks about being inspired by Taoist beliefs, actually. Yeah, that Taoist. makes sense. Okay, yeah. But the idea is, you know, you don't go around hitting people because it's bad. So, yeah. um, uh, the uh, one of the interesting things about, I don't know, how, I don't know enough about it to be an expert in it. I, there's lots of stuff I know lots about, but I don't know tons about this. But I do know a, t- a little bit about it. So you guys remember Tibet was taken over by China, right? Yep. And Tibet is supposed to be the land of Buddhists, right? <laughs> it's where everybody's Buddhist, right? Yeah. Um, well, no wonder it was so easy to take over Tibet, right? Because <laughs> they're not supposed to pick up arms and hit each other, right? They're just supposed to be nice to each other and live and let live and all that. Um, but it turns out that, you know, there were Buddhists who were, or at least Tibetans, who were resisting uh, with weapons against it. It didn't last, obviously, very long. Um, but shooting at your enemy is something that seems to come natural to uh, humans. And it's overcoming that uh, with all the traditions that they've got going here, the submission poses and all that stuff. Um, and and sort of the perception. I, I really like the way um, that, uh, I guess it's, um, let's see, uh, uh, Lubyov, he says, um, yeah. it did, were you in a particular position, or maybe it was, yeah, it was Lubio. Yeah, it was right? him. It was him. He's saying you were, were you in a particular position when they didn't kill you? And he said, "What are you talking about?" Right? And he well, was. He was looking up at him. He, he's, yeah, he was, yeah, he was lying on his back. It was. He was in a submission pose, right? Weird. Yeah. And this is, um, this is uh, often the problem of of people not quite in first contact, but in contact with natives, 
is the natives have some certain traditions, and if you don't conform to them, then they don't know what to do. And when you <laughs> are confronted by those things as a colonizer, um, you don't know how to deal with them because you only deal with your people in certain ways, right? You know, <laughs> well, there are yeah, ways they, of fighting wars. Yeah, and, and that goes the way back we to do them. me talking about football again and mm-hmm. how how the aliens how the aliens in football say when you sub- they, they expect that when you surrender, you surrender and you don't go back on that. And you wouldn't do things like, say, paint a surrender symbol on a weapon. You'd paint it on an ambulance. And so when the humans start breaking their surrenders and doing stuff like that, the aliens are all put out like, wait, but you're not doing this right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like it. I, I like it because it doesn't have answers. But it has yeah. a lot of situations lot, and questions. A lot, lot, lot of questions, not a lot of answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was another, there was one other thing that I wanted to say where um, Earth is, um, Terran man is clay and, uh, mm. and we, and they're, they're, they are trees. So right. I was thinking about the difference between Terra and trees where, where Earth is sort of rock, you know, and right. static. It doesn't Earth. change quickly. hard whereas trees have roots and they grow and they have branches and and they're more interconnected which um i I thought was interesting Mm -hmm. yeah it's it is very it's very well done it's not as rich as dune (laughs) working the same it's working the same pattern right as as it you know that's why there's comparisons to uh, to Avatar, right? Uh, right? There's lots of other stories Avatar is pulling from as well, but we have it in Star Wars. There's the desert planet, right? And that's sort of like not the desert planet of Dune. And then there's Waterworld, right? Which turns out it's Earth. Wow! Oh, <laughs> all that stuff. But um, the the jungle of New Tahiti is it's not as rich but the culture is pretty damn rich for an, it is. a short novel mm-hmm. yeah deceptively yeah it's it's very well done i i don't classify it you know on the same shelf as dune but it it's certainly a rung down um which is not a bad thing at all it's a pretty high rung yeah yeah that's yeah that's pretty high praiser jesse well, i i i she's I, a good I, writer I, I know. I, I the first time I read this way back when I found okay, this is good. I, I think I appreciated it a little more now that I was starting to tease out some of the more some of the other stuff she was doing rather than just oh yeah, colonize the colonizers get kicked off the planet. I I, I get now that I'm older as a reader, I get to see a little more of the subtlety of what she was doing, and this conversation has also helped bring all that out. So I appreciate us doing this podcast on it. Did you guys mm-hmm. hear the uh, audio drama from Vanishing Point? I did. What did you think of that? Uh, I thought that it was a, ru- a, a few rungs down. I, well, I was so interested. Well, it's it's only ninety minutes or it was, so. Yeah. Right? Uh, it's three episodes, um, and I think there are probably thirty-five minutes each or something. I don't know, something like that. that. But. Um, what I was interested in, it was so close to the dialogue from the book that I thought it was pretty good. The quality of the sound was not great, which, yeah. which is not good. 
Um, there was too much screaming in it. Well, that's actually in the book, right? It's just we don't see it. I guess. It I is. Guess. It's it's all straight from the book. That I think is very faithful, um, which is unusual. Um, they they had this. They had the creatures screaming. Yes. Well, that's their singing, right? <laughs> oh, because oh, because oh, it's, it's just, never oh. described in the book, right? Uh, other than um, Davidson says, yeah, he he made a weird noise, right? Yeah. Um, I uh, I wrote about it years ago. Word for world is forest. Um, let's see if I can bring it up. Uh, the world for world is no. The word for world is forest, which is a great I, title. I I, I I I once used that as a illusion that there was a there's a book by uh, actually now there are two in the series by Thoria Dyer that set in that's a fantasy set in a rainforest. And I decided to name to title the book review "The World for World is Rainforest." Mm. <laughs> I think because, I think people have played on that title. Yeah, it, it's just just like the title is just like begging for. Uh, but I for, bet the title is from something as well. I think she's probably pulling from something else. I don't know, but it's, it's got that nice cadence. But the, I want to read the um, uh, the. I guess it's the premise. I don't know who wrote this part. The seemingly simple natives of a world blanketed in forests resent the arrogance of human interlopers and the contempt they show for the local ecology. All the natives need is a leader strong enough and clever enough to match wits with their human exploiters. I think that that's a fair um, uh, back of the book description of what happens, but I don't feel it that way, right? No. Yeah. No, I wouldn't have said that. And then this is what I wrote about it. Easily embarrassed? Take heed. There's a stunning difference between the series and the OTR of the 1950s, old-time radio. Um, <laughs> that's the thing is, this CBC show was from 1989, so mm-hmm. it's quite a bit more modern, right? First, there's a spotlight in the evils of manifest destiny, social Darwinism, ecological strip mining, genocide, rape, miscegenation. Second, there's a complete absence of censorship. The word for world is for us contains sounds, urination, Concepts. Concepts. Oh no, not concepts. Hygienic homosexuality. And even more unthinkable. Language straight from the book. (laughs) That's what I like about reading. I did like that. I like reading about, uh, you know, books because there's no censorship. Uh, That's so, like, at the time I read this uh, story, hygienic homosexuality. What the hell is that? That was great. That was great. Um, it just shows that, yeah, sure, Davidson's a, uh, he's a, uh, you know, 20th century tough guy, but he's not against a good set of hygienic homosexuality, whatever that is. Is it like, Do they <laughs> hand out condoms or what? <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> yeah. So um, it's just a little touch that shows uh, she's way ahead of the curve. And I go back to that, um, to that, uh, what I was saying about about uh, the left hand of darkness is, it's that book is so ahead of its time that it feels way more futuristic than than the Anne Leckie book, because it it's dealing straight on head on with the issue of what what is a gender role, and how do you 
give a pronoun to a person who changes genders uh, halfway through the year and seemingly at will. Uh, hmm, interesting. There's a whole planet of this stuff, right? It's also got this metaphor for everything's frozen, which is really interesting, right? What does that mean? I don't know the answers to that. When I read that book, I, I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. And it's like, that is way, uh, that is why Ursula Wynn has a, a prominent position. It's not that she was a woman science fiction author. She has a prominent position because she's really dealing with re- interesting stuff. And I, I think that that's, that's very unusual. Most people are not dealing with really interesting stuff. She's always interesting, interested in interesting stuff. You guys know that she was a pipe smoker? Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. That's that's old-fashioned. Pipe smoking. Yeah. I don't know anybody yeah. who does that anymore. Just Gandalf. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's not tobacco in his pipe. <laughs> pipe weed. <laughs> I guess we're done, huh? I think we're done. And on Gandalf. And on Gandalf. And, and, and on Gandalf. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Vanishing Point. This week, part one of The Word for World is Forest by Ursula K. Le Guin. Dramatized by Alberto Mangel. Captain Davidson. Mm. Careful, Creechy. Please excuse Ben, Captain Davidson. Breakfast, Ben. Hurry, quick. What's the weather like, Ben? There is rain, Captain Davidson. Yeah, so what else is new? No kidding. Nagoyan has promised to give the matter careful consideration. And we know the answer to that one. Davidson's in the doghouse.
contingent of women for our new Tahiti colony. 212 beauties will be among us today, so hurry. Davidson? Shit. Davidson! Come in. Don't mind interrupting my breakfast, Lubov. Davidson, I've got to talk to you. Sit down. The loggers have been hunting red deer in the strips again. There's 18 pairs of antlers in the back room of the lounge. Oh, sit down and relax. Nobody ever stopped poachers from poaching, you know that. You can. That's why we live under martial law. That's why the army runs this colony. Isn't it? To keep the laws? Lubov, listen. It's the men I'm looking after, not the animals. It's the men that count. A little extra legal hunting helps the men to get this god-forsaken life over with, and I intend to blink. They've got to have some recreation. Ben? Ah. Jacket, hurry quick. The men have games. Hobbies, films, liquor, pot, fresh batches of women, hygienic homosexuality, everything. They're spoiled rotten, your frontier heroes. They don't need to exterminate a rare native species for recreation. And I'll record any major infraction of ecological protocols in my report to Central. Good. Ben, boots. You do what you see fit, Lubov. That's your job. You know what's wrong with you? You want to keep this place like it is. Like one big national forest. Right. But we're just ordinary Joes getting the work done. Earth needs wood. We find wood in New Tahiti, so we're loggers. More like world tamers, Davidson. Civilization. That's what you are. Remember that word, Lubov? Civilization. Don't sulk like a girl, man. Listen. See, the difference with you is Earth doesn't come first. But with me, it does. Does it, eh? You want to make this world into Earth's image? A desert of cement? Wood is rarer than gold now, David. Thanks, Lubov. I know that. Why do you think we're here? But can you remember what it looked like before the Earth? Green. That's what the aliens from Hain called it. The green planet. Earth. When I say Earth, Lubov, I mean people. You and the other special worry about deer, trees, and fiber wood. Fine. That's your thing. But I like to see things in perspective from the top down. And the top, so far, is humans. It just happens to be the way things are, Lubov. Yes, for humans. The same who hunted down the last deer on Earth. So that you hunt robo-deer, even the high Rockies. So what's wrong with that? You know the only wild things left on Earth besides us? Rats. Rats, Davidson. Unless you count roaches. Look out there, Lubov. Does Camp Smith look like a desert of cement to you? Look at the logging houses, the timber, the machinery. You know what I call that, Lubov? I call that power, Lubov. That's mm. what I call it. So wood is rarer than gold now, eh? Well, then we have wood. And anything else we need. And that gives us power, Lubov. <laughs> Don't huff like an old maid. I know you think power's a dirty word. Well, without it, you'd be cleaning someone's toilet, Lubov, like those creatures there, like Ben. I'm going down to Central to take a look at that shipload of women. You want to come along? No, thank you. I'll get that on my own. Suit yourself. Well, how goes it, Ark? You got half a minute? Sure, what's up? The little bastards. So the creature's getting the Ark. I'd like to get rid of them, Captain. What do you mean? Just let them go. I can't... I can't get enough work out of them to make up for their keep. They just don't work. Well, they do if you know how to make them. They don't. They built the camp. Well, you got the touch of them, then. I guess I don't. Ah, try, Ark. 
In the history course, they said that slavery never worked. It was uneconomical, right? Right. But this isn't slavery, our baby. Slaves are human. Creatures, aren't Right? When you raise cows, you call that slavery? Right. No, you don't. And it works. The too little. I tried starving the sulky ones. They just sit and starve. They're a little all right, but don't let that fool you. They're tough, Hawk Man. They got terrific endurance, and they don't feel pain like us humans. You think it's like hitting a kid? It's more like hitting a robot. <laughs> I'll tell you a weird one. One day I had an accident, uh, sort of, with one of the female creatures. Before I knew it, one of the tame males jumped me. What? Yeah. You think they never budged? But this one did. He went right off his nut. I had to damn near kill him before I'd even let go. Wow. And he kept coming back. And he never felt pain. I tell you, like some beetle you stepped on doesn't know it's squashed. Look at this. It was damn near a concussion. And he did that after I'd broken his arm and pounded his face into cranberry sauce. Wow. I killed him. What about that damn Luboff? Luboff? Those special are all creechy lovers. Yeah. Creechies are dumb. But they're treacherous. You gotta be tough with them and stay tough. They aren't worth the trouble, Captain. Look, Ock. Try this. Pick out one of the ringleaders and give them a shot of hallucinogen. Mesk, LSD, anything. They don't know one from the other. But they're scared of them. Don't overdo it, and it'll work, I guarantee. I'll show you. What about those? Any ringleaders there? Well, that one's one of the trouble. Hey, you. Captain? Yeah, you, here. Quick, hurry, quick. Yes. All right, Ock, watch carefully. You hold them like this. Open their mouths. They can't bite you if you take them like this. Keep the jaws open. Pop in some mess. Swallow this, you rat. It works real fast. He's going fast. You do one of them and a whole lot will fall in line. you got to have their respect, Doc. Yes, sir. They'll come out of it in a little while. I wonder what kind of trip they get. Just hope you never get to find out. Captain, why are they scared of Hallie? Well, why are women scared of rats? Speaking of which, I'm on the way to Central. The women have arrived. Oh. <laughs> Shall I put the finger on a collie girl for you? Uh, just keep your finger off of you till I get my leave, Captain. <laughs> you taking the hopper? Yeah. I'll see you about four. Hey, remember, Captain, I like them neat, not floppy. <laughs> At ease, Captain. Good to see you, Colonel, sir. I was just on my way out. Too damned hot in here. Air cooler not working again. Something's always breaking down. What do you say to a long, cool drink at the Luau Bar? Is that an order, Colonel Ngoyen? It's an order. never get accustomed to this weather, Davidson. What a flimsy little town this is. Centralville. Makes it sound like Beijing, eh? And all you have are a bunch of concrete pads and one shining lunching tower. You're turning nostalgic in your old age, Colonel. Or tired. With the ship arriving, I'm the one left with all the damn paperwork. You met Captain Ying? No, I came right to your officer. He's all right, but a stickler for paperwork. How was the trip? Ying says it went without a hitch. But you know, 27 years planetary time. It's a long time to be shut up in a ship and nothing happening. And all those women. Yeah, all 212 of them. Will you be taking some back? I've got my request orders here, sir. There's a number of things. 
We need a new semi-robo bark stripper. That's forestry. See you, Chibi. And it would be good to have another stock of Halley's. Don't overdo that, Captain. No, sir. But the men... Well, there's not much entertainment at Camp Smith, sir. Ah, here we are. Let's take the one in the corner. Thank God the cooler hasn't broken down here. <sighs> oh, miss, I'll have a scotch, ice water. Same for you, Davidson? Sure. Thank you, sir. Do the usual, thanks. Hard to breathe again. You can give the Halley's form to Susan Ayoshi. She'll look after it for you. Right. I hope the Halley's will keep the men entertained, as you say. Well, they will, sir. For a while. And away from the Red Deer. News travels fast. Lubach was only doing his job, Davidson. Yeah. Of course. Eighteen pairs of antlers, Davidson. That's more than we can overlook. It won't happen again, sir. I'm sure it won't, Davidson. I trust it won't. But we certainly don't need Luboff or any other spesh hanging around the camp, sir. It upsets the men. And the Creechies, too. The Creechies? Sorry. I mean, the Ashtians. It upsets them, sir. Puts ideas into their heads. What ideas? They're just troublemakers, sir, spesh like Luboff. I can keep things under control without him sticking his... You know the rules, Davidson. Ah, here are the drinks. Enough business, Captain. Relax now. That's an order. It will help on your trip home. Captain Davidson here. Beginning descent on Camp Smith. Recording as per normal emergency procedure due to unclear visibility rated 4.5. Cannot see landing strip, but we'll proceed anyway. There's smoke... Captain Davidson descending. Hopper almost on ground. This is... We'll proceed. Oh, my God. It's not there. Someone's burnt the whole damn camp to the ground. I'm in section eight. The hangars are burnt. All... I can see four, no. Five hoppers still smoldering. No one around. God. Lumberyard burnt. Creechy compound burnt. HQ. Furnace, mill, radio shack. All burnt. I'm proceeding with caution. There's no sound. No one seems to be. What's that? I can hear something. We'll investigate. Switching security lock on recording. It's the Preachies. Three, four. Not volunteers. I recognize one. It's Luboff's pet from Central. What's he doing here? Ending recording now. We'll investigate further. You. Preachies. Stop. Stay put. No moving. Answer now. This fire. Who started Answer now. Hurry up, quick. If you know answer, I burnt up first one. Then one, then one, then one. See? 
The fire. Who started? We burned the camp, Captain Davidson. The humans are all dead. You burned it? What do you mean? There were 200 humans here, Captain, and 90 slaves of among my people. Then 900 of my people came out of the world. First, we killed the humans in the place where you cut down trees. Then we killed those in this place. Then we burned the houses. I had thought you were killed too, Captain Davidson. I'm glad to see you. Are you crazy? Creatures don't kill. You go wacko sometimes. But you sure as hell don't massacre 200 people. You tell truth. Who did this for you? 900 of my people. No, not that, you idiot. Who else? Who were you acting for? Who told you to do this? My wife. She told me. You bastard. Sing, Captain Davidson. You fall but can't sing. You turn your neck up to me? You? You know the life position? Ah! I will let you go then, Captain. Get into your machine. Tell your people at Central that Camp Smith is burnt and all the humans killed. Run. Hurry up quick. the whole bloody place, Captain. They just came and went crazy on us, Captain. I got away, but, but Bernie, Antonio... Take it easy, Ark. It's all right. Any more get away? There's a bunch of us. Some of the men are too frightened to move. Yukio is there, but he's got a bad burn all down his back. Go get him, Ark. Bring him here. I'll get the blowguns from the hopper. Tell the men we're going back in. Captain... Tell them to get ready. Meet me here in five minutes. I'll get the blowguns. Right, Captain. Ark? Yes, Captain. Don't worry. We'll get those creechy bastards. It's ten of theirs for each one of ours. Now go. <laughs> Quiet, you idiot. <laughs> Those little green bastards, I can hardly wait. Wait, wait. Okay, now, remember men. They're rats. The women aren't women, okay? You wouldn't make it with a hairy green lizard, right? <laughs> men would make it with anything, sir. Get a hold of yourself, Stevens. Fire jelly ready? Okay. Let's go. Move it, man! Move over here! Over here! Grab this one! In the end! 
the tree. Look at the whole park of the sand. <laughs> My lord, dreamer, may I come to your lodge? I've come a long way. I am tired. Are you of the dream time or of the world time? Of the world time. Come along with me then. I have seen you before, perhaps in a dream. Not in the world time. I come from Sornal. I have never been here before. This is Kedast, our town. And I am Koromena of the White Thorn. My name is Selver of the Ash. There are Ash people among us, and Birch and Holly. But no women of Apple. You have not come looking for a wife, eh? No, no, of course not. My wife is dead. This is the men's lodge. You can rest here. Thank you. Healer. A visitor. He's hurt and tired. He's falling asleep already. Ah, such scars. I don't know what would give a man such scars as he has on his face. And a wound like this on his arm. It's a queer engine he had on his belt. Where is it? I put it under his bench. It looks like polished iron, but not like the handiwork of men. But the wound. Where does he come from? From Sornal. The giants are in Sornal, travelers say. You saw the giants once, Coral. Once? The head woman. Let me talk to her. Has the stranger woken, Coral? Not yet. His wounds are bad. We must hear his story. Can't you wake him? If the healer permits. Uh, uh, Coral! He must have woken. You have slept. Yes. Good. I am Selver. Selver Thale. Yes, uh, you told me your name, Selva. You are from Sornal. Eshereth in Sornal. My city was destroyed by the humans cutting trees in that region. I was one of those made to serve them. And my wife, Thale, she was raped by one of them and died. Were you there at the time? I attacked the human that killed her. He would have killed me, but another of them saved me and set me free. I left Sornal, where no town is safe from the humans now, and came to the North Isle. Then the humans came to the coast and began to cut down the world. Yes, that I've heard. Oh, how these humans love death. How they breed it like seeds. They destroyed the town of Penley. They caught hundreds of men and women, 
But I wasn't caught. And then I heard that that one, the one I'd tried to kill, was there. And all the time I watched the trees fall and saw the world cut open and left to rot. Yes, I heard that is the way the humans pass. The men might have escaped, but the women were locked in more safely and couldn't... And they were beginning to die. I talked with people hiding there in the boglands. What did the women say? We were all very frightened and very angry, the men and the women, and we had no way of letting out our anger and fear. So at last, after long talking and long dreaming and the making of a plan, we went in daylight and killed the humans of the coast with arrows and hunting lances and burned the camp they had built and their engines. You destroyed it all? We left nothing. But that one got away. I sang over him. I let him go. Ben? I wanted to escape alone. The humans know me. They know my face, and this frightens me. And those I stay with. What is your wound? That one shot me with their kind of weapon. But I sang him down and let him go. Alone? You downed a giant? Not alone. With three hunters and with his weapon in my hand. Where is it? Here. But he will not have need of your tin cadast. But the humans never stop. He came back. After you gave him life? He came back and brought more with him and made death perfect in the village. What you tell me is very black and the road goes down. Are you a dreamer of your lodge? I was. There's no lodge of Eshrith anymore. That's all one. We speak the old tongue together. You first spoke to me, calling me Lord Dreamer. So I am. Do you dream, Selva? Do you dream awake? I dream awake. Do you dream well? Not well. Do you hold the dream in your hands? Yes. Do you weave and shape and direct and follow and start and cease at will? Sometimes. Sometimes... I'm afraid to. Who is not? It is not altogether bad with you, Selma. No. But it is. Bad. Altogether bad. There's nothing good left. Nothing. Take this. Will the giants, the humans, follow your trail, Selma? I left no trail. But that's not the danger. Listen. How can you see? You've never dreamt anything like it making 200 people die. They won't follow me, but they'll follow us all. Hunt us, find us, kill us all, all, all. Lie down. No, I'm not raving. This is true fact and dream. There were 200 humans on the coast, and they are dead. You've never dreamed this dream. We killed them. We killed them as if they were not humans. So will they not turn and do the same to us? They've killed us by ones. Now they will kill us as they kill the trees by hundreds and hundreds of hundreds. Be still. These things happen in fever dreams. Not in the world. Selva, do these men dream? As children do, in sleep. They have no training? No. None of them are trained or have any skill in dreaming. They even call the world time real and the dream time unreal as if that were the difference between them. Lord Dreamer... It's all right, Selva. You have done what you had to do. Now sleep. 
this week, you've heard part one of The Word for World is Forest by Ursula K. Le Guin, dramatized for radio by Alberto Mangel. In the cast, John Dunsworth as Davidson and Robert Dodds as Selfer, with David Renton as Lubob and John Dart as Nguyen. Also in the cast, Joan Gregson, Walter Borden, Doug Carrigan, John Fulton, Troy Adams, Gary Vermeer, and Camille James. The sound engineer was Keith DeLong, and sound effects were by Dermot Kenny. The production assistant was Rosemary Gilbert, and the producer was Sudsy Clark. The executive producer for Vanishing Point is William Lane. I'm George Jordan. Join us next week for part two of The Word for World is Forest on Vanishing Point. Ursula K. Le Guin, dramatized by Alberto Mangel. In part one, we learned that things are not as they should be on the forest planet of New Tahiti, 27 light years from Earth. The peace-loving Ashtians have been mistreated by their masters to the point of revolution. Captain Davidson, without authorization, has retaliated, and the war is on. Amongst his own race, the revolutionary leader, Selver, is regarded as a god, one who dreams awake and holds the dream in his hands, making the two realities of dream time and real time as one. Part two of The Word for World is Forest. Commander Ying requested everyone's presence. Ying? Yes, he's the ship commander. He hasn't... Uh... Did he talk to you at all? About what? Are there any problems? Just formalities. They love formalities, these ship commanders. What about the aliens? You asked for them? The Hainish? They're officials of some sort. They came with the ship. I'm not sure There's Luba. He have to be here? Arrogant bastard. Sorry, Colonel. I just don't think Luboff has the team spirit that we need out here. Don't worry. You free for dinner after this is over? Sure. You buying? I'm buying. See inside. Dr. Luboff. A word of warning, Dr. Luboff. Warning? I understand there's some difference of opinion between you and Captain Davidson on how Camp Smith is run. It's not a difference of opinion, it's a matter of life Dr. and death. Dr. Luboff, 
I don't want to hear about it. I'm just telling you I won't have our dirty linen washed in public. Is that clear? You can't forbid me to say what I know, Colonel. You're under my jurisdiction, and that means you do as I say. When your time is up and you're back on Earth and retired, you can write your memoirs if you like, but right now it's just, yes, sir, no, sir, thank you, sir. Is that clear? But my job... I wouldn't if I were you. You might not have a job to come back to. Dr. Lubar. You'll be on our side of the table. Dr. Lubar. Ah, Mr. Orr. This is Mr. Lepenin. Mr. Lepenin is from the planet Hain. Ah, so I see. I am honored, Mr. Lepenin. I've just been reading your report on the conscious control of paradoxical sleep among the Ashians, Dr. Lubov. Most impressive. Thank you. I wish we hadn't had to meet at this hearing. We'd better go in now. By all means, Commander Yeager. Many thanks, Colonel. We're here to talk about the attack of Coastal Camp 27. My ship was here at World 41 Ashti, New Tahiti, as I know you like to call it. <laughs> we were dropping off a new load of colonists when this attack occurred. Did the chance to happen while we were here, I can't ignore it. Is the status of World 41 as an Earth colony is now subject to revision, and the massacre at your camp may precipitate the administration's decision on it. Certainly, any decision we can make must be made quickly, for I can't keep my ship here long. The relevant facts are all in the possession of those present. Captain Davidson's report on the events was taped and heard by all of us on the ship. By all of you here as well. Now, if there are any questions any of you wish to ask Captain Davidson, go ahead. I have one myself. You returned to the site of the camp, Captain Davidson, with eight soldiers. Yes, sir. Were you authorized to set fire to the forest near the campsite? No, sir. It was on my own responsibility. You, you did, however, set the fire. I did, sir. And I believe it was the bloody right thing to do. Excuse me, sir. A silence, please. I was trying to smoke out the creatures that killed my men, sir. You mean the Ashtians, Captain Davidson? Mr. LaPennant? Captain Davidson, do you think the Ashtians under your command at the camp were mostly content? Yes, I do. They were well-fed, well-housed, not overworked then, as well as can be managed in a frontier camp? The place was not a pleasure compound. Colonel Ngoyen, please. Captain Davidson, you will answer. Yes. Was the discipline very harsh? No, it was not. Captain Davidson. Yes, Mr. Orr. That is, if Mr. LePennant has finished. Excuse me, Mr. LePennant. Go ahead, Mr. Orr. What do you think motivated the revolt? I don't understand. If none of them was discontent, why did some of them massacre your people and destroy the camp? I don't know. Dr. Lubov. There was nothing unusual in their position there. All the work they had to do. Nothing unusual, no. I would like to state that standards are strictly controlled throughout the colony. Uh, Captain Davidson, you have stated that one of the ringleaders, if not the leader, was a certain Selver. Yes, Selver. That's his name. Yes. His name is Selver. 
go. saying that Salva had a personal grudge against you. That's crazy. Is it? Since Salva's wife died in your quarters, subsequent to sexual intercourse, you forced upon her. He holds you responsible for her death. He attacked you once before at the camp. Had you forgotten that? I don't know what... Well, the point is that Salva's personal hatred for Captain Davidson may serve as partial explanation or motivation for his unprecedented assault. The Astrians aren't incapable of personal violence. I think that this... Selva's Selva. first personal attack on Captain Davidson, which I witnessed in part, was pretty suddenly an attempt to kill, as was the captain's retaliation. The chronology of events, as I see it, is this. Selva's wife dies in Davidson's quarters. Selva attacks and is almost killed by Davidson. Selva launches an attack on the camp and destroys it, and assaults but does not kill Davidson. Davidson retaliates by burning the surrounding forest to the ground. Am I correct, Captain? I object. Dr. Luboff is making a direct accusation and should follow correct military procedures in the right place. This has become the right place. Objection denied, Colonel Ngoya. Captain Davidson, is Dr. Luboff correct? If he says so. I have one question, please. If Salver could have killed Captain Davidson, why didn't he? I think I can explain that, Mr. LaPenta. Captain Davidson, after the burning of the camp, when you were attacked by Selva, did you end up on the ground? I don't see why that matters, but yes, I was flat on my back. Was your head thrown back or turned aside? This is stupid. Please answer, Captain Davidson. I don't know. I'm trying to establish a fact here, Captain. I wondered if you might have taken one of the positions which the Ashtians used to prevent an opponent from further physical aggression. I don't know. I'd like to make this point clear. These Ashtian aggression-holding gestures and positions have some innate basis, but they are socially developed, learned. The strongest is lying on the back, eyes shut, head turned so that the throat is fully exposed. An Ashtian of the local cultures might find it literally impossible to hurt an enemy who took that position. He would have to do something else to release his anger or aggressive drive. 
when he had you down, Captain, did Selva sing? Did he what? Sing. Now we're talking about singing. I don't know if he sang or not. Why do you ask, Dr. Lubov? Ashtians use a kind of ritualized singing to replace social combat. I have an example here. Uh, allow me. Most of the time, these are not aggression releases, but an art form. The better artist wins. I wondered if Selva sang over Captain Davidson, and if so, whether he did it because he could not kill, or because he preferred a bloodless victory. Dr. Lubov, are these aggression channeling devices universal? Among adults, yes. So my informants state, and all my observations support them. Until the day before yesterday. So there is no rape, assault, murder? No rape. An occasional crime of passion. There must be psychotic, dangerous psychotic. They isolate them, literally, on small islands. And yet the Ashtians are carnivorous. Yes, meat is a staple. Wonderful. A society with an effective war barrier. But how effective is it, Dr. Dubov? I am not sure, Commander Ying. Exactly. Captain Davidson, you were saying, Dr. Dubov? They're a static, stable society. They have no history. They're perfectly integrated and wholly unprogressive. They're like the forest they live in. They've attained climax state. But they are capable of that. This is all very interesting, but I fail to see the relevance to this conference and... No, excuse me, Colonel Ngoya, but this may be the point. Continue, Dr. Lubov. Well, I wonder if they're not proving their adaptability now by adapting their behavior to ours, to the Earth colony. For four years, they behaved with us as they do to one another. Despite our physical differences, they recognized us as members of their species, as... They're equals. They recognize that. Meanwhile, we treated them as we treat animals. We exploited, killed, raped, enslaved, destroyed their communities, cut down their forests. It wouldn't be surprising if they decided we are not human. And therefore, you can be killed like animals. Did you say enslaved? Dr. Luboff is expressing his personal opinions and theories. I should state that I consider his... To be erroneous. We do not employ slaves, sir. We have very limited personnel to accomplish our tasks here. And we need workers and use all we can get. But not on any kind of basis that could be called a slavery basis. Certainly not. Oh, when... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mr. Orr. Thank you. I was going to ask, how many of each race are on the colony? I have the statistics in front of me. Census uh, here. 2,641 Terrans, and this is only an estimate. The native population, 3 million. You should have considered these statistics, gentlemen, before you altered the native tradition. Sir, we are adequately armed and equipped to resist any type of aggression these natives could offer. And there was a general consensus by both the first exploratory missions and our own research staff, headed by Dr. Luboff, giving us to understand that the new Tahitians are a primitive, harmless, peace-loving species. This information was obviously erroneous. Obviously? You consider the human species to be primitive, harmless, peace-loving, Colonel? Surely not. But you know that the inhabitants of this planet are human, as human as you or I or Mr. Orr. 
all from the same original heinous stock? That is the scientific theory, I am aware. We all descend from the heinous. Colonel, it is historic fact. I am not forced to accept it as fact. I don't like opinions stuffed into my mouth. The fact is that creatures are a meter tall. They're covered in green fur. They don't sleep. They're not human beings in my frame of reference. Captain Davidson, do you consider the natives human or not? I'm not qualified to answer that question. But you had sexual intercourse with one, this Silver's wife. Would you have sexual intercourse with a female animal? What about the rest of you? You have certainly not thought things through. I must say, I find this quite outrageous. You've got it wrong. Fact, sir. Fact. What about the facts? Favorite. Gentlemen, gentlemen. gentlemen. You no. be. I don't think Quiet, so. please. Please, please, gentlemen. Quiet. There's no time. Don't you see? We must do something now. Dr. Lubach. Time. There is no more time gap between worlds. 
As soon as we came out of Nafal time dilation into planetary space time here, we rang up home, as you might say, and we were told what happened during the 27 years we were traveling. Amazing! Indeed, Dr. Lubov. And as you can see, this is as important to us as an interstellar species as speech itself was earlier in our evolution. It will have the same effect to make a society possible. Mr. Le Penin and myself left Earth 27 years ago as legates for our respective governments, Tau Ceti and Hainish. When we left, people were talking about the possibilities of forming some kind of league among civilized worlds. Now that communication was possible. The League of Worlds now exists. It has existed for 18 years. Mr. Orr and I are now emissaries of the Council of the League, and so have certain powers and responsibilities we did not have when we left Earth. Why were we not informed? This is outrageous. Are we to take all, all this simply on your word, sir? Indeed, Captain Davidson. A colony like this had to believe what passing ships and outdated radio messages told them. Now you don't. You can verify. We are going to give you the Ansible destined for Prestono. Have you authority to do that? We have a League authority to do just that. Received, of course, by Ansible. Your colony here is in a bad way. Worse than I thought from your reports. Your reports are very incomplete. Censorship or stupidity have been at work. I most strongly object. Silence! I recommend you contact your Terran administration at once. There is no longer an excuse for acting on outdated orders, for ignorance, for irresponsible autonomy. If I may say a word, uh, Mr. Orr, how much authority do you emissaries have? We are only observers, Captain Davidson. Not in power to command, only to report. You are still answerable only to your own government on Earth. We are very grateful to both Mr. Orr and Mr. Le Penin for the decision to give this Terran colony the Ansible destined for Presno. Now, one more decision remains to be made. If you feel the colony is in imminent peril of further or more massive attacks from the natives, I can keep my ship here for a week or two as a defense arsenal. I can also evacuate the women. No children yet, right? No, sir. Uh, 482 women now. It can be done, but then we must proceed to Presno. We'll stop here on our way home to Terra, but that's going to be three and a half more years at least. Uh, can you stick it out? Mm -hmm. Certainly. We've had warning and we won't be caught napping. Now, can the native inhabitants stick it out for three and a half years more? No. Yes. Colonel Ngoya. We've been here for four years now, and the natives are doing fine. There's enough room for all here, and yes, we are fully alarmed, and no, we won't take any reprisals. That's strictly forbidden by the colonial code. We'll just keep on shipping the lumber home and looking out for ourselves. The women are in no danger. Maybe Dr. Lubov thinks he's in danger. Maybe he wants a ride back home. Enough, Captain Davidson. Dr. Lubov? We have been here for four years, yes. But I don't know if the native culture can survive even a few years more of our presence. If we go on logging at the present rate, 
we may reduce the major habitable lands of New Tahiti to a desert within two years. Nonsense. That is gross exaggeration. Erosion has been reduced to a minimum. Chances are good for a large percentage of adaptation and survival. Colonel Nagoyan, that's what the Bureau of Land Management said about Alaska during the first famine. How many Sitka spruce have you seen in your lifetime, Colonel? Or snowy owl? Or wolf? Or Inuit? The survival percentage of native Alaskan species in habitat after 15 years of the development program was 0.3%. It's now zero. This is not Alaska, Dr. Luboff. No, it's a whole planet. A forest ecology is a delicate one. If a forest perishes, its fauna may go with it. The Ashtian word for world is also the word for forest. Forest. I submit, Commander Ying, that though the colony may not be in imminent danger... Dr. Lubov, such submissions are not properly submitted by staff vessels. Commander, I, I insist... Doctor, the meeting is adjourned. Captain David, lay off, Lubov. It's rats like you that destroy the system. I bet you're happy now. Colonel Nguyen. Dr. Lubov. Mr. Lieutenant. I'm glad we were able to hear the facts. The facts? We haven't even begun to scratch the surface. There's no time, Mr. Lieutenant. You must tell the League. We've got to save the forest, the forest people. You must, please. You must. What I can do, I will do. I give you my word. So don't worry, eh? Everything's okay? Just formality? Davidson, control yourself. Luboff overstepped his function, function. and... Function? What function? Making us look like slave drivers or something. That's his function. I'll talk to you. No, no, that's enough talk for me. I've had it. No more talk. Davidson, calm down. There's no reason to get worked up. This is a military system, and things work according to rank. Luboff has no authority. Yeah, and the others, Ying and those Hainish, they've got no authority. I'll sort everything out. There'll be no changes. It's all formalities. It will all be forgotten by tomorrow. Like hell it will. I'm meeting Ying and the others for drinks. You go and take a relax, Davidson. That's an order. A message for Colonel McGuire. A message for Colonel McGuire. Message for Colonel McGuire, sir. Confidential. Oh, that's all right, sir. I'll take it. Please give personal identification number. Uh, Colonel Nguyen's number, A107X24. 11208, entrance A, confidential. Orders from the Bureau of Colonial Administration, Karachi. Restrict Terran Ashtian contact to occasions arranged by Ashtian. What? Employment of volunteer labor is not advised. Employment of forced labor is forbidden. They've gone crazy. They want to destroy us. Everyone is under consideration. Use of weapons of any kind, except small sidearms carried in self-defense, is absolutely forbidden. If they think a policy I'll of avoidance is strongly advised. A policy of aggression or retaliation is strictly forbidden. End of tape. Confirm for next report. I bet old Goyan will salam and say yes. Traitors. Damn aliens. Damn coochie lovers. But they won't beat Captain Don Davidson.
You can count on that. K. Le Guin, dramatized for radio by Alberto Mangel. In the cast, John Dunsworth as Davidson and Robert Dodds as Selver, with John Dart as Ngoyen, David Renton as Lubov, Walter Borden as Ying, Doug Carrigan as Le Penin, and Troy Adams as Orr. Also in the cast, Joan Gregson, Elizabeth Beeler, and John Fulton. The sound engineer was Keith DeLong, and the sound effects were by Dermot Kenny. The production assistant was Rosemary Gilbert. The producer was Sudsy Clark. The executive producer for Vanishing Point is William Lane. I'm George Jordan. Join us next week for part three of The Word for World is Forest. vanishing point. This week, part three of The Word for World is Forest by Ursula K. Le Guin, dramatized by Alberto Mangel. In parts one and two, the peace-loving native Ashtians of the planet New Tahiti have been enslaved and put to work harvesting wood for use on Earth. They have been treated so badly by their masters that they have revolted. Captain Davidson has retaliated without authorization and has been condemned by his superiors. But he has vowed revenge on the Ashtians and their leader, Selver. Part three of The Word for World is Forest. from the sailors of the strait, and before that, from Broughter and Thornall. They are for the hearing of all Kadath. The truth has been broken. The human called David's son, who did death before, has done death as yea. He has set fire to the village of Arat in the south, and Carter in Thornall. Oh. These are the words of the message I bear. So... Oh. It has happened. 
This is very bad world time. That human, Davidson, he must be insane, Selva. Mm, they are all insane. People can't be insane. But they only dream in sleep, you said. Yes, and if they want to dream waking, they take poison so the dreams go out of control. How can people be madder? Maybe when they kill a tree, they think it will come alive again. No, they understand death very well. They don't see as we do, but they know more and understand more about certain things than we do. My friend Lubov mostly understood what I told him. Most of what he told me, I couldn't understand. Well, it is clear the human David's son wants the forest to himself. David's son has probably some hundred human with him, but he will find more. Can this madness be stopped? There are maybe two thousand, maybe three thousand of them now. If the truce is broken... No, we can't wait. If we wait a lifetime or two, they will breed. Their numbers will double and redouble. They kill men and women. They don't spare those who ask life. They cannot sing in contest. They have left their roots behind them, perhaps in this other forest from which they come, this forest without trees. Whether they are men or not men, whether they are sane or insane, that does not matter. If they will not go, they must be burnt out of the lands, as nests of stinging ants must be burnt out. I will take action against David's son and his humans. Death against death. Selva, are you... Head woman of Kadast, hear me. It's time that I go back to my own land, to Thornall, to those that are in danger, to those that are enslaved, and I'm setting off alone. This grove we stand in will be called Selva's Grove by the people who walk in it hereafter. You are Selva Shahab. You are surer of me than I am, Lord Dreamer. Yes, I'm sure, Selva. I was well taught in dreaming, and I am old. I dream very little for myself anymore. Why should I? Little is new to me. What I wanted from my life, I have had, and more. I have had my whole life. Days like the leaves of the forest. I'm an old hollow tree. Only the roots live. And so I dream only what all men dream. Ever since the humans arrived here, I have had no visions and no wishes. I see what is. And what is that? I see the fruit ripening on the branch. For four years it has been ripening. We have all been afraid for four years. Even we who live far from the human cities. Children wake from sleep crying of giants. Women will not go far on their trading journeys. Men in the lodge cannot say. The fruit of fear is ripening. And I see you gather it. You are the harvester. That we fear to know, you have seen and known. Exile, shame, pain. You have gone farthest. The world changes, holy Selva, when a man holds the fruit of the tree of fear, whose roots are deeper than the forest. Men will know it. They will know you as we did. It doesn't take an old man or a dreamer to recognize a god. Where you go, 
fire will burn. Only the blind cannot see it. But listen, Selva. This is what I see that perhaps others do not. And this is why I love you. I dreamt of you before I met you here. You were walking on the path, and behind you the young trees grew up. Oak and birch and willow and holly and fir and pine and alder and elm and white flowering ash. The roof and walls of the world forever renewed. Now, farewell, dear God and son. Go safely. Selva Shab. Selva Shab. Mother of God. That was a god among us, my daughter. Have you ever seen a god before? When I was ten, the lyre player came to our town. Old Erto, yes. He was of my tree. Well, now you have seen a second god. And greater. Tell your people of him. Which god is he, mother? A new one. Selva Sharp, the son of the forest fire, the one who is not reborn. Now, all of you, go. Go. Let me be a while. I'm as full of forebodings as a stupid old man. I must dream. It's you. I wanted to talk to you. It's urgent. I can't. Not now, Lubor. But I have to talk to you, Selva. Things will be better. From now on, arrangements are being made. New orders from Earth. Too much has happened. Since when? Since the truce was broken. Since the new killings. What new killings? Davidson. Oh, God. Oh, Lubor, you shouldn't have come here. But I had to see you. The new orders. You know what they call me? Selva Sha'ab. Sha'ab? Do you remember the word book we compiled, Lubar? Of the men's tongue? Sha'ab. Powerful one. God. But also another meaning. Translator. Translator. The one who crosses over. To translate is to change. To be changed. From the very root. And the root is the dream. I am not a god by choice, Lubar. What do you bring across, Selvig? Death? Across the, the gulf between our worlds. Are you going to translate our wars into your forest? Your people taught us that in dreams. Now it is here. I wanted you to leave. I offered you my friendship. My wife was there. My... Don't, Selva, don't. You nursed me. You talked to me many nights. You were my friend, Dubov. I must go. You will be welcome in Kadath. I must return to Centralville. They expect my report. No, not to Centralville. I don't. must stay in Kadath a few nights. I can. If you're not the same as before, by the laboratory? Yes. Why? Don't go back. 
Sleep well here, Lubov. Dream well. Have strength. When will I see you again? Shelby? Shelby? Lubov here. Something's wrong? Transmission unacceptable. Hello. Lubov here. I'm returning to Centralville now. Hello. These damn things never work. Returning now. Message over. to explain words to me. Realist. I didn't understand that word, realist. Now I do, my friend. 
It is one who knows both the world and the dream. But you are not sane. Not even you, my friend, the best of all. You forget your dreams like children believe there are monsters in the dark. You confuse dream world and real world and never learn. And now you're gone, my friend. Dead. 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 Let this one come to me. We won't hurt you. We want to use your radio. Call Colonel Ngoyen. I can't. You will. You'll call Colonel Ngoyen and tell him Selver wants to speak to him now. Colonel Ngoyen. Colonel Ngoyen. Erickson, Troop 6, calling Colonel Ngoyen. Colonel, we are here with... With Selver. Come in. Can you hear me? With Selver. He wants a meeting. Right now. Yes. Now. Here. He says he can be here in an hour. Tell him we'll meet by Cars Mountain. By what he calls Washington Hill... In one hour. Colonel Nagayan, in one hour, Washington Hill. Erickson out. Come, we'll wait among my people. Old man, old man, I'm tired. You sing for me, old man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Erickson! Eric! Here you are. Here. Here. I suppose this is so. Yes, sir. Well... First, I want to have a working definition of just precisely what these terms of yours mean and what they mean in terms of guaranteed safety of personnel under my command here. You understand English, don't you? Yes. I don't understand your question, Mr. Nguyen. Colonel Nguyen, if you please. Then you'll call me Colonel Selver. I did not come here to be insulted by you. I didn't intend insult, Colonel Nguyen. Will you repeat your question, please? I want to hear your terms, and then you will hear ours. That's all there is to it. Colonel Goyen, is that you? You hear me, Colonel? Who's using the transmitter? That's Captain Davidson. You hear me, Colonel? Davidson, where are you? Oh, here and there, just going from camp to camp, Colonel. From camp to creature-infested camp. Davidson, report back. This is an order. Sorry, can't hear you, sir. My men are having great fun out here, sir. Davidson, what are you trying to do? 
Do you know what you're doing? Yeah. Do you think you're going to subdue the creatures like that? Davidson, you think if you burn their villages, they'll come to you and surrender all three million of them? Well, maybe, sir. Look, Davidson, is there somebody else standing by there we can talk to? No, sir, they're all pretty busy. Like uh, an old-fashioned New Year's Eve party out here, sir. Fireworks all over. If you continue to disobey your orders, listen. I'm trying to reason with you as a reasonable and loyal soldier, but in order to ensure the safety of my personnel, I am in the position of being forced to tell the natives here that we can't assume any responsibility at all for your actions. That's correct, sir. Davidson, you're on a suicide course. I'm responsible for those men you have there with you. No, no, you're not, sir. You just relax. If only when you see the jungle burn and pick up and get out into the middle of the strip. We don't want to roast you folks along with the creaching. Happening, Davidson. They won't hurt him. <laughs> Davidson. I'll talk to him. <laughs> Davidson. <laughs> Do you want us to kill you now? Do you want to die, Davidson? Captain Davidson. We're both gods. You and I. You're an insane one. And I'm not sure whether I'm sane or not, but we are gods. Our voices meet, but we will never meet again. We bring each other such gifts as gods bring. You gave me a gift, the killing of one's kind, war. Now, as well as I can, I give you my people's gift, which is not killing. I think we each find each other's gift heavy to carry. You don't have a choice. Your people will take you to judgment and kill you for disobeying orders. And I cannot have you wander alone in the forest. You do too much harm. So you'll be treated like one of us when we go mad. You'll be taken to the island of Rendlep, where nobody lives anymore and left there. It might have been best, but Lubov prevented it, as his presence here now prevents me from having you killed. He is dead. All the killing is done, and the cutting of trees. You call Rendlep Dump Island. Your people left no trees there, so you can't make a boat and sail from it. There's nothing to kill on Renlep. There were people and trees, but now there are only the dreams of them. It seems to me a fitting place for you to live, since you must live. You might learn to dream there, but more likely you will follow your madness through to its proper end at last. Now and quit your damned gloating. I can't kill you, Davidson. You're a god. You must do it yourself. Go now. The meeting is over. You will not be harmed. In three years, your skyship will return, and you will leave. Colonel Solar, we made a mistake. But we are soldiers. We obey orders. We don't... Sometimes something goes wrong, but... Do you understand? Go. We will dream. And remember... Carry on, men. Now. Where to, sir? What direction, sir? We assemble in the Deadlands. Pass the order. Yes, sir. Silver Shaw. Head woman. It's been a long way. Mm, too long. 
Three years of waiting in their time. Three years in the Deadlands. They made the Deadlands. They stayed there. They kept their word. They're ill. Who's to heal them? Their women all dead. Poor ugly things. Great naked spiders. Ugh. They are human. Human like us. Human. Oh, my dear Lord God, I know it. I only meant they looked like spiders. But as you say, the wait is over. Yes. Ah, open the doors. A visitor. Mr. LePennon. The message has come through. It's over. Three years. Yes. But now it is confirmed. A permanent arrangement. We are leaving and not coming back. All. Your world has been placed under the League ban. What that means in your terms is this. I can promise you that no one will come here to cut the trees or take your lands, so long as the League lasts. None of you will ever come back? Not for five generations. None. Then, perhaps a few men, uh, ten or twenty, no more than twenty, might come and talk to your people and study your world, as some of the men here were doing. The scientists. The specialists. Lubov. Yes. Like Lubov. Will you tell me one thing, Salva? If the question doesn't offend you. Have there been more killings? We did not kill Davidson. That does not matter. What I mean is, among your own people, Ashtians, Killing Ashtians. Sometimes a god comes. He brings a new way of doing things, or a new thing to be done, a new kind of singing, or a new kind of death. He brings this across the bridge between the dream time and the world time. When he has done this, it is done. You cannot take things that exist in the world and try to drive them back into the dream, to hold them inside the dream with walls and pretenses. That is insanity. What is, is. There is no use pretending now that we do not know how to kill one another. But you must not pretend to have reasons to kill one another. Farewell, Mr. LePennon. Maybe, after I die, people will be as they were before I was born, and before you came. But I do not think they will.
You've just heard part three of The Word for World is Forest by Ursula K. Le Guin, dramatized for radio by Alberto Mangel. In the cast, John Dunsworth played Davidson and Robert Dodds played Salver, with Joan Gregson as the headwoman, Walter Borden as the old man, David Renton as Lubov, Doug Carrigan as Le Penin, and John Dart as Ngoyen. Also in the cast, John Fulton, Elizabeth Beeler, and Gary Vermeer. The sound engineer was Keith DeLong, and the sound effects were by Dermot Kenny. The production assistant was Rosemary Gilbert. The executive producer for Vanishing Point is William Lane. The word for world is forest, was produced at CBC Halifax by Sudsy Clark. I'm George Jordan. for World is Forest by Ursula K. Le Guin. A Book of the Road production read by Lawrence Ballard. Two pieces of yesterday were in Captain Davison's mind when he woke, and he lay looking at them in the darkness for a while. One up. The new shipload of women had arrived. They were here in Centralville, 27 light years from Earth by NAFAL, and four hours from Smith Camp by Hopper. The second batch of breeding females for the new Tahiti colony, all sound and clean, 212 head of prime human stock, or prime enough anyhow, one down. The report from Dump Island of crop failures, massive erosion, a wipeout. The line of 212 buxom, vettable little figures faded from Davison's mind as he saw rain pouring down onto plowed dirt, churning it to mud, thinning the mud to a red broth that ran down rocks into the rain-beaten sea. The erosion had begun before he left Dump Island to run Smith Camp, and being gifted with an exceptional visual memory, the kind they called eidetic, he could recall it now all too clearly. It looked like that big dome Keys was right, and you had to leave a lot of trees standing where you planned to put farms. But he still couldn't see why a soybean farm needed to waste a lot of space on trees if the land was managed really scientifically. It wasn't like that in Ohio. If you wanted corn, you grew corn, and no space wasted on trees but then Earth was a tamed planet, and New Tahiti wasn't. That's what he was here for, to tame it. If Dump Island was just rocks and gullies now, then scratch it, start over on a new island and do better. Can't keep us down, we're men. You'll learn what that means pretty soon, you godforsaken damn planet, Davison thought, and he grinned a little in the darkness of the hut, for he liked challenges. Ben? He sat up and swung his bare feet onto the bare floor. Hot water, get ready, hurry up quick. He stretched and scratched his chest and pulled on his shorts and strode out of the hut into the sunlit clearing, all in one easy series of motions. A big, hard-muscled man, he enjoyed using his well-trained body. Ben, his creechy, had the water ready and steaming over the fire as usual, and was squatting, staring at nothing, as usual. Creechies never slept, they just sat and stared. Breakfast! Hurry up, quick! Davison picked up his razor from the rough board table where the creechy had laid it out, ready with a towel and a mirror. There was a lot to be done today, since he had decided before getting up to fly down to Central and see the new women for himself. They wouldn't last long, 212 among over 2,000 men, 
and like the first batch, probably most of them were colony brides, and only 20 or 30 had come as recreation staff. But those babies were real good, greedy girls, and he intended to be first in line with at least one of them this time. He grinned on the left, the right cheek remaining stiff to the whining razor. The old creature was moseying round, taking an hour to bring his breakfast from the cookhouse. Hurry up, quick! Ben pushed his boneless saunter into a walk. Ben was about a meter high, and his back fur was more white than green. He was old and dumb, even for a creature. But Davison knew how to handle them. He could tame any of them, if it was worth the effort. It wasn't, though. Get enough humans here, build machines and robots, make farms and cities, and nobody would need the creatures anymore. And a good thing, too. For this world, New Tahiti was literally made for men. Cleaned up and cleaned out, the dark forests cut down for open fields of grain. The primeval murk and savagery and ignorance wiped out. It would be a paradise, a real Eden. A better world than worn-out Earth and it would be his world. For that's what Don Davison was, way down deep inside him, a world tamer. He wasn't a boastful man, but he knew his own size. It just happened to be the way he was made. He knew what he wanted and how to get it, and he always got it. Breakfast landed warm in his belly. His good mood wasn't spoiled even by the sight of Keyes Van Sten coming towards him, fat, white, and worried, his eyes sticking out like blue golf balls. Don... The loggers have been hunting red deer on the strips again. There are 18 pair of antlers in the back room of the lounge. Nobody ever stopped poachers from poaching keys. You can stop them. That's why we live under the martial law. That's why the army runs this colony, to keep the laws. A frontal attack from Fatty Big Dome. It was almost funny. All right, I could stop them, but look, it's the men I'm looking after. That's my job, like you said. And it's the men that count, not the animals. If a little hunting helps the men get through this godforsaken life, then I intend to blink. They've got to have some recreation. They have games, sports, hobbies, films, tapes of every major sporting event of the past century. Liquor, marijuana, hallies, and a fresh batch of women at Central for those unsatisfied by the Army's rather unimaginative arrangements for hygienic homosexuality. They are spoiled rotten, your frontier heroes, and they don't need to exterminate a rare native species for recreation. If you don't act, I must record a major infraction of ecological protocols in my report to Captain Gosset. You can do that if you see fit, Keys. Davison never lost his temper. It was sort of pathetic the way a Euro like Keys got all red in the face when he lost control of his emotions. That's your job, after all. I won't hold it against you. They can do the arguing at Central and decide who's right. See, you want to keep this place just like it is, actually, Keys. Like one big national forest to look at, to study. Great, you're a special. But see, we're just ordinary Joes getting the work done. Earth needs wood, needs it bad. We find wood on New Tahiti, so we're loggers. You see, where we differ is that with you, Earth doesn't come first, actually. With me, it does. Keyes looked at him sideways. Does it? You want to make this world into Earth's image, huh? A desert of cement? When I say earth keys, I mean people, men. You worry about deer and trees, that's your thing. But I like to see things in perspective from the top down. And the top, so far, is humans. We're here now, and so this world's going to go our way. Like it or not, it's a fact you have to face. It's the way things are. Listen, keys, I'm going to hop down to Central and take a look at the new colonists. Want to come along? No thanks, Captain Davison? 
The spesh went on towards the lab hut. He was really mad about those damned deer. They were great animals, all right. Davison's vivid memory recalled the first one he had seen, a big red shadow, two meters at the shoulder, a crown of narrow golden antlers, a fleet brave beast, the finest game animal imaginable. These things were a hunter's dream, so they'd be hunted. Hell, even the wild creatures hunted them with their lousy little bows. The deer would be hunted because that's what they were there for. But poor old bleeding heart Keys couldn't see it. He was actually a smart fellow, but not realistic, not tough-minded enough. He didn't see that you've got to play on the winning side or else you lose. And it's man that wins every time, the old conquistador. Davison strode on through the settlement, morning sunlight in his eyes, the smell of sawn wood and wood smoke sweet on the warm air. Things looked pretty neat for a logging camp. The 200 men here had tamed a fair patch of wilderness in just three E-months. Smith Camp, a couple of big choroplast geodesics, 40 timber huts built by Creechy labor, the sawmill, the burner trailing a blue plume over acres of logs and cut lumber, uphill the airfield and the big prefab hangar for helicopters and heavy machinery. That was all. But when they came here, there had been nothing. A dark huddle and jumble and tangle of trees, endless, meaningless. A sluggish river overhung and choked by trees, a few creechy warrens hidden among the trees, some red deer, hairy monkeys, birds, and trees. Roots, branches, leaves overhead and underfoot and in your face and in your eyes, endless leaves on endless trees. New Tahiti was mostly water, warm, shallow seas broken here and there by reefs, islets, archipelagos, and the five big lands that lay in a 2,500-kilo arc across the northwest quarter sphere. And all those flecks and blobs of land were covered with trees. Ocean, forest, that was your choice on New Tahiti. Water and sunlight, or darkness and leaves. But men were here now to end the darkness and turn the tree jumble into clean, sawn planks, more prized on earth than gold. And it was a really necessary luxury on earth. So the alien forests became wood. Two hundred men with robo-saws and haulers had already cut eight mile-wide strips on Smithland in three months. The stumps of the strip nearest camp were already white and punky, chemically treated. They would have fallen into fertile ash by the time the permanent colonists, the farmers, came to settle Smithland. All the farmers would have to do was plant seeds and let them sprout. It had been done once before. That was a queer thing, and the proof, actually, that New Tahiti was intended for humans to take over. All the stuff here had come from Earth about a million years ago, and the evolution had followed so close a path that you recognized things at once. Pine, oak, walnut, fir, holly, apple, ash, deer, bird, mouse, cat, monkey. But the humans had died out. And the nearest thing that had developed from the monkey line to replace them was the creechy, a meter tall and covered with green fur. As ETs, they were about standard, but as men, they were a bust. They just hadn't made it. Give them another million years, maybe. But the conquistadors had arrived first. Evolution moved now not at the pace of a random mutation once a millennium, but with the speed of the starships of the Terran fleet. Hey, Captain! Davison turned only a microsecond late in his reaction, but that was late enough to annoy him. There was something about this damn planet, its gold sunlight and its hazy sky, its mild winds smelling of leaf mold and pollen, something that made you daydream, till you were acting as thick and slow as a creechy. Morning, Ock. Black and tough as wire rope, Oknanawi Nabo was Key's physical opposite, 
but he had the same worried look. You got half a minute? Sure, what's eating you? The little bastards. They leaned on a split rail fence. Davison laid his first reefer of the day. Sunlight, smoke-blued, slanted warm across the air. The forest behind camp, a quarter-mile-wide uncut strip, was full of the faint, ceaseless, whirring, silvery noises that woods in the morning are full of. It might have been Idaho in 1950, this clearing, or Kentucky in 1830, or Gaul in 50 B.C. I'd like to get rid of them, Captain. The creatures? How do you mean? Just let them go. I can't get enough work out of them in the mill to make up for their keep, or their being such a damn headache. They just don't work. They do, if you know how to make them. They built the camp. Well, you got the touch with them, I guess. I don't. In that applied history course I took in training for far out, it said that slavery never worked. It was uneconomical. Right, but this isn't slavery, Ock, baby. Slaves are humans. When you raise cows, you call that slavery? No, and it works. They're too little. I tried starving the sulky ones. They just sit and starve. They're little, all right, but don't let them fool you. They're tough. They got terrific endurance, and they don't feel pain like humans. You think hitting one is like hitting a kid, sort of. Believe me, it's more like hitting a robot for all they feel it. Look, you've laid some of the females. You know how they don't seem to feel anything, no pleasure, no pain. They just lay there like mattresses no matter what you do. Probably they've got more primitive nerves than humans do, like fish. I'll tell you a weird one about that. When I was in Central, before I came up here, one of the tame males jumped me once. I know they'll tell you they never fight, but this one went right off his nut, and lucky he wasn't armed or he'd have killed me. I had to damn near kill him before he'd even let go, and he kept coming back. It was incredible the beating he took, and never even felt it, like some beetle you have to keep stepping on because it doesn't know it's been squashed already. Look at this. Davison bent down his close-cropped head to show a gnawed lump behind one ear. That was damn near concussion. And he did it after I'd broken his arm and pounded his face into cranberry sauce. And he just kept coming back and coming back. The creatures are lazy, they're dumb, they're treacherous, but they don't feel pain. You gotta be tough with them and stay tough with them. They aren't worth the trouble. Damn sulky little green bastards. They won't fight, won't work, won't nothing except give me the pip. Look, Ock, try this. Pick out the ringleaders and tell them you're going to give them a shot of hallucinogen. They're scared of them. Don't overwork it, and it'll work. I can guarantee. Why are they scared of Hallie's? How do I know? Why are women scared of rats? Don't look for good sense from women or creatures, Ock. Fact is, Captain, they give me the creeps. That was queer, coming from a tough, quiet guy like Ock. Well, I agree with you that they're not worth the trouble or the risk. If that fart Luboff wasn't around and the colonel wasn't so stuck on following the code, I think we might just clean out the areas we settle instead of this voluntary labor routine. They're going to get rubbed out sooner or later, and it might as well be sooner. Primitive races always have to give way to civilized ones or be assimilated. But we sure as hell can't assimilate a lot of green monkeys. And like you say, they're just bright enough that they'll never be quite trustworthy. We'll get on better without creatures here. They're in our way. But Daddy Ding Dong, he say use creechy labor, so we use creechy labor, right? See you tonight. Right, Captain. Davison checked out the hopper from Smith Camp HQ. 
As he brought the helicopter back over camp, he looked down at it. Long, stump-stubbled clearings, all shrinking as the machine rose, and he saw the green of the uncut forests of the great island. And beyond that dark green, the pale green of the sea going on and on. He crossed Smith Straits and the wooded, deep-folded ranges of North Central Island and came down by noon in Centralville. It looked like a city, at least after three months in the woods. There were real streets, real buildings. It had been there since the colony began four years ago. You didn't see what a flimsy little frontier town it really was until you looked south of it a half mile and saw glittering above the stump lands and the concrete pads a single golden tower taller than anything in Centralville. The ship wasn't a big one, but it looked so big here. And it was only a launch, a ship's boat. The NAFAL ship of the line, Shackleton, was a half million kilos up in orbit. The launch was just a hint of the hugeness, the power, the precision and grandeur of the star-bridging technology of Earth. That was why tears came to Davison's eyes for a second at the sight of the ship from home. He wasn't ashamed of it. He was a patriotic man. It just happened to be the way he was made. Walking down those frontier town streets with their wide vistas of nothing much at each end, he began to smile. He went to Central HQ, Quickstone and Plastiplate, 40 offices and a basement arsenal, and checked in with the new Tahiti Central Colonial Administration Command. He met a couple of the launch crew, put in a request for a robo-bark stripper, and got his old pal Juju Sering to meet him at the Luau Bar at 1400. He got to the bar an hour early to stock up on a little food before the drinking began. Lyubov was there, sitting with a couple of guys in fleet uniform, some kind of specials that had come down on the Shackleton's launch. Davison didn't have a high regard for the Navy. A lot of fancy sunhoppers who left the dirty, dangerous on-planet work to the Army. But brass was brass, and anyhow, it was funny to see Lyubov acting chummy with anybody in uniform. He was talking, waving his hands around the way he did. Just in passing, Davison tapped his shoulder. Hi, Raj, old pal. How's tricks? He went on without waiting for the scowl, though he hated to miss it. It was really funny the way Lubov hated him. Probably the guy was effeminate like a lot of intellectuals and resented Davison's virility. Anyhow, Davison wasn't going to waste any time hating Lubov. He wasn't worth the trouble. The luau served a first-rate venison steak. What would they say on old earth if they saw one man eating a kilo of meat at one meal? Poor damn soybean suckers. Then Juju arrived with the pick of the new collie girls, two beauties, not brides, but recreation staff. It was a long, hot afternoon. Flying back to camp, he crossed Smith Straits level with the sun that lay on top of a great gold bed of haze over the sea. He sang as he lolled in the pilot seat, Smithland came in sight, hazy, and there was a smoke over the camp, a dark smudge as if oil had gotten into the waste burner. He couldn't even make out the buildings through it. It was only as he dropped down to the landing field that he saw the charred jet, the wrecked hoppers, and the burned-out hangar. He pulled the hopper up again and flew back over the camp, so low that he might have hit the high cone of the burner, the only thing left sticking up. The rest was gone. Mill, furnace, lumberyards, HQ, barracks, Creechy compound, everything. Black hulks and wrecks still smoking. But it hadn't been a forest fire. The forest stood there, green, next to the ruins. Davison swung back round to the field, sat down and lit out looking for the motorbike. But it, too, was a black wreck along with the smoldering ruins of the hangar and the machinery. He loped down the path to camp. 
As you passed what had been the radio hut, his mind snapped back into gear. Without hesitating, he changed course behind the gutted shack. There he stopped. He listened. There was nobody. It was all silent. The fires had been out a long time. Only the great lumber piles still smoldered, showing a hot red under the ash. But no smoke rose from the black skeletons of the barracks and huts, and there were bones among the ashes. Davison's brain was super clear and active now as he crouched behind the radio shack. There were two possibilities. One, an attack from another camp. Some officer on King or New Java had gone splaw and was trying a coup de planete. Two, an attack from off-planet. Some unknown race, or maybe the Satians or the Hainish had decided to move in on Earth's colonies. He never trusted those damn smart humanoids. This must have been done with a heat bomb. He must get back to his hopper and send out the alarm, then try a look around, reconnoiter, so that he could tell HQ his assessment of the actual situation. He was just straightening up when he heard the voices. Not human voices. High, soft, gabble-gobble. Aliens. Ducking on hands and knees behind the shack's plastic roof, which lay on the ground deformed by heat, he held still and listened. Four creatures walked by a few yards from him on the path. They were wild creatures, naked except for the loose leather belts on which knives and pouches hung. None wore the shorts and leather collar supplied to tame creatures. The volunteers in the compound must have been incinerated along with the humans. They stopped a little way past his hiding place, talking their slow gabble-gobble, and Davison held his breath. What the devil were creatures doing here? They could only be serving as scouts for the invaders. One pointed south as it talked and turned so that Davison saw its face, and he recognized it. Creechies all looked alike, but this one was different. He had written his own signature all over that face less than a year ago. It was the one that had gone splaw and attacked him down in Central, the homicidal one, Lyubov's pet. What in the blue hell was it doing here? Davison's mind raced. He stood up, sudden, tall, easy, gun in hand. You creechies, stop, stay put, no moving. The four little green creatures did not move. The one with the smashed-in face looked at him across the black rubble with huge blank eyes that had no light in them. Answer now. This fire. Who started? Hurry up quick. No answer, then I burn up first one. Then one, then one. See? This fire. Who started? We burned the camp, Captain Davison. The humans are all dead. You burned it. What do you mean? There were two hundred humans here, ninety slaves of my people. Nine hundred of my people came out of the forest. First we killed the humans in the place in the forest where they were cutting trees. Then we killed those in this place while the houses were burning. I had thought you were killed. I am glad to see you, Captain Davison. It was all crazy, and of course a lie. They couldn't have killed all of them, Auk. Berno, Van Sten, all the rest, two hundred men, some of them would have got out. All the creatures had was bows and arrows. Anyway, the creatures couldn't have done this. Creatures didn't fight, didn't kill, didn't have wars. They were intraspecies, non-aggressive. They didn't fight back. They sure as hell didn't massacre two hundred men at a swipe. It was crazy. The silence, the faint stink of burning in the warm evening light, the pale green faces with unmoving eyes that watched him, it all added up to a crazy bad dream, a nightmare. Who did this for you? Nine hundred of my people. No, not that. Who else? Who are you acting for? Who told you what to do? 
my wife did. Davison saw then the telltale tension of the creature's stance, yet it sprang at him so lithe and oblique that his shot missed, burning an arm or shoulder instead of smack between the eyes. And the creature was on him, half his size and weight, yet knocking him right off balance, for he had been relying on the gun and not expecting attack. The thing's arms were thin, tough, coarse-furred in his grip. As he struggled with it, it sang. He was down on his back, pinned down, disarmed. Four green muzzles looked down at him. The scar-faced one was still singing a breathless gabble, but with a tune to it. The other three listened, their white teeth showing in grins. He had never seen a creechy smile. He had never looked up into a creechy's face from below, always down from above. He tried not to struggle, for at the moment it was wasted effort. Little as they were, they outnumbered him, and Scarface had his gun. He must wait. But there was a sickness in him, a nausea that made his body twitch and strain against his will. The small hands held him down effortlessly. The small green faces bobbed over him, grinning. Scarface ended his song. He knelt on Davison's chest, a knife in one hand, Davison's gun in the other. You can't sing, Captain Davison, is that right? Well, then, you may run to your hopper and fly away and tell the colonel in Central that this place is burned and the humans are all killed. Blood, the same startling red as human blood, clotted the fur of the creature's right arm, and the knife shook in the green paw. The sharp, scarred face looked down into Davison's from very close, and he could see now the queer light that burned way down in the charcoal dark eyes. The voice was still soft and quiet. They let him go. He got up cautiously. The creatures stood well away from him now, knowing his reach was twice theirs. But Scarface wasn't the only one armed. There was a second gun pointing at his guts. That was Ben holding the gun his own creechy Ben, the little gray mangy bastard. It's hard to turn your back on two pointing guns, but Davison did and started walking towards the field. A voice behind him said some creechy word, shrill and loud, and there was a queer noise like birds twittering that must be creechy laughter. A shot clapped and whined on the road right by him. Christ, it wasn't fair. They had the guns and he wasn't armed. He began to run. Selver! That was the creature's name. Sam, they'd called him, till Luboff stopped Davison from giving him what he deserved and made a pet out of him. Then they'd called him Selver. Christ, what was all this? It was a nightmare. The blood thundered in his ears. He ran through the golden, smoky evening. They didn't dare kill him, Davison. They hadn't shot at him again. They couldn't kill him. There was the hopper, and he lunged into the seat and had her up before the creatures could try anything. He circled the hill and then came back, fast and low, looking for the four creatures, but nothing moved in the rubble of the camp. There had been a camp there this morning, two hundred men. There had been four creatures there just now. He hadn't dreamed all this. They couldn't just disappear. They were there, hiding. He opened up the machine gun in the hopper's nose and raked the burned ground, shot holes in the green leaves of the forest, strafed the burned bones and cold bodies of his men and the wrecked machinery and the rotting white stumps, returning again and again until the ammo was gone and the gun's spasms stopped short. Davison's hands were steady, his body felt appeased, and he knew he wasn't caught in any dream. He headed back over the straits to take the news to Centralville. Maybe they'd see that it was significant that the creatures had struck while he was gone, knowing they'd fail if he was there to organize the defense. And there was one good thing that would come out of this. 
They'd do like they should have done to start with and clean up the planet for human occupation. Not even Lyubov could stop them from rubbing out the creatures now. Not when they heard it was Lyubov's pet creature who had led the massacre. They'd go in for rat extermination for a while now, and maybe, just maybe, they'd hand that little job over to him. At that thought, he could have smiled, but he kept his face calm. The sea under him was grayish with twilight, and ahead of him lay the island hills, the deep-folded forests in the dusk. All the colors of sunset, rust reds and pale greens, changed ceaselessly in the long leaves as the wind blew. The roots of the willows, thick and ridged, were moss green down by the running water, which, like the wind, moved slowly with many soft eddies, held back by rocks, roots, hanging and fallen leaves. No way was clear, no light unbroken in the forest. Little paths ran under the branches, around the bowls, over the roots. They did not go straight, but yielded to every obstacle, devious as nerves. The ground was not dry and solid, but damp and rather springy, product of the collaboration of living things with the long, elaborate death of leaves and trees. And from that rich graveyard grew ninety-foot trees and tiny mushrooms that sprouted in circles half an inch across. The smell of the air was subtle and sweet. The view was never long unless looking up through the branches you caught sight of the stars. Nothing was pure, arid, plain. There was no seeing everything at once, no certainty. The colors of rust and sunset kept changing in the hanging leaves of the copper willows, and you could not say even whether the leaves of the willows were brownish-red or reddish-green or green. Selver came up a path beside the water, going slowly and often stumbling on the willow roots. He saw an old man dreaming and stopped. The old man looked at him through the long willow leaves and saw him in his dreams. May I come to your lodge, my lord dreamer? I've come a long way. The old man sat still. Presently Selver squatted down on his heels just off the path beside the stream. His head drooped down, for he was worn out and had to sleep. He had been walking five days. Are you of the dream time or of the world time? Of the world time. Come along with me, then. The old man got up promptly and led Selver up the wandering path out of the willow grove into drier, darker regions of oak and thorn. I took you for a god and it seemed to me I had seen you before, perhaps in dream. Not in the world time. I come from Sornal. I have never been here before. This town is Cadist. I am Koro Mena, of the White Thorn. Selver is my name, of the Ash. There are Ash people among us, both men and women, also your marriage clans, Birch and Holly. But you don't come looking for a wife, do you? My wife is dead. They came to the men's lodge on high ground in a stand of young oaks. They stooped and crawled through the entrance. Inside in the firelight, the old man stood up, but Selber stayed crouched on hands and knees, unable to rise. Now that help and comfort was at hand, his body, which he had forced too far, would not go farther. 
He lay down and the eyes closed, and Selver slipped with relief and gratitude into the great darkness. The men of the lodge of Caddist looked after him, and their healer came to tend the wound in his right arm. In the night, Coromena and the healer Torber sat by the fire. Most of the other men were with their wives that night. There were only a couple of young prentice dreamers over on the benches, and they had both gone fast asleep. I don't know what would give a man such scars as he has on his face, and much less such a wound as that in his arm. A very queer wound. It's a queer engine he wore on his belt. I put it under his bench. It looks like polished iron, but not like the handiwork of men. Coromena felt fear press upon him and slipped into dream to find the reason for the fear, for he was an old man and long adept. In the dream, the giants walked. Their dry, scaly limbs were swathed in cloths. Their eyes were little and light, like tin beads. Behind them crawled huge moving things made of polished iron. The trees fell down in front of them. Out from among the falling trees, a man ran, crying aloud with blood on his mouth. The path he ran on was the door path of the lodge of Caddist. Coromena slid out of the dream. He came overseas straight from Sorno, or else came afoot from the coast of our own land. The giants are in both those places, travelers say. He dreamed sometimes, being very old and not so strong as he had been, as he slipped off to sleep for a while. Day broke, noon passed. Outside the lodge, a hunting party went out. Children chirped. Women talked in voices like running water. A drier voice called Coromena from the door. He crawled out into the evening sunlight. His sister stood outside, looking stern. Has the stranger waked up, Coro? Not yet. Torber's looking after him. We must hear his story. No doubt he'll wake soon. Ebor Dendep frowned. Headwoman of Caddist, she was anxious for her people, but she did not want to ask that a hurt man be disturbed, nor to offend the dreamers by insisting on her right to enter their lodge. Can't you wake him, Coro? What if he is being pursued? He could not run his sister's emotions on the same rein with his own, yet he felt them. Her anxiety bit him. If Torber permits, I will. Try to learn his news quickly. I wish he was a woman and would talk sense. The stranger had roused himself and lay feverish in the half-dark of the lodge. The undrained dreams of illness moved in his eyes. He sat up, however, and spoke with control. As he listened, Coromena's bones seemed to shrink within him, trying to hide from his terrible story, this new thing. I was Selber Thaley when I lived in Eshreth in Sornal. My city was destroyed by the humans when they cut down the trees in that region. I was one of those made to serve them with my wife, Thaley. She was raped by one of them and died. I attacked the human that killed her. He would have killed me then, but another of them saved me and set me free. I left Sornal where no town is safe from the humans now, and came here to the North Isle and lived on the coast in the Red Groves. There presently the humans came and began to cut down the world. They destroyed a city there, Penleth. 
they caught a hundred of the men and women and made them serve them and live in the pen. I was not caught. I lived with others who had escaped from Penla in the bogland north. Sometimes at night I went among the people in the humans' pens. They told me that one was there, that one whom I had tried to kill. I thought at first to try again, or else to set the people in the pen free. But all the time I watched the trees fall and saw the world cut open and left to rot. The men might have escaped, but the women were locked in more safely and could not, and were beginning to die. I talked with the people hiding there in the boglands. We were all very frightened and very angry, and had no way to let our fear and anger free. So at last, after long talking and long dreaming, and the making of a plan, we went in daylight and killed the humans with arrows and hunting lances and burned their city and their engines. We left nothing, but that one had gone away. He came back alone. I sang over him and let him go. Then a flying ship came from Sornal and hunted us in the forest, but found nobody. So they set fire to the forest, but it rained, and they did little harm. Most of the people freed from the pens, and the others have gone farther north and east toward the Hala Hills, for we were afraid many humans might come hunting us. I went alone. The humans know me, you see. They know my face, and this frightens me and those I stay with. What is your wound? That one. He shot me with their kind of weapon. I sang him down and let him go. Alone you downed a giant? Not alone, with three hunters and with his weapon in my hand. What you tell us is very black, and the road goes down. Are you a dreamer of your lodge? I was. There's no lodge of Esreth anymore. That's all one. We speak the old tongue together. Among the willows of Asta you first spoke to me calling me Lord Dreamer. So I am. Do you dream, Selver? Not well. Do you hold the dream in your hands? Yes. Do you weave and shape, direct? and follow, start and cease at will? Sometimes, not always. Can you walk the road your dream goes? Sometimes. Sometimes I am afraid to. Who is not? It is not altogether bad with you, Selver. No, it is altogether bad. There's nothing good left. Will the giants, the humans, you call them, will they follow your trail, Selver? I left no trail. No one has seen me for six days. That's not the danger. You don't see the danger. How can you see it? You haven't done what I did. You have never dreamed of it, making two hundred people die. They will not follow me, but they may follow us all. Hunt us as hunters drive conies. That is the danger, that they may try to kill us, to kill us all, all men. 
Lie down. No, I'm not raving. This is true fact and dream. There were two hundred humans, and they are dead. We kill them as if they were not men. So will they not turn and do the same? They have killed us by ones. Now they will kill us as they kill the trees by hundreds and hundreds. Be still. Such things happen in the fever dream, Selver. They do not happen in the world. The world is always new, however old its roots. Selver, how is it with these creatures, then? They look like men and talk like men. Are they not men? I don't know. Do men kill men except in madness? Does any beast kill its own kind? Only the insects. These humans kill us as lightly as we kill snakes. The ones who taught me said that they kill one another in quarrels and also in groups like ants fighting. I haven't seen that, but I know they don't spare one who asks life. There is a wish in them to kill, and therefore I saw fit to put them to death. And all men's dreams will be changed. They will never be the same again. I shall never walk again that path I came with you yesterday, the way up from the willow grove that I've walked on all my life. It is changed. You have walked on it, and it is utterly changed. Before this day, the thing we had to do was the right thing to do. The way we had to go was the right way and led us home. Where is our home now? For you've done what you had to do, and it was not right. You have killed men. I saw them five years ago when they came in a flying ship. I hid and watched the giants, six of them, and saw them speak and look at rocks and plants and cook food. They are men, but you have lived among them. Tell me, Selver, do they dream? As children do in sleep. They have no training. No. Sometimes they talk of their dreams. The healers try to use them in healing, but none of them are trained or have any skill in dreaming. Lyubov, who taught me, understood me when I showed him how to dream, and yet even so he called the world time real and the dream time unreal, as if that were the difference between them. You have done what you had to do. His eyes met Selber's across shadows. The desperate tension lessened in Selber's face. He lay back without saying more. In a little while, he was asleep. He's a god, but not like the others. Not like the pursuer, nor the aspen-leaf woman who walks in the forest of dreams. He is not the gatekeeper, nor the lyre-player, nor the carver, nor the hunter, though he comes in the world time like them. We may have dreamed of Selver these last few years, but we shall no longer, for he has left the dream time. In the forest, through the forest he comes, where leaves fall, where trees fall, a god that knows death, a god that kills and is not himself reborn. The headwoman listened to Coromena's reports and prophecies and acted. She put the town of Cadist on alert, 
making sure that each family was ready to move out with some food packed and litters ready for the old and ill. She sent young women scouting south and east for news of the humans. She kept one armed hunting group always around town, though the others went out as usual every night. And when Selver grew stronger, she insisted that he come out of the lodge and tell his story how the humans killed and enslaved people in Sornal and cut down the forests. She forced women and undreaming men who did not understand these things to listen again until they understood and were frightened. For Ebor Dendep was a practical woman. When a great dreamer, her brother, told her that Selver was a god, a changer, a bridge between realities, she believed and acted. It was the dreamer's responsibility to be careful, to be certain that his judgment was true. Her responsibility was then to take that judgment and act upon it. He saw what must be done. She saw that it was done. So the headwoman sent out her young runners, and the headwomen in other towns listened and sent out their runners. The killing and the name of Selver went over North Island and over sea to the other lands, from voice to voice or in writing, not very fast, for the forest people had no quicker messengers than foot-runners, yet fast enough. They were not all one people on the forty lands of the world. There were more languages than lands, and each with a different dialect for every town that spoke it. There were infinite ramifications of customs. Physical types differed on each of the five great lands. The people of Sornal were tall and pale and great traders. The people of Rishwell were short, and many had black fur, and they ate monkeys, and so on and on. But the climate varied little, and the forest little, and the sea not at all. In all the forty lands, women ran the cities and towns, and almost every town had a men's lodge. Within the lodges, the dreamers spoke an old tongue, and this varied little from land to land. It was rarely learned by women or by men who remained hunters, fishers, builders, those who dreamed only small dreams outside the lodge. As most writing was in this lodge tongue, when headwomen sent fleet girls carrying messages, the letters went from lodge to lodge, and so were interpreted by the dreamers to the old women, as were other documents, rumors, myths, and dreams. But it was always the old women's choice whether to believe or not. Ebor Dendep hummed as she worked. Her thin hands, their silky green down, silvered with age, worked black fern stems in and out. She sang a song about gathering ferns, a girl's song, the birch grove was more or less in the center of the town of Cadist. Eight paths led away from it, winding narrowly off among trees. There was a whiff of wood smoke in the air. Where the branches were thin at the south edge of the grove, you could see smoke rise from a chimney, like a bit of blue yarn unraveling among the leaves. If you looked closely among the live oaks and other trees, you would find house roofs sticking up a couple of feet above ground, between a hundred and two hundred of them. It was very hard to count. The timber houses were three-quarters sunk, fitted in among tree roots like badger's sets. The beam roofs were mounded over with a thatch of small branches. They were insulating, waterproof, almost invisible. The forest and the community of 800 people went about their business all around the birch grove where Ebor Dendep sat making a basket of fern. There was more people noise than usual, for fifty or sixty strangers, young men and women mostly, had come drifting in these last few days, drawn by Selver's presence. Some were from other cities of the north. Some were those who had done the killing with him. They had followed rumor here to follow him. Yet the voices calling here and there and the babble of women bathing or children playing down by the stream were not so loud as the morning bird song and insect drone and noise of the living forest of which the town was one element. 
A girl came quickly, a young huntress the color of the pale birch. Word of mouth from the southern coast, mother. The runner's at the women's lodge. Send her here when she's eaten. Shh, Tolbar, can't you see he's asleep? The girl stooped to pick up a large leaf of wild tobacco and laid it lightly over Selber's eyes, on which a shaft of the steepening bright sunlight had fallen. He lay with his hands half open and his scarred, damaged face turned upward, vulnerable and foolish, a great dreamer gone to sleep like a child. But it was the girl's face that Ibor Dendev watched. It shone in that uneasy shade with pity and terror, with adoration. Tolbar darted away. Presently, two of the old women came with a messenger, moving in single file along the sun-flecked path. Ibor Dendep raised her hand, enjoining silence. Selver, struggling with a sleep dream beyond his control, cried out as if in great fear and woke. He went to drink from the stream. When he came back, he was followed by six or seven of those who always followed him. The head woman put down her half-finished work. Now be welcome, runner, and speak. I come from Trethat. My words come from Sorbron Deva, before that from Sailors of the Strait, before that from Broter in Sornal. They are for the hearing of all Cadist, but they are to be spoken to the man called Selver, who was born of the ash in Eshreth. Here are the words. There are new giants in the great city of the giants in Sornal, and many of these new ones are females. The yellow ship of fire goes up and down at the place that was called Peha. It is known in Sornal that Selver of Eshreth burned the city of the giants at Kelmadeva. The great dreamers of the exiles in Broter have dreamed giants more numerous than the trees of the forty lands. These are all the words of the message I bear. There was one called Lubov. I have spoken of him to Koromena, but not to you. When that one was killing me, it was Lyubov who saved me. It was Lyubov who healed me and set me free. He wanted to know about us, so I would tell him what he asked, and he too would tell me what I asked. Once I asked how his race could survive, having so few women. He said that in the place where they come from, half the race is women. But the men would not bring women to the forty lands until they had made a place ready for them. Until the men make a fit place for the women, well, they may have quite a weight. They make the forest into a dry beach, and call that making things ready for the women? They should have sent the women first. They are backward, Selber. They are insane. A people can't be insane. But they only dream in sleep, you said. If they want to dream waking, they take poison so that their dreams go out of control, you said. How can people be any matter? They don't know the dream time from the world time any more than a baby does. Maybe when they kill a tree, they think it will come alive again. No, they understand death very well. Certainly they don't see as we do, but they know more and understand more about certain things than we do. Lyubov mostly understood what I told him. Much of what he told me I couldn't understand. It wasn't the language that kept me from understanding. I know his tongue and he learned ours. Yet there were things he said I could never understand. He said the humans were from outside the forest. That's quite clear. He said they want the forest, the trees for wood, the land to plant grass on. That too is clear, 
to those of us who've seen them cutting down the world. He said the humans are men like us, that we're indeed related as close kin maybe as the red deer to the gray buck. It is clear that they want our forests for themselves. They are twice our stature. They have weapons that outshoot ours by far, and fire-throwers and flying ships. Now they have brought more women and will have children. There are maybe two thousand, maybe three thousand of them here now, mostly in Sornal. But if we wait a lifetime or two, their numbers will double and redouble. They kill men and women. They do not spare those who ask life. They cannot sing in contest. They have left their roots behind them. Perhaps in this other forest from which they came, this forest with no trees. So they take poison to let loose the dreams in them, but it only makes them drunk or sick. No one can say certain whether they're men or not men, whether they're sane or insane, but that does not matter. They must be made to leave the forest, because they are dangerous. If they will not go, they must be burned out of the lands. If we wait, it is we that will be smoked out and burned. Head woman of Cadest, hear me. It's time, I think, that I go back to my own land, to those that are in exile and those that are enslaved. Tell any people who dream of a city burning to come after me to Broter. He bowed to Ebor Dendep and left the birch grove, still walking lame, his arm bandaged. Yet there was a quickness to his walk, a poise to his head that made him seem more whole than other men. The young people followed quietly after him. Who is he? The man to whom your message came, Selver of Eshreth, a god among us. Tell your people in Trethat of him, the son of forest fire, the brother of the murdered. He is the one who is not reborn. Now go on, all of you, go on to the lodge. See who'll be going with Selver. See about food for them to carry. Let me be a while. I'm as full of foreboding as a stupid old man. I must dream. Coromena went with Selber that night as far as the place where they first met, under the copper willows by the stream. Many people were following Selber south, some sixty in all, as great a troop as most people had ever seen on the move at once. They would cause great stir and thus gather many more to them on their way to the sea crossing to Sornal. Selver had claimed his dreamer's privilege of solitude for this one night. He was setting off alone. His followers would catch up in the morning. He would have little time for the slow and deep running of the great dreams. Here we met, and here we part. This will be called Selver's Grove, no doubt, by the people who walk our paths hereafter. You are surer of me than I am. Yes, I'm sure, Selver. I was well taught in dreaming, and then I'm old. I dream very little for myself any more. Why should I? Little is new to me. I'm an old hollow tree. Only the roots live. And so I dream only what all men dream. I have no visions and no wishes. I see what is. I see the fruit ripening on the branch. Four years it has been ripening, that fruit of the deep-planted tree. We have all been afraid for four years, 
even we who live far from the human cities and have only glimpsed them from hiding or seen their ships fly over or looked at the dead places where they cut down the world. We are all afraid. Children wake from sleep crying of giants. Women will not go far on their trading journeys. Men in the lodges cannot sing. The fruit of fear is ripening, and I see you gather it. All that we fear to know you have seen, you have known. Exile, shame, pain, the roof and walls of the world fallen, the mother dead in misery, the children untaught. This is a new time for the world, a bad time, and you have suffered it all. You have gone farthest, and at the end of the black path there grows the tree where the fruit ripens. Now, Selver, you gather it, and the world changes wholly. When a man holds in his hand the fruit of that tree whose roots are deeper than the forest, men will know it. They will know you as we did. It doesn't take an old man or a great dreamer to recognize a god. Where you go, fire burns. But listen, Silver, this is what I see that perhaps others do not. This is why I have loved you. I dreamed of you before we met here. You were walking on a path, and behind you the young trees grew up, oak and birch, willow and holly, white flowering ash, all the roof and walls of the world forever renewed. Now farewell, dear God and son. Go safely. The night darkened as Selver went until even his night-seeing eyes saw nothing but masses and plains of black. It began to rain. He had gone only a few miles from Cadist when he must either light a torch or halt. He chose to halt, and groping found a place among the roots of a great chestnut tree. There he sat, his back against the broad, twisting bowl that seemed to hold a little warmth in it still. The fine rain, falling unseen in darkness, pattered on the leaves overhead, on his arms and neck and head protected by their thick, silky hair, on the earth and ferns and undergrowth nearby, on all the leaves of the forest, near and far. Selver sat as quiet as the gray owl on a branch above him, unsleeping, his eyes wide open in the rainy dark. Captain Raj Lyubov had a headache. It began softly and mounted crescendo to a smashing drumbeat over his right ear. What would the Athshians do for a migraine? They wouldn't have one. They would have daydreamed the tensions away a week before they got them. Try it. Try daydreaming. Begin as Selber taught you. Although knowing nothing of electricity, he could not really grasp the principle of the EEG. As soon as he heard about alpha waves, and when they appear, he had said, Oh, yes, you mean this and there appeared the unmistakable alpha squiggles on the graph recording, what went on inside his small green head, and he had taught Lyubov how to turn on and off the alpha rhythms in one half-hour session. There really was nothing to it, but not now. The world is too much with us, for the Athshians had burned Smith Camp day before yesterday and killed two hundred men, two hundred and seven to be precise, every man alive except the captain. Nearly five years here, and he had believed the Athshians to be incapable of killing men, his kind or their kind. 
He had written long papers to explain how and why they couldn't kill men. All wrong. Dead wrong. What had he failed to see? It was nearly time to be going over to the meeting at HQ. Cautiously, Lyubov stood up, moving all in one piece so that the right side of his head would not fall off. He approached his desk with the gait of a man underwater, poured out a shot of vodka, and drank it. It turned him inside out. It extroverted him. It normalized him. He felt better. He went out and started to walk down the long, dusty main street of Centralville to HQ. Passing the luau, he thought with greed of another vodka, but Captain Davison was just going in the door, and Lyubov went on. The people from the Shackleton were already in the conference room. Commander Jung, whom he had met before, had brought some new faces down from orbit this time. They were not in Navy uniform. After a moment, Lyubov recognized them, with a slight shock, as non-Terran humans. He sought an introduction at once. One, Mr. Orr, was a hairy Satian, dark gray, stocky, and dour. The other, Mr. Lepenin, was tall, white, and comely, a Hainishman. They greeted Lyubov with interest, and Lepenin said, I've just been reading your report on the conscious control of paradoxical sleep among the Athshians, Dr. Lyubov. It was pleasant to be called by his own earned title of doctor. Their conversation indicated they had spent some years on Earth, and that they might be Hilfers, or something like it, but the commander introducing them had not mentioned their status or position. The room was filling up. Gossa, the colony ecologist, came in. So did all the high brass. So did Captain Susan, head of planetary development, logging operations, whose captaincy, like Lyubov's, was an invention necessary to the peace of the military mind. Captain Davison came in alone, straight-backed and handsome, his lean, rugged face calm and rather stern, Guards stood at all the doors. The conference was plainly an investigation. Whose fault? My fault, Lyubov thought despairingly. But out of his despair, he looked across the table at Captain Don Davison with detestation and contempt. Commander Jung had a very quiet voice. As you know, gentlemen, my ship stopped here at World 41 to drop you off a new load of colonists, and nothing more. Shackleton's mission is to World 88, Presno, one of the Hainish group. However, this attack on your outpost camp, since it chanced to occur during our week here, can't be simply ignored, particularly in the light of certain developments, which you would have been informed of a little later in the normal course of events. The fact is that the status of World 41 as an Earth colony is now subject to revision and the massacre at your camp may precipitate the administration's decisions on it. Certainly the decisions we can make must be made quickly, for I can't keep my ship here long. First, we wish to make sure that the relevant facts are all in the possession of those present. Captain Davison's report on the events at Smith Camp was heard by us all. Now, if there are questions any of you wish to ask Captain Davison, go ahead. I have one myself. You return to the site of the camp the following day, Captain Davison, in a large hopper with eight soldiers. Had you the permission of a senior officer here at Central for that flight? I did, sir. Were you authorized to land and set fires in the forest near the campsite? No, sir. Did you, however, set fires? I did, sir. I was trying to smoke out the creatures that killed my men. Very well. 
Mr. Lepenon. Captain Davison, do you think that the people under your command at Smith Camp were mostly content? Yes, I do. Davison's manner was firm and forthright. He seemed indifferent to the fact that he was in trouble. Of course, these Navy officers and foreigners had no authority over him. It was to his own colonel that he must answer for losing two hundred men and making unauthorized reprisals. But his colonel was right there, listening. They were all well-fed, well-housed, not overworked, as well as can be managed in a frontier camp? Yes. Was the discipline very harsh? No, it was not. What, then, do you think motivated the revolt? I don't understand. If none of them were discontented, why did some of them massacre the rest and destroy the camp? There was a worried silence. May I put in a word? It was the native hilfs, the Athians employed in the camp, who joined with an attack by the forest people against the Terran humans. In his report, Captain Davison referred to the Athians as creatures. Thank you, Dr. Lubov. I misunderstood entirely. Actually, I took the word creature to stand for a Terran caste that did rather menial work in the logging camps. Believing, as we all did, that the Athians were intraspecies non-aggressive, I never thought they might be the group meant. In fact, I didn't realize that they cooperated with you in your camps. However, I am more at a loss than ever to understand what provoked the attack and mutiny. I don't know, sir. When he said the people under his command were content, did the captain include native people? Were the Athians living at the camp content, do you think? As far as I know. There was nothing unusual in their position there, or the work they had to do? Lyubov felt the heightening of tension in Colonel Dong and his staff, and also in the starship commander. Davison remained calm and easy. Nothing unusual. Lyubov knew now that only his scientific studies had been sent up to the Shackleton. His protests, even his annual assessments of native adjustment to colonial presence, required by the administration, had been kept in some desk drawer deep in HQ. These two knew nothing about the exploitation of the Athians. Commander Young did, of course. He had been down before today and had probably seen the Creechy pens. In any case, a Navy commander on colony runs wouldn't have much to learn about Terran-Hilf relations. Whether or not he approved of how the colonial administration ran its business, not much would come as a shock to him. But a Satian and a Hainishman, how much would they know about Terran colonies unless chance brought them to one on the way to somewhere else? Le Penin and Orr had not intended to come on planet here at all. Or possibly they had not been intended to come on planet but hearing of trouble had insisted. Why had the commander brought them down, his will or theirs? Whoever they were, they had about them a hint of authority. Lyubov's headache had gone. He felt alert and excited. His face was rather hot. Captain Davison, I have a couple of questions concerning your confrontation with the four natives day before yesterday. You're certain that one of them was Sam or Selverthela? I believe so. You are aware that he has a personal grudge against you? I don't know. You don't? Since his wife died in your quarters immediately subsequent to sexual intercourse with you, he holds you responsible for her death. You didn't know that? He attacked you once before here in Centralville. You had forgotten that? 
But the point is that Selvar's personal hatred for Captain Davison may serve as a partial explanation or motivation for this unprecedented assault. The Athsians aren't incapable of personal violence. That's never been asserted in any of my studies of them. Adolescents who haven't mastered controlled dreaming or competitive singing do a lot of wrestling and fist-fighting, not all of it good temper. But Selber is an adult and an adept. And his first personal attack on Captain Davison, which I happened to witness part of, was certainly an attempt to kill, as was the captain's retaliation, incidentally. At the time, I thought that attack an isolated psychotic incident resulting from grief and stress not likely to be repeated. I was wrong. Captain, when the four Athsians jumped you from ambush, as you describe in your report, did you end up prone on the ground? Yes. In what position? Davison's calm face tensed and stiffened, and Lyubov felt a pang of compunction. He wanted to corner Davison in his lies, to force him into speaking truth once, but not to humiliate him before others. Accusations of rape and murder supported Davison's image of himself as the totally virile man, but now that image was endangered. Lyubov had called up a picture of him, the soldier, the fighter, being knocked down by enemies the size of six-year-olds. I was on my back. Was your head thrown back or turned aside? I don't know. I'm trying to establish a fact here, Captain, one that might help explain why Selber didn't kill you, although he had a grudge against you and had helped kill two hundred men a few hours earlier. I wondered if you might by chance have been in one of the positions which, when assumed by an Athian, prevent his opponent from further physical aggression. I don't know. Lyubov glanced around the conference table. All the faces showed curiosity and tension. These aggression-halting gestures and positions may have some innate basis, may rise from a surviving trigger response, but they are socially developed and learned. The strongest of them is a prone position on the back, eyes shut, head turned so the throat is fully exposed. I think an Athian might find it impossible to hurt an enemy who took that position. He would have to do something else to release his anger or aggressive drive. When they had all got you down, Captain, did Silver by any chance sing? Did he what? Sing. I don't know. Lyubov was about to shrug and give up when the station said, Why, Mr. Lyubov? The most winning characteristic of the rather harsh Satian temperament was curiosity. Inopportune and inexhaustible curiosity. Satians died eagerly, curious as to what came next. You see, the Athians use a kind of ritualized singing to replace physical combat. Again, it's a universal social phenomenon that might have a physiological foundation. The higher primates here all go in for vocal competing between two males, a lot of howling and whistling. The dominant male may finally give the other a cough, but usually they just spend an hour or so trying to outbellow each other. The Athians themselves see the similarity to their singing matches, which are also only between males. But as they observe, theirs are not only aggression releases, but an art form. The better artist wins. I wondered if Selvar sang over Captain Davison, and if so, whether he did because he could not kill or because he preferred the bloodless victory. These questions have suddenly become rather urgent. Dr. Lyubov, how effective are these aggression-channeling devices? Are they universal? 
among adults, yes. All my observations supported them until day before yesterday. Rape, violent assault, and murder virtually don't exist among them. There are accidents, of course, and there are psychotics, but not many. What do they do with dangerous psychotics? Isolate them on small islands. The Athians are carnivorous. They hunt animals. Yes, meat is a staple. Wonderful. A human society with an effective war barrier. What's the cost, Dr. Lyubov? I'm not sure, Mr. Lepenon. Perhaps change? They're a static, stable, uniform society. They have no history. Perfectly integrated and wholly unprogressive. You might say that like the forest they live in, they've attained a climax state. But I don't mean to imply they're incapable of adaptation. Gentlemen, this is very interesting, but in a somewhat specialist frame of reference, and it may be somewhat out of the context which we are attempting to clarify here. Uh, no, excuse me, Colonel Dong, this may be the point. Yes, Dr. Lyubov? Well, I wonder that they're not proving their adaptability now. By adapting their behavior to us, to the colony, for four years they've behaved to us as they do to one another. Despite the physical differences, they recognized us as members of their species, as men. However, we have not responded as members of their species should respond. We have ignored the responses, the rights, and obligations of nonviolence. We have killed, raped, and enslaved the native humans, destroyed their communities, and cut down their forests. It wouldn't be surprising if they decided that we were not human, and therefore can be killed like animals. Captain Newbolf is expressing his personal opinions and theories, which I consider possibly to be erroneous, and he and I have discussed this type of thing previously, although the present context is unsuitable. We do not employ slaves, sir. Some of the natives serve a useful role in our community. The voluntary labor corps is a part of all but the temporary camps here. We have very limited personnel to accomplish our tasks here, and we need workers and use all we can get, but on any kind of basis that could be called a slavery basis, certainly not. Uh, how many of each race? 2,600 Terrans now. Lyubov and I estimate the native hill population very roughly at 3 million. You should have considered these statistics, gentlemen, before you altered the native traditions. We are adequately armed and equipped to resist any type of aggression these natives could offer. However, there was a general consensus by both the first exploratory missions and by our own research staff of specialists, here headed by Captain Lyubov, giving us to understand that the new Tahitians were a primitive, harmless, peace-loving species. Now, this information was obviously erroneous. Obviously. You consider the human species to be primitive, harmless, and peace-loving? No. But you knew that the hills of this planet are human, as human as you or I, since we all come from the same original Hainish stock? That is a scientific theory, I am aware. Colonel, it is the historic fact. I am not forced to accept it as fact, and I don't like opinions stuffed into my own mouth. 
The fact is that these creatures are a meter tall, they're covered with green fur, they don't sleep, and they're not human beings in my frame of reference. Captain Davison, do you consider the native hills human or not? I don't know. But you had sexual intercourse with one, this Selva's wife. Would you have sexual intercourse with a female animal? What about the rest of you? The commander of the Shackleton at last salvaged words from the gulf of embarrassed silence. Well, gentlemen, the tragedy at Smith Camp clearly is involved with the entire colony-native relationship, and it is not by any means an insignificant or isolated episode. That's what we had to establish. And this being the case, we can make a certain contribution towards easing your problems here. The main purpose of our journey was not to drop off a couple of hundred girls here, though I know you've been waiting for them, but to get to Presno, which has been having some difficulties, and give the government there an ansible, that is, an ICD transmitter. Stairs became fixed all round the table. The one we have aboard is an early model, and it cost a planetary annual revenue, roughly. That, of course, was twenty-seven years ago, planetary time, when we left Earth. Nowadays they are making them relatively cheaply. They're standard equipment on Navy ships, and in the normal course of things, a robo or a man ship would be coming out here to give your colony one. As a matter of fact, it's a manned administration ship and is on the way due here in 9.4 E years, if I recall the figure. Mr. Le Penin, your people invented the device. Perhaps you'd explain it to those here who are unfamiliar with the terms. I shall not attempt to explain the principles of ansible operation to those present. Its effect can be stated simply. The instantaneous transmission of a message over any distance one element must be on a large mass body. The other can be anywhere in the cosmos. Since arrival in orbit, the Shackleton has been in daily communication with Terra, now 27 light years distant. The message does not take 54 years for delivery and response, as it does on an electromagnetic device. It takes no time. There is no more time gap between worlds. Yeah. As soon as we came out of time dilatation into planetary space-time here, we rang up home, as you might say, and we were told what had happened during the twenty-seven years we were traveling. The time gap for bodies remains, but the information lag does not. As you can see, this is important to us as an interstellar species, as speech itself was to us earlier in our evolution. It will have the same effect, to make a society possible. Uh, Mr. Orr and I left Earth 27 years ago as legates for our respective governments. When we left, people were talking about the possibility of forming some kind of league among the civilized worlds now that communication was possible. The League of Worlds now exists. It has existed for 18 years. Mr. Orr and I are now emissaries of the Council of the League, and so have certain powers and responsibilities we did not have when we left Earth. The three of them from the ship kept saying these things. An instantaneous communicator exists. An interstellar super-government exists. Believe it or not, 
Are we to take all, all this simply on your word, sir? Colonel Dong knew he shouldn't believe Le Penin and Orr and Young, but did believe them, and was frightened. No, that's done with. A colony like this had to believe what passing ships and outdated radio messages told them. Now you don't. You can verify. We are going to give you the answerable destined for Presno. We have league authority to do so, received, of course, by Ansible. Your colony here is in a bad way, worse than I thought from your reports. Now, however, you'll have the Ansible and can talk with your Terran administration. You can ask for orders so you'll know how to proceed. Given the profound changes that have been occurring in the organization of the Terran government since we left there, I should recommend that you do so at once. There is no longer any excuse for acting on outdated orders, for irresponsible autonomy. The pennon was being overbearing, and Commander Young should shut him up. But could he? How did an emissary of the Council of the League of Worlds rank? Who's in charge here, thought Lyubov and he too felt a qualm of fear. His headache returned, a sort of tight headband over the temples. An officer, Benton, was asking Lepenin if he or Orr were on this planet as observers for the League of Worlds, or if they claimed any authority to... Lepenin took him up politely. We are observers here, not empowered to command, only to report. You are still answerable only to your own government on Earth. Then nothing has essentially changed. You forget the Ansible. I'll instruct you in its operation, Colonel, as soon as this discussion is over. You can then consult with your colonial administration. Yeah, since your problem here is rather urgent, and since Earth is now a League member and may have changed the colonial code somewhat during recent years, Mr. Orr's advice is both proper and timely. We should be very grateful to Mr. Orr and Mr. Le Penin for their decision to give this Terran colony the answerable destiny for Prestno. It was their decision. I can only applaud it. Now, one more decision remains to be made, and this one I have to make, using your judgment as my guide. If you feel the colony is in imminent peril of further and more massive attacks from the natives, I can keep my ship here for a week or two as a defense arsenal. I can also evacuate the women. No children yet, right? I have space for 380 passengers. We might crowd a hundred more in. The extra mass would add a year or so to the trip home, but it could be done. Unfortunately, that is all I can do. We must proceed to Presno, your nearest neighbor, as you know, 1.8 light years distant. We can stop here on the way home to Terra, but that's going to be three and a half more years at least. Can you stick it out? Yes, we've had warning now and we won't be caught napping again. Equally, can the native inhabitants stick it out for three and a half Earth years more? Yes. No. Lubov had been watching Davison's face and a kind of panic had taken hold of him. A colonel? We've been here four years now, and the natives are flourishing. There's room enough to spare for all of us. As you can see, the planet's heavily underpopulated, and the administration wouldn't have cleared it for colonization purposes if that hadn't been as it is. They won't catch us off guard again. We were erroneously briefed concerning the nature of these natives, but we're fully armed and able to defend ourselves. But we aren't planning any reprisals. 
That is expressly forbidden in the Colonial Code, though I don't know what new rules this new government may have added on, but we'll just stick to our own as we have been doing, and they definitely negate mass reprisals or genocide. We won't be sending any messages for help out. After all, a colony 27 light years from home has come out expecting to be on its own and in fact to be completely self-sufficient. And I don't see that the ICD really changes that. Ship and men and material still have to travel at near light speed. We'll just keep on shipping the lumber home and look out for ourselves. The women are in no danger. Mr. Lubov, we've been here four years. I don't know if the native human culture will survive four more. As for the total land ecology, I think Gossi will back me if I say that we have irrecoverably wrecked the native life systems on one large island, have done great damage on the subcontinent Soronol, and if we go on logging at the present rate, may reduce the major habitable lands to desert within ten years. This isn't the fault of the colony's HQ or Forestry Bureau. They've simply been following a development plan drawn up on Earth without sufficient knowledge of the planet to be exploited, its life systems or its native human inhabitants. Mr. Gosser. Well, Raj, you're stretching things a bit. There's no denying that Dump Island, which was overlogged in direct contravention to my recommendations, is a dead loss. If more than a certain percentage of the forest is cut over a certain area, then the fiber weed doesn't recede, you see? And the fiber weed root system is the main soil binder on clear land. Without it, the soil drifts off very fast under wind erosion and the heavy rainfall. But I can't agree that our basic directives are at fault, so long as they are scrupulously followed. They were based on careful study of the planet. We've succeeded here on Central by following the plan. Erosion is minimal, and the cleared soil is highly arable. To log off a forest doesn't, after all, mean to make a desert. We can't forecast precisely how the native forest life systems will adapt to a new woodland prairie foreseen in a development plan, but we know the chances are good for a large percentage of adaptation and survival. That's what the Bureau of Land Management said about Alaska during the first famine. How many Sitka spruce have you seen in your lifetime, Gossa? or snowy owl, or wolf, or Eskimo. The survival percentage of native Alaskan species in habitat after 15 years of the development program was 0.3%. It's now zero. A forest ecology is a delicate one. If the forest perishes, its fauna may go with it. The Athshian word for world is also the word for forest. I submit, Commander Young, that though the colony may not be an imminent danger, the planet is... Captain Lyubov, I cannot tolerate any further such attempts as this to give advice without previous clearance. Caught off guard by his own outburst, Lyubov apologized and tried to look calm. If only he didn't lose his temper, if he had poise. It appears to us that you have made some serious erroneous judgments concerning the non-aggressiveness of the natives here. And because we counted on this specialist description of them as non-aggressive is why we left ourselves open to this terrible tragedy at Smith Camp, Captain Lyubov. So I think we have to wait until some other specialists in Hilfs have had time to study them, because evidently your theories were basically erroneous to some extent. Lyubov sat and took it. Let the men from the ship see them all passing the blame around like a hot brick, all the better. 
The more dissension they showed, the likelier were these emissaries to have them checked and watched over. And he was to blame. He had been wrong. To hell with my self-respect so long as the forest people get a chance, Lyubov thought. And so strong a sense of his own humiliation and self-sacrifice came over him that tears rose to his eyes. He was aware that Davison was watching him. He sat up stiff, the blood hot in his face, his temples drumming. Couldn't Orr and Lepenin see what kind of man Davison was? And how much power he had here, while Lyubov's powers called advisory were simply derisory? If the colonists were left to go on with no check on them but a super-radio, the Smith Camp massacre would almost certainly become the excuse for systematic aggression against the natives. Bacteriological extermination, most likely. The Shackleton would come back in three and a half years to find new Tahiti and find a thriving Terran colony and no more Creechy problem, none at all. The conference did not last much longer. When it ended, he stood up and leaned across the table to Le Penin. You must tell the League to do something to save the forests, the forest people. You must, please. You must. The Hainishman met his eyes. His gaze was reserved, kindly, and deep as a well. He said nothing. It was unbelievable. They had all gone insane. This damned alien world had sent them all right round the bend into bye-bye dreamland along with the Creechies. He still couldn't believe what he'd seen at that conference and the briefing after it. A Starfleet ship's commander bootlicking two humanoids. Engineers and techs ooing over a fancy radio presented to them by a hairy station with a lot of sneering and boasting as if ICDs hadn't been predicted by Terran science years ago. The humanoids had stolen the idea and called it an ansible, so nobody would recognize it was just an ICD. But the worst part of it had been the conference, with that psycho Lyubov raving and crying, and Colonel Dung letting him do it, letting him insult Davison and HQ staff and the whole colony, and all the time the two aliens sitting and grinning, the little gray ape and the big white fairy sneering at humans. It had been pretty bad. It hadn't got any better since the Shackleton left. He didn't mind being sent down to New Java camp under Major Mohammed. The colonel had to discipline him. Old Ding Dong might actually be very happy about that fire raid he had pulled in reprisal on Smith Island, but the raid had been a breach of discipline, and he had to reprimand Davison. All right, rules of the game. But what wasn't in the rules was this stuff coming over that overgrown TV set they called the Ansible, their new little tin god at HQ. Orders from the Bureau of Colonial Administration in Karachi. Restrict Terran Athshian contact to occasions arranged by Athshians. In other words, you couldn't go into a Creechy Warren and round up a workforce anymore. Employment of volunteer labor is not advised. Employment of forced labor is forbidden. How in the hell were they supposed to get the work done? Did Earth want this wood or didn't it? They were still sending the robot cargo ships to New Tahiti, weren't they, for a year, each carrying about 30 million new dollars worth of prime lumber back to Mother Earth. Sure, the development people wanted those millions. They were businessmen. These messages weren't coming from them. Any fool could see that. The colonial status of World 41, why didn't they call it New Tahiti anymore, is under consideration. Until decision is reached, Colonists should observe extreme caution in all dealings with native inhabitants. 
the use of weapons of any kind except small sidearms carried in self-defense is absolutely forbidden, just as on earth, except that there a man couldn't even carry sidearms anymore. What the hell was the use of coming 27 light years to a frontier world and then get told no guns, no fire jelly, no bug bombs, just sit like nice little boys and let the creatures come spit in your faces and sing songs at you and then stick a knife in your guts and burn down your camp, but don't you hurt the cute little green fellers, no sir. A policy of avoidance is strongly advised. A policy of aggression or retaliation is strictly forbidden. That was the gist of all the messages, actually, and any fool could tell that that wasn't the colonial administration talking. They couldn't have changed that much in 30 years. It was clear to anybody who hadn't gone spla from Geoshock that the Ansible messages were phonies. There weren't any men typing the answers onto the other end of that little trick. They were aliens, humanoids, probably Satians, for the machine was Satian-made, and they were a smart bunch of devils. They were the kind that might make a real bid for interstellar supremacy. The Hainish would be in the conspiracy with them, of course. All that bleeding heart stuff and the so-called directives had a Hainish sound to it. What the long-term objective of the aliens was was hard to guess from here. It probably involved weakening the Terran government by tying it up with this League of Worlds business until the aliens were strong enough to make an armed takeover. But their plan for New Tahiti was easy to see. They had let the Creechies wipe out the humans for them. Just tie the humans' hands with a lot of fake Ansible directives and let the slaughter begin. And Colonel Dong had swallowed it. He intended to obey orders. He was stupid, old Ding Dong, but he liked Davison, and Davison liked him. If it meant betraying the human race to an alien conspiracy, then he couldn't obey his orders, but he still felt sorry for the old soldier. A fool, but a loyal and brave one. Not a born traitor like that whining, tattling prig Lyubov. If he could save the men and women of New Tahiti, he would. If he couldn't, he'd make a damn good try, and that was all there was to it, actually. It couldn't last long. The whole situation was too crazy to be stable. If they didn't start easing back to normal now the Shackleton was gone, then Captain D. Davison would just have to do a little extra work to get things headed back towards normalcy. The morning of the day he left Central, they had let loose the whole Creechy workforce, made a big noble speech in Pigeon, opened the compound gates, and let out every single tame Creechy, carriers, diggers, cooks, houseboys, maids, the lot. Not one had stayed. Some of them had been with their masters ever since the start of the colony, four e-years ago. But they had no loyalty. A dog, a chimp, would have hung around. These things weren't even that highly developed. Ding-dong was spla, letting all those creatures loose right in the vicinity. So if the wild creatures on Central were planning to imitate the Smith camp atrocity, they now had lots of real handy new recruits who knew the layout of the whole town, the routines, where the arsenal was, where guards were posted, and the rest. If Centralville got burned down, HQ could thank themselves. One thing, anyhow, whatever the phony directive said, the boys at Central wouldn't be stuck with trying to use small sidearms for self-defense. They had fire throwers and machine guns. The sixteen little hoppers had machine guns and were useful for dropping fire jelly from. The five big hoppers had full armament. But they wouldn't need the big stuff. Just take up a hopper over one of the deforested areas and catch a mess of creatures there with their damn bows and arrows and start dropping fire jelly and watch them run around and burn. 
made his belly churn a little to imagine it, just like when he thought about making a woman or whenever he remembered about when that Sam creature had attacked him and he had smashed in his whole face with four blows, one right after another. New Java was the southernmost of the five big lands, just north of the equator, and so was hotter than Central or Smith, which were just about perfect climate-wise. It rained all the time in the wet seasons anywhere on New Tahiti, but in the northern lands it was a kind of quiet fine rain that went on and on and never really got you wet or cold. Down here it came in buckets, and there was a monsoon-type storm that you couldn't even walk in, let alone work in. The damn forest was so thick it kept out the storms. You'd get wet from all the dripping off the leaves, of course, but if you were really inside the forest during one of those monsoons, you'd hardly notice the wind was blowing, and inside the forest it was dark and hot and easy to get lost. The CO, Major Mohammed, was a sticky bastard. Everything was done by the book. The logging all in kilo strips, the fiberweed crap planted in the log strips, leave to central, granted in strict non-preferential rotation, hallucinogens rationed and their use on duty punished, and so on and so on. However, one good thing about Mohammed was he wasn't always radioing Central. New Java was his camp, and he ran it his way. He didn't like orders from HQ. He obeyed them all right. He'd let the creatures go and locked up all the guns except little pop-gun pistols as soon as the orders came. But he was a self-righteous type. Knew he was right. That was his big fault. He thought he knew better than Davison, and that was that. They were all a bit sticky at first, actually. None of these men at New Java knew anything about the Smith camp atrocity, except that the camp CO had left for Central an hour before it happened, and so was the only human that escaped alive. Put like that, it did sound bad. You could see why at first it looked at him like a kind of Jonah, or worse, a kind of Judas even. But when they got to know him, they'd know better. They'd begin to see that, far from being a deserter or traitor, he was dedicated to preventing the colony of New Tahiti from betrayal. And they'd realize that getting rid of the creatures was going to be the only way to make this world safe for the Terran way of life. It wasn't too hard to start getting that message across to the loggers. They never liked the little green rats, having to drive them to work all day and guard them all night, and now they began to understand that the creatures were not only repulsive, but dangerous. When Davison told them what he had found at Smith, when he explained how the two humanoids on the fleet ship had brainwashed HQ, when he showed them that wiping out the Terrans on New Tahiti was just a small part of the whole alien conspiracy against Earth, when he reminded them of the cold, hard figures, 2,500 humans to 3 million creatures, then they began to really get behind him. Davison kept busy getting some of the best loggers and junior officers firmly with him. When he had enough of them, he could really trust a squad of ten lifted a few items from old Moo's locked-up room in the wreck house full of war toys and then went off one Sunday into the woods to play. Davison had located the Creechy town some weeks ago and had saved up the treat for his men. He could have done it single-handed, but it was better this way. You got the sense of comradeship, of a real bond among men. They just walked into the place in broad open daylight and coated all the creatures caught above ground with fire jelly and burned them, then poured kerosene over the warren roofs and roasted the rest. Those that tried to get out got jellied. That was the artistic part, waiting at the rat holes for the little rats to come out, letting them think they'd made it, and then just frying them from the feet up so they made torches. That green fur sizzled like crazy. 
It actually wasn't much more exciting than hunting real rats, which were about the only wild animals left on Mother Earth. But there was more thrill to it. The creatures were a lot bigger than rats, and you knew they could fight back, though this time they didn't. In fact, some of them even lay down instead of running away, just lay there on their backs with their eyes shut. It was sickening. Every one of them kept his trap shut back at camp, no boasting even of their buddies. So far as old Moo knew, all his men were good little boys just sawing up logs and keeping away from creatures. Yes, sir, and he could go on believing that until D-Day came. For the creatures would attack somewhere, here or one of the camps on King Island or Central. Davison knew that. He was the only officer in the entire colony that did know it. Nobody else had believed him except these men here whom he'd had time to convince. But the others would all see sooner or later that he was right. And he was right. It had been a shock meeting Selver face to face. As he flew back to Central from the foothill village, Lyubov tried to decide why it had been a shock. For after all, one isn't usually terrified by a chance meeting with a good friend. It hadn't been easy to get the headwoman to invite him. Tuntar had been his main locus of study all summer. He had several excellent informants there and was on good terms with the lodge and with the headwoman, who had let him observe and participate in the community freely. Wangling an actual invitation out of her had taken a long time, but at last she had complied, giving him, according to the new directives, a genuine occasion arranged by the Athshians. His own conscience, rather than the colonel, had insisted on this. Dong wanted him to go. He was worried about the Creechy threat. He told Lyubov to size them up, to see how they're reacting now that we're leaving them strictly alone. He hoped for reassurance. Lyubov couldn't decide whether the report he'd be turning in would reassure the colonel or not. For ten miles out of Central, the plain had been logged and the stumps had all rotted away. It was now a great dull flat of fiberweed, hairy gray in the rain. Under those hirsute leaves, the seedling shrubs got their first growth the sumacs, dwarf aspens, and salvaforms, which grown would in turn protect the seedling trees. Left alone in this even, rainy climate, this area might reforest itself within thirty years and reattain the full climax forest within a hundred, left alone. Suddenly the forest began again. Under the helicopter, the infinitely various green of leaves covered the slow swells and folding of the hills of North Sornal. Like most Terrans on Terra, Lyubov had never walked among wild trees at all never seen a wood larger than a city block. At first on Athsha, he had felt oppressed and uneasy in the forest, stifled by its endless crowd and incoherence of trunks, branches, leaves, and the perpetual greenish or brownish twilight. The silence made up of many little meaningless noises, the total vegetable indifference to the presence of mind, all this had troubled him, and like the others he had kept to clearings and to the beach. But little by little he had begun to like it, and now, after four years of it, he was completely at home under the trees, more so, perhaps, than anywhere else. He had also come to like the Athshians' names for their own lands and places, sonorous two-syllabled words, Sornal, Tuntar, Eshref, Eshsen, that was now Centralville, Entor, Abton, and above all, Athsha, which meant the forest and the world. So Earth, Terra, meant both the soil and the planet, two meanings in one. But to the Athshian, soil, ground, earth, was not that to which the dead return and by which the living live. The substance of their world was not earth, but forest. 
Terran man was clay, red dust. Athshian man was branch and root. He brought the hopper down in a small glade north of the town and walked in past the women's lodge. The smell of an Athshian settlement hung pungent in the air. Wood smoke, dead fish, aromatic herbs, alien sweat. Lyubov had spent many intellectually stimulating hours doubled up and suffocating in the reeking gloom of the men's lodge in Tuntar. But it didn't look as if he would be invited in this time. Of course the townsfolk knew of the Smith Camp massacre now six weeks ago. They would have known of it soon, for word got around fast among the islands. The townsfolk also knew that the 1,200 slaves at Centralville had been freed soon after the Smith Camp massacre, and Lyubov agreed with the colonel that the natives might take the second event to be a result of the first. What was important was that the slaves had been freed. Wrongs done could not be righted, but at least they were not still being done. They could start over. The natives, without that painful, unanswerable wonder as to why the humans treated men like animals, and he without the burden of explanation and the gnawing of irremediable guilt. Knowing how they valued candor and direct speech concerning frightening matters, he expected that people in Tuntar would talk about these things with him in triumph or apology or puzzlement. No one did. No one said much of anything to him. He had come in late afternoon which was like arriving in a Terran city just after dawn. Athshians did sleep, but their physiological low was between noon and 4 p.m., whereas with Terrans it is usually between 2 and 5 a.m., and they had a double peak cycle of high temperature and high activity coming in the two twilights, dawn and evening. Most adults slept five or six hours in 24, in several catnaps, and adept men slept as little as two hours in 24. So if one discounted both their naps and their dreaming states as laziness, one might say they never slept. At this point in Tantar, things were just beginning to stir again after the late day slump. Lyubov noticed a good many strangers. They looked at him, but none approached. They were mere presences passing on other paths in the dusk of the great oaks. At last someone he knew came along his path, the headwoman's cousin Sherar, an old woman of small importance and small understanding. She greeted him civilly, but did not or would not respond to his inquiries about the headwoman and his two best informants, Egath, the orchard keeper, and Tubab, the dreamer. She stuck to Lyubov, and nobody else spoke to him. He worked his way, accompanied by the hobbling, complaining, tiny green crone, across the groves and glades of Tuntar to the men's lodge. They're busy in their dreaming... Come along now, Yubov. Come see the fishing nets. A girl passed by, one of the young hunters, looked up at him. A stare of animosity such as he had never received from any Athshian, unless perhaps from a little girl, frightened into scowling by his height and his hairless face. But this child was not frightened. If the Athshians had indeed developed at last and abruptly the sense of group enmity, then he must accept this and simply try to show them that he remained a reliable friend. But how could their way of feeling and thinking have changed so fast after so long, and why? At Smith Camp, provocation had been immediate and intolerable. Davison's cruelty would drive even Athshians to violence. But this town, Tuntar, had never been attacked by the Terrans, had suffered no slave raids, had not seen the local forest logged or burned. They had got the news from Smith, and there were among them now refugees, ex-slaves, who had suffered at the Terrans' hands and would talk about it. But would news and hearsay change the hearers, change them radically? 
when their unaggressiveness ran so deep in them, right through their culture and society and on down into their subconscious, their dream time, and perhaps into their very physiology? That an Athshian could be provoked by atrocious cruelty to attempt murder, he knew he had seen it happen once. That a disrupted community might be similarly provoked by similarly intolerable injuries, he had to believe. It had happened at Smith Camp but that talk and hearsay, no matter how frightening and outrageous, could enrage a settled community of these people to the point where they acted against their customs and reason, broke entirely out of their whole style of living, this he couldn't believe. Some element was missing. Old Tubab came out of the lodge just as Lyubov passed in front of it. Behind the old man came Selber. Selber crawled out of the tunnel door, stood upright, blinked at the rain-grayed, foliage-dimmed brightness of daylight. His dark eyes met Lyubov's, looking up. Neither spoke. Lyubov was badly frightened. Flying home in the hopper, analyzing the shock, he thought, Why fear? Why was I afraid of Selber? Unprovable intuition? Nothing between Selber and Lyubov had changed. What Selber had done at Smith Camp could be justified. Even if it couldn't be justified, it made no difference. The friendship between them was too deep to be touched by moral doubt. They had worked very hard together. They had taught each other, in rather more than the literal sense, their languages. They had spoken without reserve. And Lyubov's love for his friend was deepened by that gratitude the Savior feels toward the one whose life he has been privileged to save. Indeed, he had scarcely realized until that moment how deep his liking and loyalty to Selver were. Had his fear, in fact, been the personal fear that Selber might, having learned racial hatred, reject him and treat him not as you, but as one of them. After that long first gaze, Selber came forward slowly and greeted Lyubov, holding out his hands. Touch was a main channel of communication among the forest people. Caress as signal and reassurance was as essential to them as it is to mother and child or to lover and lover. But its significance was social, not only maternal and sexual. It was part of their language. It was therefore patterned, codified, yet infinitely modifiable. So Selber came forward with his hands held out, shook Lyubov's hand, Terran fashion, and then took both his arms in a stroking motion just above the elbow. He was not much more than half Lyubov's height, which made all the gestures difficult and ungainly for both of them, but there was nothing uncertain or childlike in the touch of his small, thin, green-furred hand on Lyubov's arms. It was reassurance. Lyubov was very glad to get it. Selber, what luck to meet you here. I want very much to talk with you. I can't now, Lyubov. Lyubov's hope of an unaltered friendship vanished. Selber had changed. He was changed radically from the root. Can I come back another day and talk with you, Selber? It is important to me. I leave here today. Selber let go Lyubov's arms and looked away. He thus put himself literally out of touch. Civility required that Lyubov do the same and let the conversation end. But then there would be no one to talk to. Old Tubab had not even looked at him. The town had turned its back on him. And this was Selber, who had been his friend. Selber, this killing at Kelemedeva... Maybe you think that lies between us, but it does not. Maybe it brings us closer together. And your people in the slave pens, they've all been set free, so that wrong no longer lies between us. And even if it does, it always did. All the same, I... I am the same man I was, Selber. 
At first the Athshian made no response. His strange face turned from Lyubov. Then suddenly he looked round as if against his own intent. Lyubov, you shouldn't have come here. You should leave Central two nights from now. I don't know what you are. It would be better if I had never known you. And with that he was off, a light walk like a long-legged cat, a green flicker among the dark oaks of Tuntar, gone. Tubab followed slowly after him, still without a glance at Lyubov. A fine rain fell without sound on the oak leaves and on the narrow pathways to the lodge and the river. He tried to tell himself that Selber had not been rejecting him as Lyubov, but him as a Terran. It made no difference. It never does. For two years, Lyubov had been traveling, studying, interviewing, observing, and had failed to get at the key that would let him into the Athshian mind. He had studied the Athshian sleeping habits and found that they apparently had no sleeping habits. He had wired countless electrodes onto countless furry green skulls and failed to make any sense at all out of the familiar patterns, the spindles and jags, the alphas and deltas and thetas that appeared on the graph. It was Selver who had made him understand, at last, the Athshian significance of the word dream, which was also the word for root, and so hand him the key of the kingdom of the forest people. It was with Selver as EEG subject that he had first seen with comprehension the extraordinary impulse patterns of a brain entering a dream state neither sleeping nor awake, a condition which related to Terran dream sleeping as the Parthenon to a mud hut, the same thing basically, but with the addition of complexity, quality, and control. Selver might have escaped. He stayed, first as a valet, then as scientific aid, still locked up nightly with all the other creatures in the pen. I'll fly you to Tantar and work with you there, Lyubov had said, about the third time he talked with Selver. For God's sake, why stay here? My wife, Thela, is in the pen, Selver had said. Lyubov had tried to get her released, but she was in the HQ kitchen, and the sergeants who managed the kitchen gang resented any interference from brass and speches. Lyubov had to be very careful, lest they take out their resentment on the woman. She and Selver had both seemed willing to wait patiently until both could escape or be freed. Male and female creatures were strictly segregated in the pens, and husband and wife rarely saw each other. Lyubov managed to arrange meetings for them in his hut, which he had to himself at the north end of town. It was when Thela was returning to HQ from one such meeting that Davison had seen her and apparently been struck by her frail, frightened grace. He had had her brought to his quarters that night and had raped her. He had killed her in the act. Perhaps this had happened before, a result of the physical disparity, or else she had stopped living. Like some Terrans, the Athshians had the knack of authentic death wish and could cease to live. In either case, it was Davison who had killed her. Such murders had occurred before. What had not occurred before was what Selber did the second day after her death. Lyubov got there only at the end. He could recall the sounds, himself running down Main Street in hot sunlight, the dust, the knot of men. The whole thing could have lasted only five minutes. When Lyubov got there, Selber was blinded with blood, a sort of toy for Davison to play with, and yet he had picked himself up and was coming back, not with berserk rage, but with intelligent despair. He kept coming back. 
It was Davison who was scared into rage at last by that terrible persistence. Knocking Selber down with a side blow, he had moved forward, lifting his booted foot to stamp on the skull. Even as he moved, Lyubov had broken into the circle. He stopped the fight. And thenceforth he hated Davison, and was hated by him, having come between the killer and his death. For if it's all the rest of us who are killed by the suicide, it's himself whom the murderer kills. Only he has to do it over and over. Lyubov had picked up Selver, a light weight in his arms. The mutilated face had pressed against his shirt so that the blood soaked through against his own skin. He had taken Selver to his own bungalow, splinted his broken wrist, done what he could for his face, kept him in his own bed, night after night tried to talk to him, to reach him in the desolation of his grief and shame. It was, of course, against regulations. Nobody mentioned the regulations to him. They did not have to. He knew he was forfeiting most of what favor he had ever had with the officers of the colony. Davison, curiously infuriated by the minor injuries Selber had done him and by Lyubov's interference, had gone around saying he intended to finish off that rebel Creechy. He certainly would do so if he got the chance. Lyubov stayed with Selber night and day for two weeks and then flew him out of Central and put him down in a West Coast town, Broter, where he had relatives. There was no penalty for aiding slaves to escape since the Aptians were not slaves at all except in fact. Lyubov was not even reprimanded. But the regular officers distrusted him totally, instead of partially from then on. And even his colleagues in the special services, the exobiologists, the ag and forestry coordinators, the ecologist, variously let him know that he had been irrational or stupid. Did you think you were going on a picnic? Gossa had demanded. No, I didn't think it would be any bloody picnic. I can't see why any Hilfer voluntarily ties himself up to an open colony. You know the people you're studying are going to get plowed under and probably wiped out. It's the way things are. It's human nature. You must know you can't change that. Then why come and watch the process? Masochism? I don't know what human nature is. Maybe leaving descriptions of what we wipe out is part of human nature. Is it much pleasanter for an ecologist, really? All right, then. Write up your descriptions, but keep out of the carnage. A biologist studying a rat colony doesn't start reaching in and rescuing pet rats of his that get attacked, you know. At this, Lyubov had blown loose. He had taken too much. No, of course not. A rat can be a pet, but not a friend. That had hurt poor old Gossa, who wanted to be a father figure to Lyubov. And it had done nobody any good. Yet it had been true. I like Selver, respect him, saved him, suffered with him, fear him. Selber is my friend. Selber is a god. Selber Sha'ab. What did Sha'ab mean, though? Many words of the women's tongue, the everyday speech of the Afshians, came from the men's tongue that was the same in all communities. And these words often were not only two-syllabled, but two-sided. Sha'ab meant god, or numinous entity, or powerful being. It also meant something quite different but Lyubov could not remember what. By this stage in his thinking, he was home in his bungalow and had only to look it up in the dictionary which he and Selver had compiled in four months of exhausting but harmonious work. Of course, Sha'ab, translator. It was almost too pat. Were the two meanings connected? Often they were, yet not so often as to constitute a rule. If a god was a translator, what did he translate? 
Was a Sha'ab one who translated the language of dream and philosophy, the men's tongue, into the everyday speech? But all dreamers could do that. Might he then be one who could translate into waking life the central experience of vision, one serving as a link between the two realities considered by the Afshians as equal, the dream time and the world time, whose connections, though vital, are obscure? A link. One who could speak aloud the perceptions of the subconscious. To speak that tongue is to act, to do a new thing, to change or to be changed radically from the root. For the root is the dream, and the translator is the god. Selver had brought a new word into the language of his people. He had done a new deed. The word, the deed, murder. Only a god could lead so great a newcomer as death across the bridge between the worlds. But had he learned to kill his fellow men among his own dreams of outrage and bereavement, or from the undreamed of actions of the strangers? Was he speaking his own language, or was he speaking Captain Davison's? That which seemed to rise from the root of his own suffering and express his own changed being might in fact be an infection, a foreign plague, which would not make a new people of his race, but would destroy them. Raj Lyubov's character and training disposed him not to interfere in other men's business. His job was to find out what they did, and his inclination was to let them go on doing it. But even the most unmissionary soul, unless he pretends he has no emotions, is sometimes faced with a choice between commission and omission. What are they doing abruptly becomes, what are we doing? And then, what must I do? That he had reached such a point of choice now, he knew, and yet did not know clearly why, nor what alternatives were offered him. He could do no more to improve the Afshian's chance of survival at the moment. Le Penin, Orr, and the Ansible had done more than he had hoped to see done in his lifetime. The administration on Terra was explicit in every Ansible communication, and Colonel Dong, though under pressure from some of his staff and the logging bosses to ignore the directives, was carrying out orders. Policy was no longer static, a decision by the League of Worlds might now lead overnight to the colonies being limited to one land, or forbidden to cut trees, or encouraged to kill natives. No telling. How the League worked, and what sort of policies it was developing, could not yet be guessed from the flat directives of the administration. The colonists were letting the Ascians alone, and they were letting the colonists alone. A healthy situation, and one not to be disturbed unnecessarily. The only thing likely to disturb it was fear. At the moment, the Athians might be expected to be suspicious and still resentful, but not particularly afraid. As for the panic felt in Centralville at the news of the Smith Camp massacre, nothing had happened to revive it. No Athian anywhere had shown any violent sense, and with the slaves gone, the Creechies all vanished back into their forests, there was no more constant irritation of xenophobia. The colonists were at last beginning to relax. If Lyubov reported that he had seen Selver at Tantar, Dong and the others would be alarmed. They might insist on trying to capture Selver and bring him in for trial. The colonial code forbade prosecution of a member of one planetary society under the laws of another, but the court-martial overrode such distinctions. They could try, convict, and shoot Selver. So he made his choice without even knowing he had made one. He turned in a brief report that next day. It said that Tuntar was going about its business as usual, and that he had not been turned away or threatened. It was a soothing report, 
and the most inaccurate one Lyubov ever wrote. It omitted everything of significance. Otherwise, the report was quite factual, he thought. He had merely omitted subjective impressions, as a scientist should. He had a severe migraine while writing the report, and a worse one after submitting it. He dreamed a lot that night, but could not remember his dreams in the morning. Late in the second night after his visit to Tantar, he woke, and in the hysterical whooping of the alarm siren and the thudding of explosions, he faced at last what he had refused. He was the only man in Centralville not taken by surprise. In that moment he knew what he was, a traitor. And yet even now it was not clear in his mind that this was an Athsian raid. It was the terror in the night. His own hut had been ignored, standing in its yard away from other houses. Perhaps the trees around it protected it, he thought as he hurried out. The center of town was all on fire. Even the stone cube of HQ burned from within like a broken kiln. The ansible was in there, the precious link. There were fires also in the direction of the helicopter port and the field. Where had they got explosives? How had the fires got going all at once? All the buildings along both sides of Main Street, built of wood, were burning. The sound of the burning was terrible. Lyubov ran towards the fires. Water flooded the way. He thought at first it was from a fire hose, then realized the main from the river Menend was flooding uselessly over the ground while the houses burned with that hideous sucking roar. How had they done this? There were guards. There were always guards in jeeps at the field. Shots, volleys, the yatter of a machine gun. All around Lyubov were small running figures, but he ran among them without giving them much thought. He was abreast of the hostel now and saw a girl standing in the doorway, fire flickering at her back, and a clear escape before her. She did not move. He shouted at her, then ran across the yard to her and wrested her hands free of the door jams, which she clung to in panic, pulling her away by force. She came then, but not quite soon enough. As they crossed the yard, the front of the upper story, blazing from within, fell slowly forward, pushed by the timbers of the collapsing roof. Shingles and beams shot out like shell fragments. A blazing beam end struck Lyubov and knocked him sprawling. He lay face down in the firelit lake of mud. He did not see a little green-furred huntress leap at the girl, drag her down backwards, and cut her throat. He did not see anything. No songs were sung that night. There was only shouting and silence. When the flying ships burned, Selber exulted and tears came into his eyes, but no words into his mouth. He turned away in silence, the fire-thrower heavy in his arms, to lead his group back into the city. Each group of people from the west and north was led by an ex-slave like himself, one who had served the humans in Central and knew the buildings and ways of the city. Most of the people who came to attack that night had never seen the human city. Many of them had never seen a human they had come because they followed Selber, because they were driven by the evil dream and only Selber could teach them how to master it. There were hundreds and hundreds of them, men and women. They had waited in utter silence in the rainy darkness all around the edges of the city, while the ex-slaves, two or three at a time, did those things which they judged must be done first. Break the water pipe, cut the wires that carried light from generator house, break into and rob the arsenal. The first deaths, those of the guards, had been silent, accomplished with hunting weapons, noose, knife, arrow, very quickly in the dark. 
The dynamite stolen earlier in the night from the logging camp ten miles south was prepared in the arsenal, the basement of HQ building, while fires were set in other places. And then the alarm went off and the fires blazed and both night and silence fled. Most of the thunderclap and treefall crashing of gunfire came from the humans defending themselves, for only ex-slaves had taken weapons from the arsenal and used them. All the rest kept to their own lances, knives, and bows. But it was the dynamite placed and ignited by Reshwan and the others who had worked in the loggers' slave pen that made the noise that conquered all other noises and blew out the walls of the HQ building and destroyed the hangars and the ships. There were about 1,700 humans in the city that night, about 500 of them female. All the human females were said to be there now. That was why Selver and the others had decided to act, though not all the people who wished to come had yet gathered. Between four and five thousand men and women had come through the forest to the meeting at Entor, and from there to this place, to this night. The fires burned huge, and the smell of burning and of butchering was foul. Selver's mouth was dry and his throat sore, and longed for water to drink. He parted his lips and hoarsely sent up the home call that ends the hunt. Those with him took it up more clearly and loudly. Other voices answered it, near and far off in the mist and reek and flame-shot darkness of the night. Instead of leading his group at once from the city, he signaled them to go on, and himself went aside, onto the muddy ground between the path and the building which had burned and fallen. He stepped across a dead female human, and bent over one that lay pinned under a great charred beam of wood. He could not see the features obliterated by mud and shadow. It was not just, it was not necessary. He need not have looked at that one among so many dead. He need not have known him in the dark. He started to go after his group. Then he turned back, straining, lifted the beam off Lyubov's back, knelt down, slipping one hand under the heavy head so that Lyubov seemed to lie easier, his face clear of the earth, and so knelt there, motionless. He had not slept for four days and had not been still to dream for longer than that. He did not know how long. He had acted, spoken, traveled, planned, day and night ever since he left Broter with his followers from Cadest. He had gone from city to city, speaking to the people of the forest, telling them the new thing, waking them from the dream into the world, arranging the thing done this night, talking, always talking, and hearing others talk, never in silence and never alone. They had listened, they had heard, and had come to follow him, to follow the new path. They had taken up the fire they feared into their own hands, taken up the mastery over the evil dream, and loosed the death they feared upon their enemy. All had been done as he had said it should be done. All had gone as he had said it would go. The lodges and many dwellings of the humans were burnt, their airships burnt or broken, their weapons stolen or destroyed, and their females were dead. The fires were burning out, the night growing very dark, fouled with smoke. Selver could scarcely see. He looked up to the east, wondering if it were nearing dawn. Kneeling there in the mud among the dead, he thought, This is the dream now, the evil dream. I thought to drive it, but it drives me. In the dream, Lyubov's lips moved a little against the palm of his own hand. Selver looked down and saw the dead man's eyes open. The flare of dying fires shone on the surface of them. After a while, he spoke Selver's name. Lyubov, why did you stay here? I told you to be out of the city this night. 
So Selber spoke in dream, harshly, as if he were angry at Lyubov. Are you the prisoner? Lyubov said, faintly and not lifting his head, but in so commonplace a voice that Selber knew for a moment that this was not the dream time, but the world time, the forest's night. Or am I? Neither, both. How do I know? All the engines and machines are burned. All the women are dead. We let the men run away if they would. I told them not to set fire to your house. The books will be all right. Lyubov, why aren't you like the others? I am like them, a man like them, like you. No, you are different. I am like them, and so are you. Listen, Selber, don't go on. You must go back to your own, to your roots. When your people are gone, then the evil dream will stop. Now! Lyubov tried to lift his head, but his back was broken. He looked up at Selver and opened his mouth to speak. His gaze dropped away and looked into the other time, and his lips remained parted, unspeaking. His breath whistled a little in his throat. They were calling Selver's name, many voices far away, calling over and over. I can't stay with you, Lyubov. Selver stood up and tried to run away. But in the dream darkness he could go only very slowly, like one wading through deep water. The ash spirit walked in front of him, taller than Lyubov or any human, tall as a tree, not turning its white mask to him. As Selver went, he spoke to Lyubov. We'll go back. I will go back. Now. We will go back now. I promise you, Lyubov. But his friend, the gentle one, who had saved his life and betrayed his dream, Lyubov did not reply. He walked somewhere in the night near Selber, unseen and quiet as death. A group of the people of Tuntar came on Selber wandering in the dark, weeping and speaking, overmastered by dream. They took him with them in their swift return to Entor. In the makeshift lodge there, a tent on the riverbank, he lay helpless and insane for two days and nights while the old men tended him. All that time people kept coming in to Entor and going out again returning to the place of Eshsen, which had been called Central, burying their dead there and the alien dead, of theirs more than three hundred, of the others more than seven hundred. There were about five hundred humans locked into the compound, the creechy pens, which, standing empty and apart, had not been burnt. As many more had escaped, some of whom had got to the logging camps farther south, which had not been attacked, those who were still hiding and wandering in the forest or the cut lands were hunted down. Some were killed, for many of the younger hunters and huntresses still heard only Selber's voice saying, Kill them. Others had left the night of killing behind them as if it had been a nightmare, the evil dream that must be understood lest it be repeated. And these, faced with a thirsty, exhausted human cowering in a thicket, could not kill him. So maybe he killed them. There were groups of ten and twenty humans armed with loggers' axes and handguns, though few had ammunition left. These groups were tracked until sufficient numbers were hidden in the forest about them, then overpowered, bound, and led back to Eshsen. They were all captured within two or three days, for all that part of Sornal was swarming with the people of the forest. There had never in the knowledge of any man been half or a tenth so great a gathering of people in one place, some still coming in from distant towns and other lands, others already going home again. 
The captured humans were put in among the others in the compound, though it was overcrowded and the huts were too small for humans. They were watered, fed twice daily, and guarded by a couple of hundred armed hunters at all times. In the afternoon following the night of Eshsen, an airship came rattling out of the east and flew low as if to land, then shot upward like a bird of prey that misses its kill and circled the wrecked landing place, the smoldering city, and the cut lands. Reshwan had seen to it that the radios were destroyed, and perhaps it was the silence of the radios that had brought the airship from Kushil, or Raishwell, where there were three small towns of humans. The prisoners in the compound rushed out of the barracks and yelled at the machine whenever it came rattling overhead, and once it dropped an object on a small parachute into the compound, at last it rattled off into the sky. There were four such winged ships left on Athshenau, all of the small kind that carried four men. They also carried machine guns and flamethrowers, and they weighed much on the minds of Reshwan and the others while Selver lay lost to them, walking the cryptic ways of the other time. He woke into the world time on the third day, thin, dazed, hungry, silent. After he had bathed in the river and had eaten, he listened to Reshwan and the headwoman of Vara and the others chosen as leaders. They told him how the world had gone while he dreamed. When he had heard them all, he looked about them, and they saw the god in him. In the sickness of disgust and fear that followed the night of Eshsen, some of them had come to doubt. Their dreams were uneasy and full of blood and fire. They were surrounded all day by strangers, people come from all over the forests, hundreds of them, thousands, all gathered here like kites to carrion, none knowing another and it seemed to them as if the end of things had come, and nothing would ever be the same or be right again. But in Selver's presence they remembered purpose, their distress was quieted, and they waited for him to speak. The killing is all done. Make sure that everyone knows that. I have to talk with the ones in the compound. Who is leading them in there? Turkey, flap feet. Wet eyes. Turkeys alive? Good. Help me get up, Greta. I have eels for bones. When he had been afoot for a while, he was stronger, and within the hour he set off for Eshsen, two hours' walk from Entor. When they came, Reshwan mounted a ladder set against the compound wall and bawled in a pigeon English taught the slaves. Donga come to gate, hurry up quick. Down in the alleys between the squat cement barracks, some of the humans yelled and threw clods of dirt at him. He ducked and waited. The old colonel did not come out, but Gossa, whom they called Wet Eyes, came limping out of a hut. Colonel Dung is ill. He cannot come out. The gate was open just wide enough and long enough for Gossa to squeeze out. He stood in front of it alone, facing the group by Selver. He favored one leg, injured, on the night of Eshsen. He was wearing town pajamas, mud-stained and rain-sodden. His graying hair hung in lank festoons around his ears and over his forehead. Twice the height of his captors, he held himself very stiff and stared at them in courageous, angry misery. What do you want? We must talk, Mr. Gossa. I'm Selver of the Ash Tree of Eshreth. I'm Lyubov's friend. Yes, I know you. What have you to say? I have to say that the killing is over, if that be made a promise kept by your people and my people. You may all go free 
if you will gather in your people from the logging camps in South Sornal, Kushil, and Tishwell, and make them all stay together here. You may live here where the forest is dead, where you grow your seed grasses. There must not be any more cutting of trees. The camps weren't attacked? No. There are less than two thousand of your people left living in the world, I think. Your women are all dead. In the other camps there are still weapons. You could kill many of us, but we have some of your weapons, and there are more of us than you could kill. I suppose you know that, and that's why you have not tried to have the flying ships bring you fire throwers and kill the guards and escape. It would be no good. There really are so many of us. If you make the promise with us, it will be much the best, and then you can wait without harm until one of your great ships comes, and you can leave the world. That will be in three years, I think. Yes, three local years. How do you know that? Well, slaves have ears, Mr. Gossip. We had already promised not to hurt any of your people. It's why the workers were sent home. It did no good. You didn't listen. It was not a promise made to us. How can we make any sort of agreement or treaty with a people who have no government, no central authority? I don't know. I'm not sure you know what a promise is. This one was soon broken. What do you mean? By whom? How? In Rishwell, New Java, 14 days ago, a town was burned and its people killed by humans of the camp in Rishwell. It's a lie. We were in radio contact with New Java right along until the massacre. Nobody was killing natives there or anywhere else. You're speaking the truth you know. I, the truth I know. I accept your ignorance of the killings on Rishwell, but you must accept my telling you that they were done. This remains. The promise must be made to us and with us, and it must be kept. You will wish to talk about these matters with Colonel Dong and the others. Who are you, Selber? Did you... Was it you that organized the attack? Did you lead them? Yes, I did. Then all this blood is on your head. Lyubov's too, you know. He's dead. Your friend Lyubov. Selber did not understand the idiom. He had learned murder, but of guilt he knew little beyond the name. As his gaze locked for a moment with Gossa's pale, resentful stare, he felt afraid. A sickness rose up in him, a mortal chill. He tried to put it away from him, shutting his eyes a moment. Dubov is my friend, and so not dead. Your children, children, savages, you have no conception of reality. This is no dream, this is real. You killed Lyubov, he's dead. You killed the women, the women. You burned them alive, slaughtered them like animals. Should we have let them live to breed like insects in the carcass of the world? To overrun us? We killed them to sterilize you. I know what a realist is, Mr. Gossa. Lyubov and I have talked about these words. A realist is a man who knows both the world and his own dreams. You're not sane. There's not one man in a thousand of you who knows how to dream. Not even Lyubov, and he was the best among you. You sleep, you wake, and forget your dreams. You sleep again, and wake again, 
And so you spend your whole lives, and you think that that is being, life, reality. You are not children. You are grown men, but insane. And that's why we had to kill you, before you drove us mad. Now go back and talk about reality with the other insane men. Talk long and well. The guards opened the gate, threatening the crowding humans inside with their spears. Gossa re-entered the compound, his big shoulders hunched as if against the rain. Selver was very tired. He was too weary to eat. He drank a little hot broth and lay down by the men's fire. Entor was no town but a mere camp by the great river, a favorite fishing place for all the cities that had once been in the forest round about before the humans came. There were many old men at the fire, some of whom he knew from Brotur and Tuntar and his own destroyed city, Eshreth. Some whom he did not know. He could see in their eyes and gestures and hear in their voices that they were great dreamers, more dreamers than had ever been gathered in one place before, perhaps. Lying stretched out full length, his head raised on his hands, gazing at the fire, he said, I have called the humans mad. Am I mad myself? You don't know one time from the other, because you did not dream either sleeping or waking for far too long. The price for that takes long to pay. The poisons the humans take do much the same as does the lack of sleep and dream. The humans poison themselves in order to dream. I saw the dreamers look in them after they took the poisons. But they couldn't call the dreams, nor control them, nor weave, nor shape, nor cease to dream. They were driven, overpowered. They did not know what was within them at all. So it is with a man who hasn't dreamed for many days. Though he be the wisest of his lodge, still he'll be mad, now and then, here and there, for a long time after. He'll be driven, enslaved. He will not understand himself. My young God, you need to sing. That would do you good. I can't. Sing for me. The man sang. Others joined in, their voices high and reedy, almost tuneless, like the wind blowing in the water reeds of Endor. The next day, the humans imprisoned in the compound sent for Selver. He came to Eshsen in the afternoon and met with them outside the compound under the branches of an oak tree, for all Selver's people felt a little uneasy under the bare open sky. With Selver under the oak were Reshwan, the headwoman of Vera, Greta of Cadist, and others who wished to be in on the parley, a dozen or so in all. Many bowmen kept guard, fearing the humans might have hidden weapons, but they sat behind bushes or bits of wreckage left from the burning, so as not to dominate the scene with the hint of threat. With Gossa and Colonel Dong were three of the humans called officers, and two from the logging camp, at the sight of one of whom, Benton, the ex-slaves drew in their breaths. Benton had used to punish lazy creatures by castrating them in public. The colonel looked thin, his normally yellow-brown skin a muddy yellow-gray. His illness had been no sham. They were all settled, the human standing, Selver's people squatting or sitting on the damp, soft, oak-leaf mold. The first thing is that I want first 
to have a working definition of just precisely what these terms of yours mean, and what they mean in terms of guaranteed safety of my personnel under my command here. You understand English, don't you? Yes. I don't understand your question, Mr. Dong. Colonel Dong, if you please. Then you'll call me Colonel Selber, if you please. A singing note came into Selber's voice. He stood up, ready for the contest, tunes running in his mind like rivers. But the old human just stood there, huge and heavy, angry, yet not meeting the challenge. I did not come here to be insulted by you little humanoids. But his lips trembled as he said it. He was old and bewildered and humiliated. All anticipation of triumph went out of Selber. There was no triumph in the world anymore, only death. He sat down again. I didn't intend insult, Colonel Dong. Will you repeat your question, please? I want to hear your terms, and then you'll hear ours. That's all there is to it. Selva repeated what he had said to gossip. Dong listened with apparent impatience. All right. Now, you don't realize that we've had a functioning radio in the prison compound for three days now. Selva did know this as Reshwan had at once checked on the object dropped by the helicopter, lest it be a weapon. The guards reported it was a radio, and he let the humans keep it. Selver merely nodded. So we've been in contact with the three outlying camps, the two on King Island and one on New Java right along, and if we had decided to make a break for it and escape from that prison compound, then it would have been very simple for us to do that with the helicopters to drop us weapons and covering our movements with their mounted weapons. One flamethrower could have got us out of the compound, and in case of need, they also have the bombs that can blow up an entire area. You haven't seen those in action, of course. If you'd left the compound, where would you have gone? The point is, without introducing into this any beside-the-point or erroneous factors, now we are greatly, certainly greatly outnumbered by your forces but we have the four helicopters at the camps, which there's no use you trying to disable as they are under fully armed guard at all times now, and also all the serious firepower, so that the cold reality of the situation is we can pretty much call it a draw and speak in positions of mutual equality. This, of course, is a temporary situation. If necessary, we are enabled to maintain a defensive police action to prevent all-out war. Moreover, we have behind us the entire firepower of the Terran interstellar fleet, which could blow your entire planet right out of the sky. But these ideas are pretty intangible to you, so let's just put it as plainly and simply as I can, that we're prepared to negotiate with you for the present time in terms of an equal frame of reference. Selver's patience was short. He knew his ill temper was a symptom of his deteriorated mental state, but he could no longer control it. Well, first I want it clearly understood that as soon as we got the radio, we told the men at the other camps not to bring us weapons and not to try any airlift or rescue attempts, and reprisals were strictly out of order. That was prudent. What next? Colonel Dong began an angry retort, then stopped. The old man sat down, biting his lips, his almond-shaped eyes narrow with pain. Mr. Gossa, perhaps you can speak for the colonel. He isn't well. I'll do the talking, Benton said, stepping forward. But Dong shook his head and muttered, Gossa. 
With the colonel as auditor rather than speaker, it went more easily. The humans were accepting Selver's terms. With a mutual promise of peace, they would withdraw all their outposts and live in one area, the region they had forested in middle Sornal, about 1,700 square miles of rolling land well watered. They undertook not to enter the forest. The forest people undertook not to trespass on the cut lands. The four remaining airships were the cause of some argument. The humans insisted they needed them to bring their people from the other islands to Sornal. Very well, they could keep the hoppers for what they called the airlift operation. After that, they were to destroy them. Refusal. They were more protective of their machines than of their bodies. Selber gave in, saying that they could keep the hoppers if they flew them only over the cut lands, and if the weapons in them were destroyed. Over this they argued, but with one another, while Selber waited, occasionally repeating the terms of his demand, for he was not giving in on this point. What's the difference, Benton? Can't you see that we can't use the damned weapons? There's three million of these aliens all scattered over every damned island, all covered with trees and undergrowth, no cities, no vital network, no centralized control. You can't disable a gorilla-type structure with bombs. We're not in a position until a ship comes to prove our superiority. Let the big stuff go. But we can hold on to the sidearms for hunting and self-defense. It was their old man, and his opinion prevailed in the end, as it might have done in a men's lodge. Benton sulked. Gossa started to talk about what would happen if the truce was broken, but Selver stopped him. These are possibilities. We aren't yet done with the certainties. Your great ship is to return in three years. That is three and a half years of your count. Until that time you are free here. It will not be very hard for you. Nothing more will be taken away from Centralville except some of Lyubov's work that I wish to keep. You still have most of your tools of tree-cutting and ground-moving. If you need more tools, the iron mines of Peldel are in your territory. I think all this is clear. What remains to be known is this. When that ship comes, what will they seek to do with you and with us? We don't know. If you hadn't destroyed the Ansible communicator first thing off, we might be receiving some current information on these matters. But due to wanton destruction, due to your ignorance of your own interests, we haven't even got a radio left that will transmit over a few hundred miles. What is the Ansible? A kind of radio. It put us in instant touch with our home world. Without the twenty-seven-year waiting? Gossa stared down at Selver. Right, quite right. You learned a great deal from Lyubov, didn't you? Didn't he just? He was Lyubov's little green buddy boy. He picked up everything worth knowing and a bit more besides, like all the vital points to sabotage and where the guards would be posted and how to get into the weapon stockpile. They must have been in touch right up to the moment the massacre started. Raj is dead. That's all irrelevant now, Benton. We've got to establish... Are you trying to infer in some way that Captain Lyubov was involved in some activity that could be called treachery to the colony, Benton? There were no spies on my staff. It was absolutely handpicked before we ever left Terra, and I know the kind of men I have to deal with. I'm not inferring anything, Colonel. I'm saying straight out that it was Lyubov stirred up the Creechies, and if orders hadn't been changed on us after that fleet ship was here, it never would have happened. You are all very ill. 
I'm sorry we've had to hold you in the creechy pen. It is not a good place for the mind. Please send for your men from the camps. When all are here and the large weapons have been destroyed and the promise has been spoken by all of us, then we shall leave you alone. The gates of the compound will be opened when I leave here today. Is there more to be said? None of them said anything. They looked down at him. Big men with tan or brown hairless skin, cloth-covered, dark-eyed, grim-faced. Small men, green or brownish-green, fur-covered, with the large eyes of the semi-nocturnal creature, with dreamy faces. Between the two groups, Selver, the translator, frail, disfigured, holding all their destinies in his empty hands. Rain fell softly on the brown earth about them. Farewell, then. Selver led his people away. Davison found a good use for Major Mohammed's tape recorder. Somebody had to make a record of events on New Tahiti, a history of the crucifixion on the Terran colony, so that when the ships came from Mother Earth, they could learn how much treachery and cowardice and folly humans were capable of, and how much courage against all odds. During his free moments, not much more than moments since he had assumed command, he recorded the whole story of the Smith Camp Massacre, and brought the record up to date for New Java, and for King and Central also, as well as he could with the garbled hysterical stuff that was all he got by way of news from Central HQ. Exactly what had happened there nobody would ever know except the Creechies, for the humans were trying to cover up their own betrayals and mistakes. It was an inside job. The fact that HQ was the first place blown up proved that. Lyubov, of course, had been in on it and his little green buddies had proved just as grateful as you might expect, and cut his throat like the others. At least Gossa and Benton claimed to have seen him dead the morning after the massacre. But could you believe any of them, actually? You could assume that any human left alive in Central after that night was more or less of a traitor. A traitor to his race. It was unthinkable, but by God sometimes you have to be able to think about the unthinkable. A hopper from King had dropped the prisoners at Central a receiver transmitter the day after the massacre, and Muhammad had taped all of his exchanges with Central starting that day. The most incredible one was a conversation between him and Colonel Dong. The recording of the Colonel and the Major discussing total surrender to the Creechies, agreeing not to try retaliation, not to defend themselves, to give up all their big weapons, to all squeeze together onto a bit of land picked out for them by the Creechies, a reservation conceded to them by their generous conquerors, the little green beasts, was literally incredible. Probably old Ding Dong and Moo were not actually traitors by intent. They had just gone spla, lost their nerve. It was this damn planet that did it to them. It was too bad Mohammed had had to be put out of the way, but he would never have agreed to accept Davison's plans. That was clear. He had been too far gone. Anyone who had heard that incredible tape would agree. So it was better he got shot before he really knew what was going on, and now no shame would attach to his name, as it would to Dong's and all the other officers left alive at Central. Dong hadn't come on the radio lately. Usually it was Juju Sarang in engineering. Can't you realize what kind of trouble you're making for us, Don? Juju Sarang had demanded. We've made a formal truce with the Creechies, 
and were under direct orders from Earth not to interfere with the Hilfs and not to retaliate. Anyway, how the hell can we retaliate? Now all the fellows from Kingland and South Central are here with us, and we're still less than 2,000. And what have you got there on job? About 65 men, isn't it? Do you really think 2,000 men can take on 3 million intelligent enemies, Don? Juju, 50 men can do it. It's a matter of will, skill, and weaponry. Bat shit! But the point is, Don, a truce has been made, and if it's broken, we've had it. It's all that keeps us afloat now. Maybe when the ship gets back from Presno and sees what's happened, they'll decide to wipe out the creatures. We don't know. But it does look like the creatures intend to keep the truce. After all, it was their idea. We have got to. They can wipe us out by sheer numbers any time, the way they did in Centralville. There are thousands of them. Can't you understand that, Don? Listen, Juju, sure I understand. If you're scared to use the three hoppers you still got there, you could send them here with a few fellows to see things like we do here. If I'm going to liberate you fellows single-handed, I could sure use some more hoppers for the job. You aren't going to liberate us. You're going to incinerate us, you damn fool. Get that last hopper over here to Central now. That's the Colonel's personal order to you as acting CO. Use it to fly your men here. Twelve trips. You won't need more than four local day periods. Now act on those orders and get to it. Christ, it made him sick. It was time to act. They'd been waiting around nearly two weeks now. He had his camp well defended. They had strengthened the stockade fence and built it up so that no little green monkey men could possibly get over it. And that clever kid, Aabi, had made lots of neat homemade landmines and sewn them all around the stockade in a hundred-meter belt. Now it was time to show the creatures that they might push around those sheep on Central, but on New Java it was men they had to deal with. He took the hopper up and with it guided an infantry squad of fifteen to a creature warren south of camp. He had learned how to spot the thing from the air. The giveaway was the orchards, concentrations of certain kinds of tree, though not planted in rows like humans would. It was incredible how many warrens there were once you learned how to spot them. The forest was crawling with the things. The raiding party burned up that warren by hand, and then flying back with a couple of his boys, he spotted another less than four kilos from camp. On that one, just to write his signature real clear and plain for everybody to read, he dropped a bomb. Just a firebomb, not a big one, but baby did it make the green fur fly. It left a big hole in the forest, and the edges of the hole were burning. What are you trying to do? said the voice on the radio, and it made him grin. It was so agonized, like some old woman being held up. Do you know what you're doing, Davison? Yep. Do you think you're going to subdue the creatures? Yes, that's right. You think if you keep burning up villages, they'll come to you and surrender? Three million of them, right? Maybe. There was some fussing around at the central end, and all of a sudden old Dong was on, the first time he had talked to Davison. He sounded feeble and out of breath on the whining shortwave. Listen, Captain, I want to know if you fully realize what form of action your actions on New Java are going to be forcing me into taking, if you continue to disobey your orders. I am trying to reason with you as a reasonable and loyal soldier. In order to ensure the safety of my personnel here at Central, I'm going to be put into the position of being forced to tell the natives here that we can't assume any responsibility at all for your actions. That's correct, sir. 
Your personnel there is 66 men, is that correct? Well, I want those men safe and sound here at Central with us to wait for the Shackleton and keep the colony together. You're on a suicide course, and I'm responsible for those men you have there with you. No, you're not, sir. I am. You just relax. Only when you see the jungle burning, pick up and get out to the middle of a strip, because we don't want to roast you folks along with the creatures. No, listen, Davison. I order you to hand your command over to Lieutenant Temba at once and report to me here. Davison suddenly cut off the radio. They were all spla, playing at still being soldiers in full retreat from reality. There were actually very few men who could face reality when the going got tough. As he expected, the local creatures did absolutely nothing about his raids on the Warrens. The only way to handle them, as he had known from the start, was to terrorize them and never let up on them. If you did that, they knew who was boss and knuckled under. A lot of the villages within a 30-kilo radius seemed to be deserted now before he got to them, but he kept his men going out to burn them up every few days. The fellows were getting rather jumpy. He considered a raid on Central to liberate the Hoppers, but did not yet mention this idea even to Aabi and Temba, his best men. Some of the boys would get cold feet at the idea of an armed raid on their own HQ. They kept talking about, when we get back with the others. They didn't know those others had abandoned them, betrayed them, sold their skins to the creatures. He didn't tell them that. They couldn't take it. After two more weeks, they had pretty well closed out the Creechy Warrens within walking distance, and the forest was neat and tidy. No vermin. No smoke puffs over the trees. Nobody hopping out of bushes and flopping down on the ground with their eyes shut, waiting for you to stomp them. No little green men. Just a mess of trees and some burn places. The boys were getting really edgy and mean. It was time to make the hopper raid. He told his plan one night to Aabi, Temba, and Post. None of them said anything for a minute. Then Aabi said, What about fuel, Captain? We got enough fuel. Not for four hoppers. Wouldn't last a week. You mean there's only a month's supply left for this one? Aabi nodded. Well, then, we pick up a little fuel, too, looks like. How? Put your minds to it. They all sat there looking stupid. It annoyed him. They looked to him for everything. He was a natural leader, but he liked men who thought for themselves, too. He went out for a smoke, sick of the way everybody acted, like they'd lost their nerve. They just couldn't face the cold, hard facts. They were low on reefers now, and he hadn't had one for a couple of days. It didn't do anything for him. The night was overcast and black, damp, warm, smelling like spring. He was going back inside when the guard posted up on the lumberyard smokestack yelled, Somebody else over on the west side of the stockade began yelling, too. A gun went off. And they came. Christ, they came. It was incredible. There were thousands of them. Thousands. No sound. No noise at all. Until that screech from the guard. Then one gunshot. Then an explosion. A landmine going up. And another. One after another. And hundreds and hundreds of torches flaring up, lit one from another, and being thrown and soaring through the black wet air like rockets and the walls of the stockade coming alive with creatures, pouring in, pouring over, pushing, swarming, thousands of them. It was like an army of rats Davison had once seen when he was a little kid in the last famine in the streets of Cleveland, Ohio, where he grew up. 
Something had driven the rats out of their holes, and they had come up in the daylight, seething up over the wall, a pulsing blanket of fur and eyes and little hands and teeth, and he had yelled for his mom and run like crazy, or was that only a dream he had had when he was a kid? It was important to keep cool. The hopper was parked in the creechy pen. It was still dark over on that side, and he got there at once. The gate was locked. He always kept it locked in case one of the weak sisters got a notion of flying off to Papa Ding Dong some dark night. It seemed to take a long time to get the key out and fit it in the lock and turn it right, but it was just a matter of keeping cool. And then it took a long time to sprint to the hopper and unlock it. Post and Abby were with him now. At last came the huge rattle of the rotors, beating eggs, covering up all the weird noises, the high voices yelling and screeching and singing. Up they went, and hell dropped away below them, a pen full of rats burning. Takes a cool head to size up an emergency situation quickly. You men thought fast and acted fast. Good work. Where's Timba? Got a spear in his belly. Abby, the pilot, seemed to want to fly the hopper, so Davison led him. He clambered into one of the rear seats and sat back, letting his muscles relax. The forest flowed beneath them, black under black. Where are you heading, Abby? Central. No, we don't want to go to Central. Where do we want to go? New York? Peking? Just keep her up a while, Abby, and circle camp. Big circles, out of earshot. Captain, there isn't any Java camp anymore by now. When the Creechies are through burning the camp, we'll come in and burn Creechies. There must be 4,000 of them all in one place there. There are six flamethrowers in the back of this helicopter. Let's give them about 20 minutes. Start with the jelly bombs and then catch the ones that run with the flamethrowers. Christ, some of our guys might be there. The Creechies might take prisoners we don't know. I'm not going back there and burn up humans, maybe. He had not turned the hopper. Davison put the nose of his revolver against the back of Abby's skull. Yes, we're going back, so pull yourself together, baby, and don't give me a lot of trouble. There's enough fuel in the tank to get us to Central, Captain, but that's all. That's all we got. Then we'll get a lot of mileage out of it. Turn her, Abby. I think we better go on to Central, Captain. This ganging up against him enraged Davison so much that, reversing the gun in his hand, he struck out fast as a snake and clipped post over the ear with the gun butt. The logger just folded over like a Christmas card and sat there in the front seat with his head between his knees and his hands hanging to the floor. Turner, Abby! The helicopter swung around in a wide arc. Hell, where's camp? I never had this hopper up at night without any signal to follow. Go east and look for the fire! None of them had any real stamina, not even Temba. None of them had stood by him when the going really got tough. Sooner or later, they all joined up against him because they just couldn't take it the way he could. The weak conspire against the strong. The strong man has to stand alone and look out for himself. It just happened to be the way things are. Where was the camp? They should have been able to see the burning buildings for miles in this blank dark. Even in the rain, nothing showed. Gray-black sky, black ground. The fires must have gone out. Been put out. Could the humans have driven off the creatures after he'd escaped? The thought went like a spray of ice water through his mind. No, of course not, not fifty against thousands. But by God, there must be a lot of pieces of blown-up creatures lying around the minefields anyway. It was just that they'd come up so damn thick. Nothing could have stopped them. He couldn't have planned for that. Where had they come from? There hadn't been any creatures in the forest anywhere around for days and days. They must have poured in from somewhere from all directions, sneaking along in the woods, coming up out of their holes like rats. There wasn't any way to stop thousands and thousands of them like that. Where the hell was camp? Abby was tricking, faking course. Find the camp, Abby. 
For Christ's sake, I'm trying to. Post never moved. It couldn't just disappear, could it, Abby? You got seven minutes to find it. Find it yourself. Not till you and Post get in line, baby. Take her down lower. That looks like the river. There was a river and a big clearing, but where was Java camp? It didn't show up as they flew north over the clearing. This must be it. There isn't any other big clearing, is there? Their landing lights glared, but you couldn't see anything outside the tunnels of the lights. It would be better to have them off. Davison reached over the pilot's shoulder and switched the lights off. Blank, wet dark was like black towels slapped on their eyes. For Christ's sake, Aabi flipped the lights back on, slewed the hopper left and up, but not fast enough. The trees leaned hugely out of the night and caught the machine. The vane screamed, hurling leaves and twigs in a cyclone through the bright lanes of the lights, but the boles of the trees were very old and strong. The little winged machine plunged, seemed to lurch and tear itself free, and went down sideways into the trees. The lights went out. The noise stopped. Davison felt groggy. Must have hit his head. Abby wasn't there. Where was he? This was the hopper. It was all slewed around, but he was still in his seat. It was so dark, like being blind. He felt around and so found post, inert, still doubled up, crammed in between the front seat and the control panel. The hopper trembled whenever Davison moved, and he figured out at last that it wasn't on the ground, but wedged in between trees, stuck like a kite. His head was feeling better, and he wanted more and more to get out of the black, tilted-over cabin. He squirmed over into the pilot seat and got his legs out, hung by his hands, and could not feel ground, only branches scraping his dangling legs. Finally he let go, not knowing how far he'd fall. But he had had to get out of that cabin. It was only a few feet down. It jolted his head, but he felt better standing up. If only it wasn't so dark, so black. He had a torch in his belt. He always carried one at night around camp, but it wasn't there. That was funny. Must have fallen out. He'd better get back into the hopper and get it. Maybe Aabi had taken it. Aabi had intentionally crashed the hopper, taken Davison's torch, and made a break for it. The slimy little bastard. He was like all the rest of them. The air was black and full of moisture, and you couldn't tell where to put your feet. It was all roots and bushes and tangles. There were noises all around, water dripping, rustling, tiny noises, little things sneaking around in the darkness. He'd better get back up into the hopper, get his torch. But he couldn't see how to climb back up. The bottom edge of the doorway was just out of reach of his fingers. There was a light, a faint gleam seen and gone off in the trees. Abby had taken the torch and gone off to reconnoiter, get orientated, smart boy. He stepped on something queer while he was trying to see the light among the trees again. He kicked at it with his boots, then put a hand down on it, cautiously, for it wasn't wise to go feeling things you couldn't see. A lot of wet stuff, slick like a dead rat. He withdrew his hand quickly. He felt in another place after a while. It was a boot under his hand. He could feel the crossings of the laces. It must be Aabi lying there right under his feet. He'd gotten thrown out of the hopper when it came down. Well, he deserved it with his Judas trick, trying to run off to Central. Davison did not like the wet feel of the unseen clothes and hair. He straightened up. There was the light again, black barred by near and distant tree trunks, a distant glow that moved. Davison put his hand to his holster. The revolver was not in it. He had had it in his hand in case Post or Abby acted up. It was not in his hand. It must be up in the helicopter with his torch. He stood crouching, immobile, 
then abruptly began to run. He could not see where he was going. Tree trunks jolted him from side to side as he knocked into them, and roots tripped up his feet. He fell full length, crashing down among bushes. Getting to hands and knees, he tried to hide. Bare, wet twigs dragged and scraped over his face. He squirmed farther into the bushes. His brain was entirely occupied by the complex smells of rot and growth, dead leaves, decay, new shoots, fronds, flowers, the smells of night and spring and rain. The light shone full on him. He saw the creatures. He remembered what they did when cornered, and what Lyubov had said about it. He turned over on his back and lay with his head tipped back, his eyes shut, his heart stuttered in his chest. Nothing happened. It was hard to open his eyes, but finally he managed to. They just stood there, a lot of them, ten or twenty. They carried those spears they had for hunting, little toy-looking things, but the iron blades were sharp. They could cut right through your guts. He shut his eyes and just kept lying there. And nothing happened. His heart quieted down, and it seemed like he could think better. Something stirred down inside of him, something almost like laughter. By God, they couldn't get him down. If his own men betrayed him, and human intelligence couldn't do any more for him, then he used their own trick against them, played dead like this, and triggered this instinct reflex that kept them from killing anybody who took that position. They just stood around him, muttering at each other. They couldn't hurt him. It was as if he was a god. Davidson. He had to open his eyes again. The resin flare carried by one of the creatures still burned, but it had grown pale, and the forest was dim gray now, not pitch black. How had that happened? Only five or ten minutes had gone by. It was still hard to see, but it wasn't night anymore. He could see the leaves and branches, the forest. He could see the face looking down at him. It had no color in this toneless twilight of dawn. The scarred features looked like a man's. The eyes were like dark holes. Let me get up. He was shaking with cold from lying on the wet ground. He could not lie there with Selver looking down at him. Selver was empty-handed, but a lot of the little devils around him had not only spears but revolvers, stolen from his stockpile at camp. He struggled to his feet. His clothes clung icy to his shoulders and the backs of his legs, and he could not stop shaking. Get it over with. Hurry up, quick. Selver just looked at him. At least now he had to look up, way up, to meet Davison's eyes. Do you wish me to kill you now? It's my choice, is it? Well, you have lain all night in the way that means you wished us to let you live. Now, do you want to die? The pain in his head and stomach, and his hatred for this horrible little freak that had got him at its mercy, the pain and the hatred combined had set his belly churning, so he retched and was nearly sick. He shook with cold and nausea. He tried to hold on to courage. He suddenly stepped forward a pace and spat in Selver's face. There was a little pause, and then Selver, with a kind of dancing movement, spat back and laughed and made no move to kill Davison. Davison wiped the cold spittle off his lips. Look, Captain Davison, we are both gods, you and I. You're an insane one, and I'm not sure whether I'm sane or not, but we are gods. There will never be another meeting in the forest like this meeting now between us. 
we bring each other such gifts as gods bring. You gave me a gift, the gift of killing one's kind, murder. Now, as well as I can, I give you my people's gift, which is not killing. I think we each find each other's gift heavy to carry. However, you must carry it alone. Your people at Eshsen tell me that if I bring you there, they have to make a judgment on you and kill you. It's their law to do so. So wishing to give you life, I can't take you with the other prisoners to Eshsen, and I can't leave you to wander in the forest, for you do too much harm. So you'll be treated like one of us when we go mad. You'll be taken to Rendlep, where nobody lives anymore, and left there. Davison stared at the creature, could not take his eyes off it. It was as if it had some hypnotic power over him. Nobody could hurt him. I should have broken your neck right away that day you tried to jump me. It might have been best, Selver answered. But Lyubov prevented you, as he now prevents me from killing you. All the killing is done now, and the cutting of trees. There aren't trees to cut on Rendlep. That's the place you call Dump Island. Your people left no trees there, so you can't make a boat and sail from it. Nothing much grows there anymore, so we shall have to bring you food and wood to burn. There's nothing to kill on Rendlep. No trees, no people. There were trees and people, but now there are only the dreams of them. It seems to me a fitting place for you to live, since you must live. You might learn how to dream there, but more likely you will follow your madness through to its proper end at last. Kill me now and quit your damn gloating. Kill you? I can't kill you, Davison. You're a god. You must do it yourself. He turned and walked away, light and quick, vanishing among the gray trees within a few steps. A noose slipped over Davison's head and tightened a little on his throat. Small spears approached his back and sides. They did not try to hurt him. He could run away, make a break for it. They didn't dare kill him. The blades were polished, leaf-shaped, sharp as razors. The noose tugged gently at his neck. He followed where they led him. Selver had not seen Lyubov for a long time. That dream had gone with him to Rishwell. It had been with him when he spoke the last time to Davison. Then it had gone, and perhaps it slept now in the grave of Lyubov's death at Eshsen, for it never came to Selver in the town of Broter where he now lived. But when the great ship returned and he went to Eshsen, Lyubov met him there. He was silent and tenuous, very sad, so that the old carking grief awoke in Selver. Lyubov stayed with him, a shadow in the mind, even when he met the humans from the ship. These were people of power. They were very different from all humans he had known except his friend, but they were much stronger men than Lyubov had been. His human speech had gone rusty, and at first he mostly let them talk. When he was fairly certain of what kind of people they were, 
he brought forward the heavy box he had carried from Broter. Inside this, there is Lyubov's work. He knew more about us than the others do. He learned my language and the men's tongue. He wrote all that down. He understood somewhat how we live and dream. The others do not. I'll give you the work if you'll take it to the place he wished. The tall, white-skinned one, Lepenin, looked happy and thanked Silver, telling him that the papers would indeed be taken where Lyubov wished and would be highly valued. That pleased Silver. But it had been painful to him to speak his friend's name aloud, for Lyubov's face was still bitterly sad when he turned to it in his mind. He withdrew a little from the humans and watched them. Dong and Gossa and others of Eshsen were there along with the five from the ship. The new ones looked clean and polished as new iron. The old ones had let the hair grow on their faces, so that they looked a little like huge black-furred Athians. They still wore clothes, but the clothes were old and not kept clean. They were not thin, except for the old man, who had been ill ever since the night of Eshsen, but they all looked a little like men who are lost or mad. This meeting was at the edge of the forest, in that zone where by tacit agreement neither the forest people nor the humans had built dwellings or camped for these past years. Selvar and his companions settled down in the shade of a big ash tree that stood out away from the forest eaves. The light beneath the great tree was soft with shadows. The humans consulted and came and went, and at last one came over to the ash tree. It was the hard one from the ship, the commander. He squatted down on his heels near Selver, not asking permission, but not with any evident intention of rudeness. Can we talk a little? Certainly. You know that we'll be taking all the Terrans away with us. We brought a second ship with us to carry them. Your world will no longer be used as a colony. This was the message I heard at Broter when you came three days ago. I wanted to be sure that you understood that this is a permanent arrangement. We are not coming back. Your world has been placed under the League ban. What that means in your terms is this. I can promise you that no one will come here to cut the trees or take your land so long as the League lasts. None of you will ever come back. Not for five generations. None. Then perhaps a few men, ten or twenty, no more than twenty, might come to talk to your people and study your world as some of the men here were doing. The scientists, the specials. You decide matters all at once, your people. How do you mean? Well, you say that none of you shall cut the trees of Athsha, and all of you stop, and yet you live in many places. Now, if a headwoman in Karach gave an order, it would not be obeyed by the people of the next village, and surely not by all the people in the world at once. No, because you haven't one government over all, but we do, now and I assure you its orders are obeyed by all of us at once. But as a matter of fact, 
It seems to me from the story we've been told by the colonists here that when you gave an order, Selver, it was obeyed by everybody on every island here at once. How did you manage that? At that time, I was a god. After the commander had left him, the long white one came sauntering over and asked if he might sit down in the shade of the tree. He had tact, this one, and was extremely clever. Selver was uneasy with him. Like Lyubov, this one would be gentle, he would understand, and yet would himself be utterly beyond understanding. For the kindest of them was as far out of touch, as unreachable, as the cruelest. That was why the presence of Lyubov in his mind remained painful to him, while the dreams in which he saw and touched his dead wife Thela were precious and full of peace. When I was here before, Le Penin said, I met this man, Raj Lyubov. I had very little chance to speak with him, but I remember what he said, and I've had time to read some of his studies of your people since. His work, as you say, it's largely because of that work of his that Athsha is now free of the Terran colony. This freedom had become the direction of Lyubov's life, I think. You, being his friend, will see that his death did not stop him from arriving at his goal, from finishing his journey. Selver sat still. Uneasiness turned to fear in his mind. This one spoke like a great dreamer. Will you tell me one thing, Selver? If the question doesn't offend you, there will be no more questions after it. There were the killings at Smith Camp, then at this place, Eshsen, then finally at New Java Camp, where Davison led the rebel group. That was all. No more since then? Is that true? Have there been no more killings? I did not kill Davison. That does not matter. Selver meant that Davison was not dead, but Le Penin took him to mean that someone else had killed Davison. Relieved to see that the human could err, Selver did not correct him. There has been no more killing, then? None. Among your own people, I mean. Athsians killing Athsians. Selver was silent. He looked up at Le Penin, at the strange face, white as the mask of the ash spirit, that changed as it met his gaze. Sometimes a god comes. He brings a new way to do a thing, or a new thing to be done, a new kind of singing, or a new kind of death. He brings this across the bridge between the dream time and the world time. When he has done this, it is done. You cannot take things that exist in the world and try to drive them back into the dream, to hold them inside the dream with walls and pretenses. That is insanity. What is, is. There is no use pretending now that we do not know how to kill one another. Le Penin laid his long hand on Selber's hand, so quickly and gently that Selver accepted the touch as if the hand were not a stranger's. The green-gold shadows of the ash leaves flickered over them. 
but you must not pretend to have reasons to kill one another. Murder has no reason. His face was as anxious and sad as Lyubov's face. We shall go. Within two days we shall be gone, all of us, forever. Then the forests of Atcher will be as they were before. Lyubov came out of the shadows of Selver's mind. I shall be here. Lyubov will be here, and Davison will be here, both of them. Maybe after I die, people will be as they were before I was born, and before you came. But I do not think they will. We invite you to send us your comments on this program, and we would like to send you the latest free edition of our cassette catalog. Please write to us at the address on the Book of the Road package.